All right, Nahum, do you want to do you want to go through um, the discussion of the first round? Okay, thank you, Monica. So I was able to visit two breakout rooms. I think one was helped by Leanne, and the other one I was, uh, you know, guiding the team. I think that uh, team members that have not used the app uh, had uh, needed to have a little bit of uh, handholding to get it to work. Uh, once we got it to work, and they were able to essentially repeat the demo that I gave them, they were on their own. And so at that time, time expired, and uh, uh, we said that we are going to move on to the next team. So does anybody else has any uh, can report any experience being in another breakout room? How is your team, Paul? Um, so yeah, I, um, I, I've never competed before like this. So I kind of <laughs> gave my, my own rules of thumb on, on you know, what's, what's a, a uh, what are the important guidelines, you know, in deflecting an asteroid. So I, that's how I uh, work with my team. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's an exploration process for all of us here. Um, so thank, first of all, thank you for helping and welcome. Uh, looking forward to your, your talk. In a few moments, okay. uh, let's see. How about the other groups? Uh, who, Leanne? What about the group that you were uh, helping out with? Any okay, so Alan was great, um, and we just played around. We're not. We're feeling kind of confident with our number, but we're not sure. Our cost was really low. Um, we felt like we should use the money, but we ended up not using, you know, all our money. So I'm, I'm interested in seeing how everybody approached this. Okay. Uh, any other uh, breakout room to report? Uh, did every breakout room had a an experienced person, or you had to be really on your own there? Uh, our breakout room had a person who had used the app before and seemed to know kind of have a strategy. So that kind of helped because it got us started pretty fast with trying to tweak numbers and get the best value. <laughs> Very good. Uh, okay, so how about uh, we hear uh, some of the values that were able uh, that go, uh, breakout rooms were able to attain? You can just type it into the chat, I think, and we'll see what what did you get there in terms yeah, of or, performance. Yeah, or we can go like each team, so okay. and then they can tell us, and I can write it down. All right, okay. so planetary defender group, what um, what value did you get? Yeah, so um, I think we're the planetary defenders, and we got 58.209. Wow, fantastic. Very good. Well, they have the expert with them. Uh -huh. And how much did that cost? Um, we used, let's see, we used um, two Falcon Heavies. So I think that cost um, 0.3 billion. Very good. All right. Uh, asteroid hunters, were you able to get any values? This was a shy group. Is, uh, which group are we? I don't know. Uh, let's see. Paul, your team was Rock Blaster. Okay. <laughs> so what values did you get, Paul? Well, I didn't record them. Can someone uh, look at their screen and tell me what values we got? 
at a cost of 0 0.2. Fantastic. Thank you very much. I love Abbas, to see family endeavors. <laughs> Space Cadet team, did you get what values did you get? This is a group with Dixie and JC and Jespree. I'm sorry. Uh, can you repeat the question? Yeah, what uh, performance performance metric did you get? Were you able to solve the problem? I'll leave it to Ravi, who uh, and uh, who conducted the uh, software to speak for us. We're novice here. Uh, Ravi said, uh, we don't think we solved the problem, actually. We were just learning about the software as we're just freshmen. Very, very, very green here. Thank you. <laughs> OK, no worries, no worries. That's why we have more uh, more scenarios. Thank you. All right, and then uh, Leanne's group, the asteroid billionaire. What was your metric? Alan. So so yeah. we were, yeah, we were feeling really confident with our 9.1, you know, <laughs> but the thing we, we threw two Falcon heavies at it and then, which probably would have gotten us a low cost, but we, I think we were feeling bad about not spending all that money, seeing how is that saved money wouldn't be worth very much afterwards. So we threw another Atlas at it and stopped there. Okay, don't stop. Uh, you need to maximize the performance yeah. metric. And so in the next round, use your resources. Okay. <laughs> All right, so it looks like the Planetary Defenders with 58.209 is the winner of this round. So good job, everybody. Congratulations. Okay. <laughs> Mission right. success. Okay, All right. uh, Monica, I think I think what I suggest is that maybe just before we jump to the next round, maybe I would give just one more demo because there are some people who are, again, novice to that. And I'm going to take just one or two minutes to do one more round and share my screen. Perfect. Okay. okay. Uh, we, are in, we are planter defenders in training and we need to help those new members of the team. So I'm going to do that just to help out with the teams. So if you can tell me if you can see my screen. Yes. Okay, good. Okay, so now I'm going to hit F5 or you know, refresh on my computer. It's going to load a fresh instance of the app. Everybody should do that to start from fresh and not start from previous values. And I'm jumping directly to the to the um, setup, uh, and I'm repeating what I've done before, which was two, and then two, and then two, and it was one on the SLS, hmm. and it was eight years, and it was four vehicles max, and it was $2 billion, and I'm going to do just one minute here in this case. And I'm going to start it so the clock is ticking. And uh, I can play with any of these launch vehicles. But the first thing to do is to try to get any mass to orbit, right? Right now we have none. We must find a solution here. So I'm clicking to the left here to change the time of deflection. I'm able to find some value here. I can try to, to move this one as well and see if I can get anything here. 
I'm going to maybe add another uh, launch vehicle here and see if he did it. And in, I was able to move it by some amount outside of the red circle and develop that miss distance here, divided by the cost and get this performance metric. Obviously, uh, some of the team members were able to get much higher value. And now don't be shy, use all of your resources and try to get the best value for the performance metric that you get before the time expires, which is going to expire in just a second. And that's where we are going to be taken out of the breakout rooms automatically and compare the values between each team. So with that, I'm going to jump out now and let Monica introduce the second round. Muted? Yeah, of course. It can't be a Zoom meeting if I'm not muted, right? Okay, so go ahead and hit F5 or refresh your screen at this point. We are going to uh, essentially do the same, except we are going to change the type of object. So, uh, Nahum, did you want to explain why we're switching um, the object? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, so, uh, and I think Paul will talk to that uh, later on, but uh, as soon as an object is discovered, the first thing that we want to do is to try to characterize its orbit. So we're trying to take as many measurements as we can of the object and figure out its orbit. This takes time. And so over time, our understanding of the object could change. We might adjust the orbit a little bit, we might find that the object is either smaller or larger than we originally estimated, or perhaps it's made out of different type of material. Perhaps we were able to send a reconnaissance spacecraft to it and take some pictures and characterize the object. So with that, we are going to move forward in time now and refine our understanding of the orbit and the characteristic of the object. So that's going to be round two. So Monica, please introduce round two to everyone now. I think you did fantastic on the chat. So if you can swap it on the chat, we will yes. be able to, yeah. And we're moving it to six years, correct? Yes. All right, so here we go. So if you can go to your app, please go ahead and select from the left-hand side, Neo PDC 19A. So we were working with PDC 19, now we have more information and it's been updated to PDC-19A. And with doing that, obviously there was an adjustment to the location of the impact point on the Earth with some additional telescopic measurements that we've done. And we moved two years forward in time with that. So your challenge now is to get the best performance metric with this newly adjusted impact location. And you only have six years to do that. You cannot go backward in time than six years. You only have six years to do that. So I think okay. it's time to jump into the breakout rooms now. Okay, does everybody, has everybody set their campaign? So we're keeping everything the same. We're changing um, just PDC 19A. Instead of eight years, you now have uh, six years. Okay, and if you can use your reactions, if you can give me a thumbs up that you're ready to go. And I'm 
was trying to rename everybody, um, but I'm not sure I've done it fast enough um, <laughs> to rename to your team. Um, oh, that's right. Team that's name, um, but I, I'm working on that. So if you see your name changing, or if you want to go ahead and change your name, um, I've I've almost got two teams done. Yeah, so, uh, so yeah, the name of your team is uh, when you go into the breakout room is up at the top, so you can change it. So we're going to start round two. You're going to have 10 minutes again uh, with these new parameters. So go ahead and uh, set the limits. And in three, if we can all hit um, set limits, and then I'll send you to your breakout room. So in three, two, one.
Yes. So we're currently, for everybody here in the main room, we are in breakout rooms. So if you'd like to join uh, a breakout room to see what everybody else is doing, you can do that. I think you've been assigned if you'd like to participate. Yeah, Monica, I think RK, uh, Dr. Mishra just joined. So maybe he can be, can join one of the teams. Yeah, so everybody who just joined has been assigned a room. Uh, they just haven't joined yet. So they can join, um, I, the rooms are open, so they can join. Oh, yeah, they have to click uh, join, yeah. okay. And they got like just over a minute. So I'll be sending the message in a little bit. The one minute um, warning. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <clears throat> This is really fun. I love it. Yeah, me too. It's, it's Everyone's really, engaged. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, I really want to do this more. This is fun. Uh, I think, yeah. uh, did you see uh, Dan McLister asking for help in Space Cadet? The Space Cadet? Yeah. Uh, Dan, oh, no, I didn't see that. Okay. Is now, who was in there? Where did Nahum go? Okay, let me send the message. Oh. Okay, I just sent the 60 second. Yeah, Nahum was with them. Let me let me go find out what they need. Well, Nahum is in the asteroid hunter. Oh, okay. So he's moving around also. Okay. So oh, I can't join anymore. Okay. Ah, oh, okay. Let, let me yes. go there and see what they, they're looking for. Well, yeah, you're right because you send a sign, so we yeah, join. so it kind of it it blocks yeah. you. You have have to just stay here. Then it's bad, so we can ask him what was the issue. Yeah. Okay. Once the signal sent out, people can. All right, they should be coming in. Let's see. Oh. oh, definitely. Okay, so. Okay. All right, everybody, welcome back. I saw some rooms, you know, were pretty lively, had a lively discussion, so that's great. And for those of you who are not able to participate right now, that's okay. Um, it's being recorded and it's the app is available. You can uh, play at any time. So thank you for that. All right, Nahum, did you wanna go over um, the discussion for this section? Okay, so uh, we moved forward by two years, obviously, and that uh, adjusted the, the impact location on the earth which made it a little bit more challenging. <clears throat> uh, from the couple of breakout rooms that I've been to, I think that uh, some had difficulty bringing up the app uh, on their individual machine. So um, uh, we did have a huge progress on some of those. Uh, I don't know what other can report from their own breakout rooms. Uh, so Nahum, we, yes. had, we had a question 
mm -hmm. uh, on the performance metric um, and the philosophy behind it. It's, okay. it's to minimize the number of launches that will move the green dot outside of the red circle. Is that correct? Yes, so uh, we want to move the green dot as further away from the Earth as possible, but uh, affordably, the most affordably as possible. So we don't want to, you know, we can easily throw 30 SLS on it and move it to the moon, right, or to the sun. <laughs> but we don't have the capability to do that. We don't have the budget or even physical launch vehicles that will be ready to launch. So the cost is part of real life, right? I mean, what do you have to pay to gain a certain objective? The objective is obviously to move it outside of the green, of the red circle, of the capture circle, uh, as far as you can from the earth, but not throw the whole bank at it, right? So uh, the more launch vehicles that you throw at the campaign, it's going to be costly. It's going to be driving down your performance metric. So the performance metric is the ratio between the missed distance, which is on the nominator and the cost that you had to spend for that in the denominator. Well, thank you for that explanation. Um, I was under the impression that as, as long as the green dot is outside of the red circle, you're good. So you want to minimize the number of launch vehicles, but I think I think you know uh, we're learning otherwise. <laughs> you you define the performance metric, so that's fine. <laughs> that's right. It's defined this way for the purpose of uh, a consistent uh, performance metric across the teams. Obviously, in real life, we, were, we were wondering if a score is like a golf game or a basketball game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's just a maximization game. So you want to maximize the performance metric or minimize it? Maximize. Maximize it. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. If you maximize the performance metric, it means that you are able to move the green toad outside of the red circle at the minimum cost. Oh, interesting. Okay. At the minimum cost. Now, I agree with you, Paul, that if you move it just tiny bit outside of the red circle or a huge distance outside of the red circle, same effect, right? Practically, right. you save the health. But in this case, to be able to measure, you know, the performance of each team, we take the ratio between these two. And I will take any suggestions to adjust it for future uh, workshops, right? Uh, we can definitely, we are in full control of the software. If you want to make it more realistic or give, give a penalty on uh, deflecting it too much outside, we can definitely factor it into the, into the equation there. So well, I saw Paul, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I looked to me like um, when we threw a second Falcon Heavy at it, our efficiency number went up, but so our budget doubled, our expense, our cost doubled from uh, one, $150 million to $300 million. Yeah, but what happened was it went from a grazing miss to a, a wide miss. Yes, yes, and, there was a difference there, right? Yeah. And, 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 and another factor there uh, is that if we, if we only b plan for one, one launch uh, um, and something happens, something bad happens with that launch, then we're screwed. Whereas right. if, we, if, right. if we've got two launches, then we get a grazing miss, even if we uh, have, have one of the launch vehicles uh, uh, not... not uh, 
not make it. Right. We yeah, also so had a discussion in our group about uh, the uncertainty and the position of the green dots. And, um, and I'm, as you will hear in my talk, um, the PDC uh, 19A happens after the reconnaissance mission and then the, the position of the green dot and the uncertainty on it is tiny. Uh, so it's only necessary to move it outside the red circle in that case. Uh, and, you know, and, and there's no chance of it hitting the earth. Um, uh, the uh, first case, PDC 19 without the A, um, did indeed have a huge uncertainty. So then in that case, you would, you would want to move the green dot as far as you could. So, so there's this issue of the uncertainties, which is not yet in the, um, in the app, which um, as Nahum will tell you, we're, we're, we're considering putting in, but that's, that's for later work. <laughs> and, and I think another point, a really good point, is I think Dan and Angie made a moment ago, is about launch vehicle reliability, right? So, uh, mm -hmm. you know, if we are talking about uh, deflecting, deflecting at a tiny distance on a single launch vehicle that had happened to fail on the pad or even the spacecraft didn't make it, we might want to add a margin there. To, to doing that. And so uh, the distance at which we can move it outside does matter if we take into account reliability considerations and orbital uncertainty considerations. All of this is something that will be taken into account. Nahum, there was a question. I think Alan was asking if you can go over transfer time. Yeah, so um, the transfer time is the time that it takes for the spacecraft to fly from the from the time it uh, is being deployed by the launch vehicle through space out to the asteroid, it's basically just the transferring of the spacecraft from the Earth to the asteroid, because we are talking about millions of kilometers of distances here. It does take time for it to fly in space. That's just the nature of uh, this business, right? Uh, flight in space when we uh, cover distances of millions of kilometers, it could take months mm -hmm. at least. Mm -hmm. um, my question was that we were able to change that parameter there. Um, it seems, I mean, my initial thought is that, you know, well, we, the spacecraft can only go so fast. How, what are we doing when we're changing that? Are we speeding it up? Are we using more fuel or, or what? I mean, so, it, um, I can answer that, I think. It, you're basically defining when the launch time is. So the first parameter set is D, the time of deflection. And then the L to D uh, is the cruise time, and that sets the launch time. So we could have done it the other way and just said, here's the launch at this time and deflect at this time. But it was, but instead we uh, used the uh, L to D as, as an interval. So basically you're setting the launch date when you set L to D. Right. One, one of the factors that goes into setting that launch date uh, is, 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 as you asked, uh, uh, fuel consumption, because there are certain launch dates where you've got a tremendous amount of fuel consumption and certain launch dates when you have very little fuel consumption. And, and, and there, are, there, there are, for some standard missions, there are, there are tables available online even that, that are called pork shop plots because of uh, the reason that the, uh, the contours look. But, but, 
but the uh, the um, yeah the the, the, the uh, transfer time and the sensitivity of the of the fuel consumption to tra transfer time is one of the reasons why, for example, we've only got a Mars mission every couple of years because that's how the transfer and launch times work. Yeah, the the, the case with the Mars missions is that we want to match the spacecraft with the orbit of Mars. Mm -hmm. In this case, we want to intercept, right? The only goal with this mission is simply to intercept an object at the highest relative velocity possible. Right, right. In, and in the right direction. Right. So, uh, so it's a yeah, different, it's, a different okay. it's, it's basically the, uh, geometry driven. So the geometry will dictate, you know, the transfer trajectory. Mm -hmm. And what you really in control is the two endpoints of this tra trajectory. So by changing the launch time, you essentially change your uh, initial position in orbit, and this will dictate the geometry of the transfer trajectory. So now I think, yeah, uh, so now I think we are uh, kind of moving in time and we have about 10 or 15 minutes until the end of the session. So Monica, I think maybe we have time for one more round. And yeah, do we, we, we want to go uh, and get um, metrics, performance metrics from each of yes, the Yes, 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 yes. Okay. Let's go over okay. the performance metrics. That's right. All right. Planetary Defenders, what was your performance metric? 18.746. 18.746. All right. Asteroid Hunters? Okay. Asteroid Billionaire? Well, we had a whopping 0 0.0005. Oh, wow. Don't laugh. <laughs> that's okay. It's still in the green, so that's good. Uh, space it was an ocean strike anyway, so it was fine. <laughs> space Cadets, were you able to get a, a metric, performance metric? We lost our team members and we didn't get there. Okay, no problem. Uh, rock blasters. Four five one. I'm sorry, can you repeat that again? 14.451. 14. Okay, very good. All right, so our planetary defenders are still in the lead. <laughs> All right, very good. And I think, uh, how much time do we have? So our next, our round three will only be five minutes. So now you have less time to work. And let me put the steps there. So if you can go ahead and hit F5 or refresh your screen again, we're gonna stick with PDC 19A. This time you're going to change the neo diameter and density. Again, we have more information. So we actually know now that it's, uh, it's a bigger object. It's 180 meter in diameter with a density of 2.3. So you can go ahead and make those changes. And then hopefully by now you know what team you're on. Go ahead and turn, off the, turn on the teaming mode button on. And you can uh, type in your team name. 
Okay, you're gonna set the camping limit again to two Atlas, five, two Delta Fours, two Falcon Heavies, and one NASA SLS. And you're going to change uh, the time the asteroid is spotted or observed to four years now. So we're shrinking the time. And it's not four years, it's four years. <laughs> Sorry about that. Okay, uh, you're gonna keep your vehicle campaign at four max. You're gonna set the time now to five minutes. And your budget is now going to double. So now you have a budget of $4 billion. Woohoo! More money to spend. More money to spend. So again, you wanna maximize uh, the money that you have with all the vehicles you have access to, but you have less time both from when it was spotted to deflected and also to work on the scenario. All right. So it, does anybody else need more time to set up their campaign? Nope. Okay, so uh, we're gonna set the limits in three. Three, two, one. Go ahead and set your limits. I will send you to your breakout rooms.
Hi, welcome back. I think uh, you're being kicked out of your breakout rooms now and we're really excited to hear how you did with five minutes and a, a much denser object with a larger diameter. Bigger target. So this would be a situation, Paul probably can explain it better, but this would be a situation in which perhaps we uh, were able to send a reconnaissance spacecraft uh, near the object and take some uh, measurements of the size and diameter, and perhaps the object came close enough to the Earth so we can put radar on it and get some additional measurements. So. Um, these are examples where we advance in time. So, okay, I think we don't have too much time here now. So let's uh, wrap up uh, that round. I think my experience had been perhaps a lesson learned here is that in the future, we might want to get a little bit of advanced training to some of the team members so they can actually operate the tool during the rounds. Because some of them had to do to ride the learning curve while trying to get the performance metric uh, maximized. And that was tough on some of them. So I think that perhaps like a, a, a training session that will happen prior to the actual workshop would be a good thing in the, for those that are signing up early enough. Okay. Um, so let's see, Monica, uh, let's just go and take the statistics. And I think we probably want to move on with the agenda. All right, planetary defenders, were you able to get a performance metric for this round? Yes, our performance metric was 1.228. What about um, asteroid hunters? Were you able to get one? No, asteroid billionaire? Well, we have good news and we have bad news, okay? So the good news is the planet's safe, all right? Yay. And the bad news is we're 0 0.8. <laughs> okay. But I think that good news is pretty good news. Yes, it's pretty good, good news. news. Good news. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Rock Blaster. Uh, 6.043. Oh, wow. Wow, Excellent. that's really good. So this yep. round was by won by Rocket Blasters. So good job, everybody. <laughs> Fantastic. And you are already a, you are a future scientist already. I'm very, very proud of you. Sign wow. them up. Yes. Well done. By all well, means. You just joined <laughs> the community of planetary defendants. Yes. Kudos to I you. I believe this concludes our exercise. Um, we'll be around if you have any questions, you can just type them in the chat. And we had a blast uh, working with you today. Thank you, everyone. Uh, you can now, you have observed uh, the reality of defending our planet in real time. Imagine that an object like this might be discovered at short warning and we will all be panicking what to do, what to do, what tools are available for us, how can we get ready for this? So I guess the lesson learned here is we need to get ready proactively in advance 
for this kind of workshops and for a real situation as well. So I think with that, we are going to move to the next topic in the, in the agenda, which is a short presentation by two amazing siblings from Canada, from Toronto, by the name of Artash and Arushi. Are you online, Artash and Arushi? Yes, hi. Hello, good to see you again. Yeah, and the podium is yours. You have 15 minutes to present to the community what you're doing locally and globally. Go ahead. Okay, thanks. So I'll just share my screen. Well, hey everyone, I'm Artash uh, and I'm a grade nine student. Good afternoon. And hello everyone, I'm Hershey and I'm in grade six. And we're both from Toronto. And today, we're going to be talking to you about our journey imaging asteroids. So in particular, we're imaging the asteroid Apophis. Now, as you guys know, this, um, this whole conference is about asteroids. And this specifically, asteroid Apophis, is an interesting asteroid. Because first of all, it is a near-Earth object. And this asteroid caused some concern in 2004 because the astronomers detected that this asteroid has a has a 2.7% chance of actually crashing into the Earth or its moon. But now we have um, removed that possibility because we have taken more images of this action. So how did we first learn about Apophis? Well, it all started in 2019 when I attended the Planetary Defense Conference in Maryland. And there I gave a short poster presentation about my project on using machine learning to predict the risk index of asteroids. And I also had the opportunity to listen to a lot of other speakers about various topics from asteroid mapping to tracking. And I even ended up winning an honorable mention for my project. And when I went home, I brought back a 3D mo printed model of the Apophis asteroid to my sister, Arushi. And that's how she learned about Apophis as well. Yeah, so now we knew about Apophis. So the first step was to actually image this asteroid. So to do so, I didn't just um, image it by just taking a picture of the sky or even looking through my um, um, 15 centimeter telescope because this telescope had a too small lens, which meant that I wouldn't be able to capture this asteroid because this asteroid was very faint at that time. So I had to look for other telescopes, in particular robotic telescopes. So I looked at many of them, trying to find the best um, criteria. And I finally came across the Fox telescope set. And this was a great telescope because it had a big mirror with a diameter of two meters. So that would definitely capture my asteroid. So now it was time to point my telescope to this asteroid. So for that, I needed to tell my telescope where the asteroid was in the sky. And to do so, we, I used sky coordinates. And these coordinates are similar to coordinates like latitude and longitude of the Earth, except it's on the sky. And these coordinates are called right ascension and declination. So right ascension is similar to longitude and um, declination is similar to latitude. So I could tell the telescope the coordinates of my object and then the telescope would um, point to this object. So after, um, after the next day, I was able to get my images from the telescope. So the next step was to actually, first I opened the images, but then I got a surprise. 
because I just saw a black image. Like I didn't see any like stars or white objects. I just saw a black image. So I was wondering what did I do wrong? But then I found out I had done nothing wrong. It was just that I had to scale my images. So what scaling does is it reduces the range of the brightest to the dimmest object. So I can see the most possible objects. So after scaling my soft my object, my image, using a software called Sao Image DS9, I was able to get this image that you can see on the road. And you can see there's multiple objects. So I wanted to verify that I took my image at the right spot. So what I did is I used a software called Worldwide Telescope, where I could give it the image and it would show me where this image was in the sky. And I was able to see if I got the correct coordinates. And this also helped me see if my image had been rotated or flipped while the telescope had been processing it. So now it was time to start finding the asteroid in the image, because how would I know which object was the asteroid? So to do so, I used, I decided to remove all the fixed objects. So I removed all the stars in the image because I knew the asteroid hypothesis was not a star. So to do so, I used the star catalog. And I used, to put the star catalog on the image, I used software called Astrometrica. And as you can see in the second figure, you see red circles about some objects. And those objects are the stars. So I knew Apophis could not be one of them. So now, as you can see in the previous image, there's still many objects which do not have red circles around them, which means they are not known stars. So, and these objects could be anything. They could be different asteroids, they're not a office. They could be new stars, they could be anything. So how would I know which one was the asteroid? So to do so, I used the modern planet database where they give the um, positions of known asteroids. And as Apophis was a known asteroid, I was able to find exactly where in the image Apophis was. And as you can see, I was able to find but I wanted to find out more about this asteroid. I wanted to find out its speed. So I do so, I took a second image of this asteroid, the next one. And I did the same process as I showed you. And I was able to get a this in the second image. So now the next thing I did is I found the exact coordinates of each of these um, objects in each image. And as you can see, they're written below. So now, I used some MAT algorithms and um, to find the difference between the right ascension and the deflation coordinates from the sky. And I found out that this asteroid moved 0.011268 arc seconds per second. Now, what I wanted to do is to replicate the same step Arushi did on these images, but in Python to open up new paths for different types of analysis. Now, the first step was to download the libraries I would be using, and this included NumPy for handling the images, as well as AstroPy for working with the FITS files, which the asteroids images was recorded. So after loading up the FITS files of the asteroid images, once again, like Arushi, I first started out with a completely black screen with no bright objects or stars on. So I created a function in Python that used the image's standard deviation and mean to scale the image to a, uh, a scale where I would be able to see all the bright and dim objects in the image as shown on the right. Next, I wanted 
to find all of the stars on my image. So what I did is I created a function that searched for all the bright objects inside the field of image. And these bright objects could be either soft stars or they could be the Apophis spectrum. But after finding these, I needed to understand where the image that was taken of the Apophis asteroid was in the sky so that I could overlay the, the USNO star database onto my image. So to find out where in the sky was the image taken, I carried the image for the right ascension and declination as well as the pixel scale of the image. Next, I matched the points of the bright objects inside my image to stars in the catalog database. So I was able to overlay and find all of the stars inside the image that was taken. Finally, I was able to look which of the bright objects in the images was left out. As shown on the right is the asteroid that has been identified and all the surrounding objects are stars from the catalog database. Thank you and we'll be happy to answer any questions. Thank you, uh, Artash and Arushi. Actually, I have a, a question of curiosity for you. What are you planning to do in the year 2029 when Apophis will actually exist by our planet very close? What are your plans for doing during this time? I think well, your work is amazing. Thanks. Yeah, so our plans is that um, we, so we'll be much older at that time. Of course, we'll be like 18 for me. So I plan to go um, to a place on the earth where the asteroid is the closest. So I can and I find some telescopes there where I can get lots of analysis of this asteroid because this asteroid going so close to the earth is a rare opportunity. Excellent. And you, uh, I assume, will be participating in the upcoming planetary defense conferences and showing your progress in your general interest in space and so on and so forth. So fantastic. Anybody has questions to these amazing siblings? Good job. I, I, I can't believe my eyes. And this is fantastic, uh, Nahum. And I think... Uh, I think we'll recruit them uh, to make other kids do the same thing. Absolutely. I think they are role models for the entire generation of K-12 students and their family is just amazing. So having been participating in two planetary defense conferences already by Artash, um, I assume, right? Yeah. So that will be better. Hoping to see both of you in Vienna in 2023 with new uh, amazing presentations. Yes. Uh, uh, proud, uh, proud of you. Proud of you both. Uh, keep up the good work. Thank you. Thanks. And I think Paul is from the same neighborhood as these uh, uh, families. So, uh, Paul, you should talk to these guys later and, you know. Uh, share with them how you got inspired into the amazing work that you do. I think they are on a very bright future. I will. I agree. Uh, good work, guys. Um, I, uh, uh, I'm also originally Canadian as well, so um, from near Toronto, London, Canada, in fact. Um, let's see. I did have a question. Did you um, submit the coordinates, your coordinates, um, 
uh, Arushi to uh, to the Minor Planet Center, or did you, or were these images used uh, for actual, you know, did the data come through to the Minor Planet Center, the coordinates that, uh, that you computed? Well, so right now, no, I have not shared um, my coordinates or any of the images with the Minor Planet Center. Yeah, I, um, I think you would have to work with the, um, the professionals, uh, uh, astronomers at the, at the telescope, but I'm sure that um, you've done all of the, the work and uh, the last step is to, to, to take those coordinates and, and you can submit them to the Minor Planet Center uh, and, and, get, and then you can get your residuals, which is you know, how close your actual measurements are to our predicted location. Um, which, by the way, is very, very accurate now for Apophis, as you probably know. Yeah. Yeah. Really. And, I'll, and I'll add to that that Paul is one of those professionals. Uh, yes. Uh, so we, but uh, um, He's uh, very busy. we don't work with the astronomer. This, so there's the, the astronomers and observers, and Artasha and Arushi are working with them. And uh, they take the measurements that compute those coordinates. And those go to the Minor Planet Center. And then I work on the other side and do the mathematics to calculate the trajectory. So, um, so we appreciate all of the submissions from astronomers around the world, like you two, um, and submitting your observations, uh, which uh, on the basis of which we compute the orbits. Thank you, Paul. I just wanted to tell you that because of uh, the pandemic, um, I've been going on Facebook, and it is amazing to see how many astro uh, amateur astronomers are there. And um, you know, I think I think these are things we could all use. And Arthur's and Arushi too, maybe. Are you Facebook users? Um, no, we do not use. Facebook. <laughs> You're not allowed to. That's right. Okay, good. But uh, just a thought. Okay, great. Thanks. Thank you for a great presentation, guys. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Madhu, for excitement here. We are all very, very excited. This is amazing. It's the third time that I see a presentation by you, and I think this is just amazing work. Very, very advanced to your ages. So keep on going, and you'll reach very, very far. So I think with that, we are ready to move to the next item on the agenda, uh, which I believe would be Bill Ayer. Is Bill online here? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you loud and clear, Bill. Hello, okay. welcome. Unfortunately, my internet is down this morning. Don't ask me why. And um, so anyway, I'll just be able to, uh, speak to speak to my charts and tell you what this is about, if that's all right. Sure, yeah. Um, do we have your charts or do we, we have anything? I'm sorry, I, I did send them out. I, anyway, there we are. Um, okay, well, I'm, my task uh, is going to talk, is to talk about the history, give you a history and overview of the Planetary Defense Conference series. And I'll focus a little bit on the last conference we had. So let me press on with that. Uh, let's see here, if I get my thing to work. Okay. So basically, um, what kind of got this all started was um, uh, back in 2003, I guess, a, uh, the Air Force Space and Missile Systems Center that the aerospace supports uh, received this challenge. Uh, there's an asteroid headed to Earth, and what are you going to do about it? So the Air Force asked um, members of the Aerospace Corporation uh, to help them uh, come up with a response to that. 
And, um, and I was one of the participants in that team. And uh, my conclusion from, from the exercise was we didn't really know very much about the topic and where the United States should be uh, and what the world was doing and so forth. So um, I thought that it would be a, you know, an easy way to find out and sort of keep up with the, uh, uh, the topic uh, by having a conference series. And so, um, that initiated, so we initiated planning uh, in 2003-ish for an international conference to basically be uh, to do this. And the conference would be sponsored by Aerospace and would also um, uh, an AIAA, this uh, you know group that you're involved with here. And um, so I called around to a number of uh, potential participants and I got good support from them. And uh, so we set up the 2004 Planetary Defense Conference, which was held in Anaheim, California. And um, and I'll give you some. Um, uh, the idea about what that well the conference was basically to uh, talk about protecting Earth from asteroids of course and uh, it was held from February the 23rd to 26th and the Hyatt Regency Hotel in Orange County and um, we had 100 about 140 attendees uh, and um, it, it this really wasn't the first conference that was on the topic but it was the first uh, as we found out it was the first that it really was ongoing and so I think that's really a significant thing and what the conference allowed is that for for people to come in and they would have a uh, focal point for coming together talk with people who are working in the area uh, present their latest work and uh, and also to raise some issues and provide some suggestions for what what might be done to improve the situation and I'll talk a little bit about that as well so those uh, recommendations but just to give you an idea of some of the uh, primary contributors and some who have stayed involved up to this date, uh, uh, people like uh, Clark Chapman, Steve Chesley, and of course Paul Chodas has been involved from the beginning. Uh, David Dearborn, Lindley Johnson has come a long way since his uh, beginning there. He was a lunchtime speaker at the time uh, for the first conference. And, um, and so uh, today he's uh, head of the, uh, let's see, the uh, NASA's office that deals with, with uh, planetary defense. But also we had Ed Liu as an astronaut, a former astronaut. Um, pe people like Larry Niven gave a talk. Larry, Larry if you know Larry, was a, is an author and, and uh, of science fiction novel, novels and some that have dealt with uh, asteroid impacts and such. Rusty Swipehart uh, was a former astronaut again and, and talked about uh, gravity tractors and things and how that might work. And then uh, we also had uh, Don Yeomans, also from JPL. And the, the final concluding remarks were given by Pete Warden. Uh, he was, at that time, he was a general in the U.S. Air Force and uh, gave a very interesting talk uh, about um, what, what the military perspective might be. And then, uh, so basically we had a couple of uh, some recommendations that I thought might be interesting uh, and to see where we came on that. Uh, I'll just read several of these. One was to survey and catalog 100-meter class near-Earth objects, uh, develop and fund ground-based technologies uh, such as radar, planetary radar, as well as missions to several asteroids to gather information that contributes to designing, to designing deflection missions. Interestingly enough, we're doing that now. Um, establish a formal protocol for disseminating information regarding near-Earth objects and the probability of impacting Earth exceeds certain values. And uh, shortly, sometime after the meeting, the uh, United Nations got involved, and basically I was involved in a committee that developed the, uh, the protocols for how, our, how recommendations, I should say, for how uh, space agencies worldwide should work together. 
Uh, one is called the Space, Space Mission Planning Advisory Group, and the inter other is called the International Asteroid Warning Network. That last, uh, last group uh, is responsible for disseminating warnings uh, when a threatening asteroid, and they have, in fact, set thresholds for when, when those warnings would go out. So that's a big, big deal. Um, do mission design studies, uh, let's see, how do we appraise the public on accurate and authoritative ways to, uh, of, of, uh, about the possible threats and so forth? And that Larry Niven actually talked about that and brought up, the, if we will, the giggle factor at that time, where the perspective uh, in the public was that uh, these kinds of things never happen. You know, we were taught as kids, it's, ah, billions of years or something between, or many billions of years between major impacts, we don't need to worry about that. And, um, and so one of the things that he, want, he suggested is we really need to do something to fix that point of view. And I think NASA and its web pages and work that Paul has done and others uh, has really led us a long way on those paths. Uh, let's see, applying lessons learned from major disasters, um, and bring evidence of previous near-Earth impact, near-Earth object impacts to the attention of the public. Uh, these are just additional recommendations. Um, Demonstrate to the public that something can be done about a neo hazard, and we're looking at that one as well, as you know. And um, and so, and find an organization or a government home for when the, within the U.S. government for for the near Earth object issue. And of course, NASA now has that, so that's really been a big addition, and it's now in, in policy uh, that uh, planetary defense is something that needs to be watched. And uh, begin a dialogue among nations and international institutions. And finally, to build, develop contingency plans and process for near-Earth object mitigation. So those are some of the things we recommended at the time. I might mention one thing, too. Uh, this came up at, as, uh, as a question, I think. And is, the question was, um, is there a way to inform the president that there has uh, been an object that's, or that's a threat? At the time, there wasn't. And uh, so I think since that time, there's one thing. There, there is now a formal path to get to the president of the United States and to world leaders if there's a real, a real threat discovered. And so uh, since uh, 2004, we've had conferences in uh, 2007 in Washington, D.C., 2009 in Granada, Spain, 2011 in Frascati, Italy. Uh, 13 was in Flagstaff, Arizona. And Flagstaff was the first time we ever did a, uh, a threat exercise. Uh, when we'll talk, and Paul's going to talk more about that for the most recent conference. I'll give you just a little summary, uh, maybe for the 2019. Uh, there was one in 2015, Bucharest, Romania, uh, 2017 in Tokyo, 2019 in Washington, D.C., and the 2021 conference was virtual, but it was uh, intended to be in, in the Vienna, Austria, at the U.N. facility there, and it was, uh, uh, it was hosted by the U.N., which was quite nice. I might mention for one of the things that we've been fortunate to have is a lot is sponsors for this. Uh, we bring in sponsors to really help uh, People believe that this is an issue that's important, and we've had the major sponsors from ESA and NASA and a number of space agencies. Uh, JAXA has been involved, uh, so it's been uh, something uh, that has uh, grown over the years. Uh, for the Vienna conference, we only had 12 conference sponsors. Normally, we have well over 20, and one reason is because we really didn't know exactly how the conference was going to evolve. But we did have a lot of attendees for that conference. We had over 700 people, uh, individuals attend. Uh, over the five days, and um, see, we had, um, and then we also had a registration of over 900, and we were limited in numbers too because we were concerned about uh, some being some of the principals getting in. 
Okay, so the Planetary Defense Conference in 2021, we had uh, uh, Five, well, five chairs, you will, or four co-chairs, uh, Brent Barbie from NASA Goddard, uh, Gerhard Trollhagen, he's uh, from Germany, and he's, he's retired now, he has a university there, Alex Carl from Belgium, and he's also been with the Space Generation Advisory Council, and Mahoum from the Aerospace Corporation, and I was uh, one of those chairs. Host was the United Nations Office of Outer Space Affairs, <clears throat> which is a big deal because they can really give us access to some very highly placed uh, individuals, and some of those spoke at the conference. The coordinator was uh, um, Romana Koffler, uh, United Nations Office of Outer Space Affairs. Primary sponsor was the European Space Agency, and they provided uh, uh, primary support, uh, administrative support uh, through, the, through their conference bureau. Uh, let's see. Okay, so the the, uh, the 2021 conference <clears throat> was designed uh, since it was going to be virtual. We designed it to take advantage of that, and so we uh, were through the, working with the UN. We were able to provide the free registration. Uh, we designed it to enable worldwide participation, and I'll describe how that worked. And uh, we had um, basically um, designed it so we had a what we called a green zone where we would have a broad, items that were of broad focus, like panel sessions and the threat exercise were, were, were uh, in that green zone. And, um, and even though some people would have to stay up late if they're in Australia or in Tokyo, uh, it still would be within the world, within the realm of reason for them to, uh, to attend those particular sessions. And then uh, we also had uh, technical panels that were uh, technical papers presented both early and late. Uh, so we had three hours of time before the green zone, three hours of time after the uh, green, green zone for papers. And let's see, um, on day one, I just give you a highlight how that worked. So on day one, we talked about uh, session one was on the HERA mission. On session two was Hayabusa, which I'm sure you know about. Um, and then we had things like uh, opening remarks from some of the uh, people who were attending and uh, we had our first exercise session, uh, and Paul will talk a little bit about the hypothetical threat that he did there as well. And then one of the things we like to do is we like to have people who are not necessarily familiar with the topic talk about um, what you should do with the, with the information that's presented in that, uh, that first session. And we followed that same model uh, for the fir first three days, and then uh, we had uh, the panels on different topics later. And uh, just to give you an idea on that one, uh, the 2019 conference, which was held in Washington, D.C., we had a uh, call that gave us a threat where uh, Earth was, uh, had about a, there was about a 1% probability that there was going to be an asteroid hitting, hitting Earth. And, um, and I forget the time frame on that one, how long that might take, maybe seven years or something. And, um, and then, of course, the, that threat uh, becomes, uh, in this particular case, increased as um, time went on. So the objective, again, was to, number one, present the threat in a very realistic way, and Paul has a great way of, de of designing threats that even astronomers would agree uh, match what our capabilities are, and that's very important because we, we, we found out from one session where uh, some of these people came in and said, well, I could have seen that thing, and uh, we would have been able to have the threat earlier. And so Paul was very careful about designing uh, threat scenarios where uh, it really matched our capabilities, and so it gave a really very realistic approach to how this might evolve, and I think it was a good learning experience, particularly being online like that. 
Some of the panels we had were uh, next steps. We talked about that, uh, disrupt, dis disruption deflection options, disaster management dis uh, discussion. This is where we had disaster managers, managers from FEMA and other entities uh, talking about what you might do with a disaster, uh, that's an emerging disaster, shall we say, uh, warning the public and so forth. So uh, that was a very interesting uh, discussion as well. We had uh, a panel on the heads and representatives of space agencies. Uh, we're talking about similar topics, uh, dealing with reliable, uh, getting reliable communications and dealing with misinformation was a topic, and lessons learned from uh, past disasters. So again, this, that topic was suggested by um, the first conference we had. And finally, we had a, a, a discussion of a proposal for an international year of planetary defense which the, um, the, the conference attendees basically agrees with the, is something that we would propose to go move forward with. So you'll be hearing more about that in the future. Um, we just give you a quick overview. We had um, participation by individuals in 50 nations, um, and um, that was uh, very pleasant all the way from uh, Australia, Japan, China, uh, India, all the way across Russia, uh, Europe, of course. Uh, and uh, the United States, even South America, which was very good, Argentina, Brazil. So uh, again, we, we met our goal of having a, a participation from a number of nations. And um, I think with that, uh, that's probably a good overview. And uh, I just mentioned that our next conference is going to be in 2023. It will, in fact, assuming we were able to, we'll have it in Vienna, Austria, at the United Nations facilities there, which are, which are quite nice. And again, that'll be really nice to have, uh, have it in a place where we can actually have access to um, some actual world leaders. And uh, there's been a lot of interest uh, among those leaders uh, to uh, discuss this topic. So that should be good. So I just want to invite you to come. And uh, there we are. And I'm happy to take questions. Thank you, Bill. Uh, as always, I'm really delighted to contribute to those conferences, which are amazing forums for discussion of all of the topics that we talked about. I have a quick question is that perhaps you can just mention um, some of the recommendations that came out of those discussions and how they were translated into actual actions for planetary defense? Um, yes, well, let's see. For this last conference, uh, you know, we, what we normally do is we write um, uh, summary reports uh, from on that, that give a lot of detail on what went on at our conferences, and there's one available for every conference we've had so far. So they provide a really good summary of uh, what the conclusions were uh, and recommendations and what the threat exercises look like and so forth. The, we haven't completed the summary for, report yet for the 2021 conference, and so um, I, don't have a, I don't have a good list quite yet of uh, what we want to come out with. but. Uh, but there's certainly list for some of the other ones, and they were generally things like where we support some of these uh, space missions that are ongoing, um, that um, we uh, recommended things that should be done, like I mentioned, uh, this idea of getting the UN involved was something that we were very pleased to see, and, um, and we've had good presentations from people at the UN at our last conference. So, um, But at the present time, we don't have a, a good summary of the 2021 conference available, but it should be up soon, I think. Thank you, Bill. Uh, any questions from anyone for Bill? Uh, this there, is great. There, there, are, there are a lot of questions uh, in the room. Uh, thank you so much, Bill. But, uh, yeah. you know, I recall uh, Professor Harvey Wickman coming into our class and saying what a great conference it was 
uh, in Anaheim, the first one, I think. Do you remember, Harvey? I do, uh, but you know that was a that that whole conference for me was a blur. That was I was the conference the chair of that thing, and uh, and so um, I spent a lot of time just making it work, make making sure it worked. But uh, I remember a lot of people like Rusty Schweikart, for example, and others, and we had some really nice discussions about around the gravity tractor. And uh, Pete Warden, for example, was asked a question about well, you know, what he was the general speaking and uh, ask him a question about, well, what do you think we should do in case something is detected that's a real threat? He says, well, I'm in the military, and we believe you hit it with a big hammer, which had to do with uh, using uh, nuclear explosives. And there was a presentation by Russians, for example, that said that you know, they had a, happened to have an explosive uh, available that could be used to turn the, uh, an asteroid to powder. So, so anyway, there were a number of interesting concepts that came on the table at that time, and, and, uh, but I don't remember Harvey exactly. And uh, also, um, you had a very large gathering in India. Am I right to think that in the IAC conference? Yes, we did. I I gave a talk in India about the planetary defense. I think there were, it was a it's a huge conference. I was there, the talk had over a thousand people in the audience. And uh, one noteworthy question I thought was kind of <laughs> kind of interesting is uh, you know I was talking. It gave an idea of what we, what you might have to do and. One, one gentleman came up and asked a question, came up to the mic and asked a question and says, well, can we just move Earth? <laughs> that makes you think a little bit, doesn't it? <laughs> so I you know, you know IAC is a great platform, Bill, and uh, I asked Nahum about it, and I don't think there is a session uh, this year on PD, is there? I, I'm not aware of one, no, but I, again, I'm not following that one too closely either right now. Okay, thank you for a great overview, Bill. I'm happy to do it anytime. Thank you, Bill. Do any other questions for Bill from anyone? Uh, just speak up. Okay, so uh, I think with that, thank you very much, Bill. <clears throat> As always, I think that you are really, Everything that I know about planetary defense, I learned from you, so I have to tell you that. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, with that, we are going to move to our next talk uh, with Andy Rifkin, and that's going to be an exciting talk because it's going to talk about how do we test some of the technologies that are intended to actually save our planet. So is Andy online to present? I I am, I am, and I'm ready to go whenever you're ready. So Yes, go ahead, Andy. Andy, go ahead. All right. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I see there's there's a whole group here ranging from space cadets to billionaires, and I obviously would want to meet the billionaires. That seems like the thing to do. But um, uh, so I'm going to talk about the DART mission. I'm going to talk a little bit about some other things. Um, so, so uh, let's just go. Uh, and these are, are some of the, the partners in the mission. So you can see that, uh, uh, you know, the a mission, any space mission takes a, a whole team uh, of, of folks to work together. So these are, these are the folks we're working with from, uh, from different uh, academic institutions and from industry, and from NASA, of course. Um, so this animation, and hopefully you can all see it, uh, shows our neighborhood. It's a, it's a little bit of a crowded neighborhood. Um, the circles show the orbits of the planets and then the dots show 
asteroids and comets. Uh, this isn't exactly the scale, of course. The, the points are much, much, much larger than uh, these objects are uh, relative to their distance from one another. This is kind of showing a 3D situation and just a 2D thing. But still, there's a lot of objects out there. And so it's no real surprise that things um, hit the Earth. Uh, anytime you go out and, and look up at the night sky and you see a shooting star, that's basically an impact. It's an impact of something that's only maybe the size of a sand grain, but, but it is something, you know, asteroidal or cometary hitting the Earth. Um, the U.S. and presumably other countries have satellites looking down at Earth uh, to see, you know, what, what uh, different countries are doing. A lot of these satellites are up there to see if any, any countries are trying to do nuclear tests. Um, and as a result, they pick up anything that looks like an explosion, which includes these impacts. Uh, so this map shows different impacts that have been seen by U.S. satellites since the mid-80s, I guess the late 80s, uh, with the size showing the um, impact energy uh, associated with these. You can see they hit anywhere um, and everywhere, and some of them can be pretty big. This one uh, here that's over Siberia, the largest one, uh, you may remember from 2013, there was a, a impact of an object that was about 20 uh, to 25 meters across uh, that came in and exploded over the city of Chelyabinsk, blew out windows throughout the city, and injured about a thousand people. So while uh, you can go out any night and see a sand grain hit, um, objects the size of that uh, object that hit Chelyabinsk we think are, are more um, infrequent, maybe hitting every few decades to centuries. Um, as you might imagine, uh, larger things hit the Earth more, less frequently than smaller things. Um, something four meters in size, uh, and I'm terrible at, at sizes of things, so a bit bigger than a couch, maybe a sectional couch, one of those big couches, uh, something that size will hit the earth every year on average. Um, those are not dangerous. They might make it down to earth in, in very small pieces that, that can be collected and given to scientists who are very happy to have them. Um, we think there's about 500 million of them out there. Um, and I see my how many and how often uh, rows are, are labeled. One should be labeled for the other. So sorry about that. Um, we know very, very few of these objects. They're not that dangerous, so that's okay. Um, the biggest ones, the ones the size that the dinosaurs, you know, that, that caused the, the extinction of the dinosaurs uh, from an impact in, in uh, Mexico about 65 million years ago, um, we think there's only a handful of those out in the, in the nearest object population, and we think we found them all. Um, it's the, the range in the middle that, that people are worried about. Congress asked astronomers to find all of the, well, I guess NASA, and then NASA asked astronomers, to find all of the objects one kilometer in size, um, which are capable of causing serious global issues. Um, and we think we found 90% or more of those objects. That was, that was what was passed, is find 90% or more. Um, as you get to smaller sizes, it doesn't mean we're off the hook. Even something that's about 150 meters in size here, it says 160 meters, uh, can really give a, a bad time to a, to a region. Um, 
And we've found relatively few of those. We think we know where less than half of those are, and there's maybe as many as 20,000. Uh, and those hit every tens of thousands of years. I know this is the, the LA and Las Vegas section. So uh, those of you, of course, who are familiar with Las Vegas know that if you play roulette, um, you know, maybe your number comes up, maybe your number doesn't come up, but there's no clock uh, that tells you when your number is going to come up. So we're, we're very interested in finding all of these objects down to the size that we think um, is going to be a problem. And I'm sure Paul's going to talk more about that. Uh, but I'm just going to have a slide. This is not the mission we're, we're uh, I'm, I'm mostly going to talk about, but this is another mission, another planetary defense mission that NASA is hoping to fly in the near future. Um, it looks like Congress might actually provide the support to be able to do it. This is called NEO Surveyor. It's um, the, the leader is Amy Meinzer, who is at the University of Arizona, working with folks at JPL. And basically its goal is to find two thirds of objects about that size, I said about 140, 150 meters within five years and a goal of finding 90% of them. Um, so that's, that's that piece of the, of the puzzle. Um, I, don't, I don't work with that piece so much. There's a lot of information out there. This, this mission, uh, NEO Surveyor, uh, there's a lot of information out there. It used to be called NEOCAM. So you can, you can go look it up and see what a great job they're gonna do. Um, and again, that's a whole piece of the overall puzzle of planetary defense. Um, there are lots of bits that, that uh, go from, uh, and now I'm, I'm kind of blocking my own slide with the, uh, with the PowerPoint instructions here. Um, uh, searching, detecting, and tracking. We need to find what's out there. That's what uh, this NEO surveyor uh, mission does. Characterize when you found something, how big is it? Is it made out of rock? Is it made out of metal? Uh, how many, what fraction of things out there are rock versus metal and what kinds of rock? And then um, mitigate is another piece that the scientists as opposed to policymakers are involved in. Uh, if you find something that's on its way, what are we going to do about it? And that is um, what, uh, what DART, the mission I'm going to talk about, is, is doing. Uh, and, and we're doing through with, uh, obviously, with, uh, with NASA's leadership and support. Um, and this support is part of a global, uh, a national policy to deal with planetary defense, to deal with asteroids. Um, again, that first goal there is more the, the NEO surveyor thing. Uh, what I'm going to talk about here is what do we do if we find something? How do we prepare for that? How do we uh, figure out how we want to handle objects that are incoming? So, um, Bill just talked about, Bill Ehlers just talked about the uh, Planetary Defense Conference uh, and the findings they have, um, and a finding that often would come out of that meeting, and, and I think that he, he mentioned briefly, was we should test deflection techniques. Um, this graphic here on the right shows the different things we think we could do if we found an object today that was on an impact trajectory. Uh, and what we would do would depend on how much warning time we had and how big the object is that, that's incoming. If we find something small, um, we're probably not going to send a mission. We're not going to do anything terribly fancy. It's just going to be, hey, stay away from the windows on this date in this city because there's going to be an airburst. It's going to break your windows if you're not careful. Just like, uh, you know, we tell people in the path of a tornado, although I'm from the Northeast, so I don't know about tornadoes. My impression is, maybe it's from the movies, 
you know, you open the windows on one side of your house um, and you kind of, so, so that the air pressure doesn't, doesn't blow them out. Um, it's going to be cheaper to, to replace everyone's windows than it is to send a mission to, to deal with stuff. Uh, Bill also mentioned uh, how certainly for a long time, a nuclear explosion and nuclear devices were the favored um, tactic and they are the, the most powerful tools we have. And there are going to be times when that is going to be the right tool for the job, either because the object is so big uh, or because we just don't have enough time and we need to give something a big push. Uh, but people are uncomfortable with those being our only two choices of, you know, hide in the basement or use a nuke. So other options have been brought up. Uh, I know uh, I've, I've heard people mention the gravity tractor before. Um, that is suited for having a, a long warning time and for relatively smaller objects, but it's something we think we can do. Uh, the kinetic impactor is pretty simple in concept. Basically, you take your spacecraft, you ram it into an asteroid, um, and then you use the momentum you bring to um, change the orbit of the asteroid. And um, this is, again, the kind of mission that we're talking about here. That's, that's what DART is, is a kinetic impactor. Um, and the dashed line here shows the size of the object that we're going to visit. As a, uh, I'm going to talk more about that object uh, quite a bit coming up. So this is uh, one slide overview of what we're going to do with DART. Um, the, uh, the, um, we, we launch in uh, November, this coming November, uh, from Vandenberg, which is uh, no longer an Air Force base, but it's a Space Force base. Um, we uh, will impact our target, which is the asteroid Dimorphos, in uh, a little under a year after our launch in late September, or early October, 2022. We will know the exact impact date when we have launched. It depends on the exact launch date. Dimorphos is actually part of a double asteroid system. That's the DA in, in DART. Uh, and so it's the moon of a larger asteroid. The larger asteroid is called Didymos. And then we will be observing uh, our impact from the ground. That's the Earth-based uh, observations there in the lower left. And also we're gonna jettison, uh, deploy, I guess, a CubeSat that the Italian Space Agency is building. We're gonna deploy that a few days early. That is not on an impact trajectory and that will take uh, pictures as we hit Dimorphos. And then afterwards it'll turn around and take pictures of the side uh, that we don't get to see. So how big are these objects at some kind of scale? You know, I know a lot of folks, including me, think uh, about things easier as pictures or as, as analogs than as numbers necessarily. Um, so the, the target object, Dimorphos, is about the size of the Great Pyramid uh, in Egypt. Uh, the DART spacecraft is, um, it doesn't show it on here, I guess it shows a bus. Uh, we've also been kind of talking about it as kind of the size of a, um, a vending machine. Uh, the main the main part of it is about the size of a vending machine. Or if you take an upright piano, um, it's not too different from an upright piano. Uh, the uh, that's without the um, the solar panels. The solar panels go way out, so the solar panels are kind of the the bus the bus length. Um, so basically, we're going to throw a vending machine at one of the Great Pyramids at you know four miles a second, um, which is fast, but it's not enough to, would not be enough to destroy the Great Pyramid. So you can, you can imagine, imagine it like that. Uh, 
we have four things that we need to do for the mission to be considered a success by NASA. Um, we need to impact Demorphos. Uh, this this uh, during this fall 2022 close approach. We need to change the period of the binary asteroid. Uh, so we need to change the period of the moon going around the main body by at least 73 seconds. Currently, it's about 12 hours. Um, we think we're going to change it by more like 10 minutes. We need to measure the change we made to a precision of 7.3 seconds or better. And then we need to measure something called beta. Beta, I'm going to talk about more in a couple of slides. Beta is basically how uh, much did we change the momentum of Dimorphos compared to the amount of momentum we brought in with DART. So it looks like this is an animation. So I guess I'm supposed to talk to this. This is like a longer animation than I always think it is. So here is Demorphos moving around uh, in its orbit. Uh, the Earth is turning down there. Uh, Didymos again is, is our uh, central body in the system and, the, and Demorphos is the moon. Uh, we're gonna try to hit, or we're planning to hit Demorphos head on. Here comes DART. Uh, it, it deploys Leech Cube. Uh, Dart comes in and hits Demorphos again, and Leech Cube takes some pictures and keeps on going. Um, and we will change the orbit to be a little bit smaller. We're going to change the period from 11.9 hours to something like 11.7 something hours. Uh, so we will not detach Demorphos from Didymos and send it off by itself into space. We're going to make the orbit a little bit smaller. We couldn't have done it even if we hit it in the other direction, but. Uh, again, we've, we've thought about all the things that, uh, that, we, that people have been asking us. The way we're going to measure what we do, because we just have the one spacecraft and then Leech Cube is kind of off on its way, is again from the Earth. And we do that by measuring the light uh, that is reflected from the Dynamo system. We're only going to see these two bodies as one point of light because they're so small and so close together. So. Um, down here, uh, where that vertical bar is, is a, is a depiction of the brightness and how the brightness of the system changes as the moon goes around. It casts a shadow, the brightness goes down, um, then it's kind of at some even, even point. Uh, these aren't quite synced, unfortunately. But when it's behind the moon, when it's behind the main body, the brightness goes down a little bit. Then it comes in front, casts a shadow, the brightness goes down a little bit again. We can measure those brightness changes. We have been measuring those brightness changes so far, and we can say, okay, twice in orbit, you get one of these dips, and you can measure how often those occur. After the impact, we'll again measure how frequently they happen, and the change in that, that frequency is gonna tell us how we've changed the orbit, and that's gonna tell us the, basically the delta V we put into Demorphos. Um, this is just a list of the telescopes we've been using. Uh, we did measurements uh, earlier in 2021 um, from all over the world. We have uh, a team that's, that's uh, international that's, that's involved in this. So um, in 2022, we, we again will be getting measurements from all over the world, especially in the Southern Hemisphere, because that's where uh, it's going to be best observed when we hit. And then the data is passed off to the impact modelers uh, who do their thing. Um, and they study how a crater is made and how the ejecta, the debris that's coming off there, uh, 
what uh, what amount of debris we expect, what kind of crater we expect. Um, and then we will take the measurements we make and use that to back out uh, the properties of the surface. Um, so I mentioned beta as, as kind of how the um, momentum we bring in with the spacecraft will tra be translated into a momentum change in the asteroid. And, you know, from physics class, you'd say, okay, momentum is conserved. This is a big deal. You know the momentum you're coming in with. So that has to be the momentum that gets added to the asteroid and you're done. Um, that's called the beta equals one case. And that's the case where if you do the math, we think we'll change the orbit period by 10 minutes. Uh, but again, uh, momentum is conserved in a closed system. And the system as a whole includes the debris that we're gonna make when we hit the asteroid that's gonna escape. And that debris or ejecta is gonna carry momentum with it. It's gonna carry it in a direction opposite the direction that the spacecraft came in. So it's gonna give an extra push. Um, we don't know how much of an extra push it's gonna get. Uh, depending on the nature of the surface, if it's kind of more like a beach or more like a gravel pit, it's not gonna be a huge effect, maybe 20%, maybe 30%. Um, if it's solid rock, or if we hit an area that's solid rock compared to the size and scale of the spacecraft and the, the crater we'd make, uh, then there'll be a lot more fast ejecta. And it could be instead of a 10 or 20% effect, it could be a factor of two or a factor of four effect. Um, so we want to know that because um, it will obviously affect how, how hard you push an asteroid uh, knowing how hard we push this asteroid compared to uh, the momentum we bring in is obviously going to be of use for uh, understanding how best to deflect something. Um, and then again, we'll be able to, to back out uh, from the ejecta we make from the uh, which, which Leech Cube will observe uh, and maybe we'll observe from the Earth. From the delta V we put in, the way we change the orbit, we'll be able to kind of back out the nature of the surface plus the pictures we'll be taking on the way in. Um, uh, a note about uh, the, the technologies. Uh, DART is not just a, a tech demo in the sense of seeing if we can hit the asteroid. Um, we've, been, we've been talking about it as uh, you know, applied planetary science or planetary engineering, since we're actually gonna move a, move a body for, for the first time. Um, it's also carrying some new technologies that are maybe more, more as, as you might more traditionally think of them, um, we are using autonom autonom autonomous navigation. I'll, I'll uh, say that, uh, talk about more about that uh, more in, in a slide or two. Uh, we're, as you might imagine, coming in at, at six kilometers a second or four miles a second, we're not gonna sit there with a joystick and steer in. We're using uh, an ion propulsion engine, so solar electric propulsion. Other missions have flown those engines before. We're using a, a newer version uh, that's been built by uh, the Glenn, uh, uh, Glenn GRC, I forget what the RC stands for, the Glenn Research Center, I guess, uh, in Ohio, uh, which is a NASA center. Um, the Leech Cube CubeSat is gonna be one of the first uh, deep space CubeSats. Marco uh, was, was uh, the first, this will be the first going to an asteroid, and I think the first uh, deep space one by a European country. Um, we're carrying rollout solar arrays, so uh, when we're in space, these will unroll, as, as I'll show in a, in a movie in a little bit. So we're carrying a lot of neat technologies uh, in addition to our, the, the entire 
mission point kind of being a technology. Um, and since this is an aeronautics and astronautics uh, group, I'll, I'll show just kind of what the spacecraft looks like. Again, um, it's kind of the size of, an, of a, a vending machine with, uh, with uh, bits and bobs and, and uh, instruments and uh, propulsion and, and antennas hanging off of it. Um, Leech a cube, again, about the size of a cereal box, uh, has um, some of its own goals. Uh, these goals are um, independent of the DART mission goals. Um, they can reach their goals without us reaching ours, uh, at least some of them, and uh, we can reach ours without them reaching theirs. So we're, we're kind of working together here. Um, Leech a cube is uh, designed to get images of the the ejecta plume, the debris that DART makes uh, over a range of time to let us see how that evolves. And again, let us use that in some of these impact models. Uh, ideally, it will take images of the crater that DART makes. Uh, we're not sure that, that the debris will clear in time for Leech Cube to do that. Uh, so that's maybe a stretch goal. Um, it's uh, we need it to, or we want it to take images of, again, the side of Dimorphos that, that DART will not see because we're on a one-way trip. Um, and then uh, using its second camera, one is a, a black and white camera or a monochrome camera, the other is a, a color camera. Uh, we, uh, the goal is to take, again, images of the ejecta plume, but in color this time to help us understand the particle sizes in the plume. Uh, and for those of you who are Star Wars fans, and you know uh, who, who isn't at some level, uh, the two cameras are called Luke and Leia. So they they decided to to go with the Star Wars theme. Um, for for uh, I guess it's a big a, a famous big movie in uh, Italy too. So, so good for them. Um, we have one instrument on Dart. It's a camera called Draco. Uh, let me back up. Uh, Draco is. Um, very much like the camera that is being carried on New Horizons uh, and went to Pluto and Arakoff and is still out there. So it's the long range camera uh, for New Horizons, but updated with a new sensor and, um, and uh, a new mission, you know, instead of taking pictures of, of a very distant planet or almost planet, depending on how you look at it from, from far away, um, it is going to be used to take the images that will be fed to the um, navigation algorithm to steer us in. Uh, so right now we know some things about Didymos, uh, the system and the larger body. Uh, again, we've, we've learned about it from light curves. Here's uh, an image of it moving, or an animation of it moving across the sky in early January. Uh, from those light curves, we learned that it had the moon Dimorphos. We learned about its uh, rotation period its, uh, and its shape. Uh, in 2003, it was close enough to Earth that Arecibo and Goldstone both took radar uh, data and were able to get a, a good shape model of the main body. We know how big the main body is. And then in combination with the light curves, we know uh, how much, we know the, the uh, size ratio between Didymos and Dimorphos. Um, and then we have uh, compositional data from uh, visible and near infrared spectroscopy uh, that tell us, and I, I'm a spectroscopist, I know not everyone is. Uh, so looking at this plot here, it tells us that uh, Didymos 
is very similar to a very common meteorite type. Um, given the way that we think asteroid moons are formed, we think that also means that the Morphos is similar to that common, uh, common meteorite type, uh, the L or LL chondrites. Um, but that also has been used to help the impact modelers to know how, what kind of material, you know, they should they should expect that we're impacting, um, and uh, helped us under also be able to estimate things like the the reflectivity of the surface better. So Dimorphos per se, we don't know a whole lot. We have um, a sense of its size. And again, we have good, we think reasonable estimates for the composition, uh, but we don't know its shape. It, it only, uh, we only had two or three pixels worth of uh, radar. In the radar images, it only showed up as two or three pixels. Uh, so we didn't get a, a, a shape at all. We only have a, an estimate of the size. Uh, we have the, the it, and then what we know from the light curves. So uh, the people who are modeling the uh, the uh, our, our final you know incoming uh, moments uh, have to plan for a wide range of possibilities. Um, anything from uh, something that's more spherical uh, to things that are more elongated. We have we have seen uh, basically all of these uh, shapes out in the wild. Uh, I guess except this middle one, the sphere. Um, but um, we have reasons to, to, to prefer one kind of shape over another kind of shape, but we have to be prepared for all of them. Uh, and we are not going to find out what Dimorphos looks like until very late in the game, uh, sufficiently late that there's really nothing uh, we, can, we can do to adapt to it. Um, the, the camera, which again was designed to look at Pluto out at, at 40 times the Earth's distance from the sun in very low light, um, doesn't detect the Dynamo system at all until a month out. Um, and we begin kind of the, the pre-terminal phase less than a day out. That's when we uh, you know, hand the wheel to the algorithm and kind of give it a, give it a pat on the back and, and uh, encourage it and then stand back and, and it's, it's gonna do its thing. Even an hour out, uh, Didymos is only six and a half pixels across and uh, Dimorphos is less than two pixels across. Um, it becomes observable um, as it moves out from behind uh, Didymos uh, from the point of view of, of Earth and from the point of view of Didymos uh, and from the point of view of DART, uh, you know, Dimorphos still does these, this, it, its motion still takes it in behind Didymos and in front of Didymos. So it's, it's gonna come out from behind and uh, we're, we're planning to hit it head on. Four minutes out uh, is when um, the, uh, the algorithm decides or when the algorithm is set to stop steering. So the last four minutes is a, is a coast. Um, oh, I guess the, the four minutes is the last, the last directions, the last two minutes is a, is a coast. Um, and even here, Dimorphos is only, you know, 20 pixels across to 40 pixels across. Um, we meet our requirements, which is uh, getting um, better than meter scale imagery 20 seconds before impact. 
Um, and here's this shows Itakawa at about uh, the same um, the same resolution. Uh, Itakawa is larger than than uh, Demorphos is, so Demorphos will still fit within one frame. Um, and then you know we're going to have Dart just is going to keep taking images as fast as it can and sending them back to Earth as fast as it can. We hope to have you know two, three, four uh images returned during those last 20 seconds um it's gonna it's gonna go until it can't go anymore it, uh, those of you who are old enough to remember the ranger missions uh you know might might find this familiar so where we are now um we are building uh the uh whoops and i guess it's it's going and doing its, its uh, animation by itself. So we are building uh, the spacecraft. It is sitting in the uh, clean room right now. Um, and I, I got to see it on Tuesday. It was great. Uh, and again, here are people for scale. I can back up if this is going too fast because it's going by itself here. Um, and uh, we are you know, going to be ready to go here pretty soon. Uh, I think in, um, in uh, so let me, let me back up here. In, uh, <coughs> September, I think it gets shipped off uh, to uh, the West Coast uh, on trucks. And so that'll be fun. Uh, there's gonna be a truck and then I think there's gonna be a chase, chase vehicle or something. Um, and then uh, the preparations are made for the launch. So um, as I noted near the start, you know, this is a, a very much a team effort. This is the investigation team uh, and a few engineers who uh, came to sit in on, on our investigation team meeting. This is from last year. This is maybe about half of the team and, and people are from all over the world. I think we have investigation team members from every continent except Antarctica. Um, and uh, just like um, planetary defense is an international issue, uh, international cooperation is important to us. Uh, not only are we carrying the uh, CubeSat made by the Italian Space Agency, but we have a sibling mission that will follow us called HERA. The European Space Agency is building that uh, and it will launch in 2024. It will visit the Didymos system. It'll get there a few years after we've, we've done our thing, uh, but it will kind of do the, the assessment of, uh, you know, how, how big of a crater did DART make, um, make better measurements of the mass of Dimorphos. Um, it will have uh, landed packages to put down on, um, I don't know if it's going to do both on Didymos and Dimorphos, but uh, they're, they're going to come and, and stick around and, and do a really thorough uh, characterization of the, of the system, uh, again, after seeing what was done. So I think this next thing is a, uh, is a trailer. I don't know if you can hear the music or not, um, but if not, that's okay. So this basically will walk through in a minute and a half what the mission is going to do. Uh, so here it's launched. Uh, the solar panels are deployed. Again, these are rollout solar, solar panels, so they do that one at a time. We knock the covers off of the, uh, the Draco camera here. The previous one was the ion engine. There's Didymos in its orbit. Uh, this is not the scale. Um, we uh, test the DART, uh, the ion engine uh, as, as part of our test. A few days ahead of time, like I said, we deploy Leech Cube, and then Leech Cube has its own uh, solar panels that have to deploy. There they go. 
here's uh, Draco, and this is the smart nav algorithm finding uh, finding the morphos and steering us in. And then you know that's that's that. So um, we're uh, very much looking forward to uh, to uh, you know launching in in November, and then uh, there's the website. Um, and uh, you know, working and, and seeing how this does. So that's about what I had prepared. I'll leave that up uh, if people want to look at that. And um, I'm happy to take any questions that might be out there. Thank you, Andy. This is an amazing talk about uh, this exciting mission. I think being on the team for that mission, up a JP, uh, what is it called a. Uh, um, uh, applied Science Laboratory, right? API. Yeah, uh, applied Physics, applied, applied applied physics, physics Laboratory. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, just an amazing thing, you know, to be on the very first team that is going to attempt to actually deflect an asteroid. It's just stunning to think about it. I have a quick question, you know, in terms of the outcome of the mission, uh, what kind of takeaways you can deduce from the outcome from the mission, assuming it's uh, successful? towards applying to other objects that are out there that are unknown uh, in terms of characteristics and shapes and orbits and things like that. What, what could you take away to apply to uh, planetary defense in general? Yeah, so this is, um, uh, I also see there is a question in, in chat, so I'll, I'll make sure to get to that if, if uh, you know. Um, I think the, um, First of all, right? We right now we have no data, <laughs> so getting one data point is is uh, you know the, the best start. Um, the uh, the composition uh, of these objects being very similar to the the these very common meteorites, um, I think suggests that uh, we will be able to pretty directly apply um, these results. To other very common, you know, the, the S-type asteroids, um, we will, um, you know, I had an answer to the question, and then I distracted uh, the, the answer I wanted to give, and I distracted myself. Um, we will be able to do things like um, study how quickly the debris clears. So, in the planetary defense conference exercises, we're often uh, talk about sending in, you know, not just one kinetic impactor, but three or four in a row to kind of do the job. Um, but if the debris sticks around for a while, uh, there might be a, a minimum amount of time you need to wait, uh, lest you uh, disable your spacecraft on the way in with debris from the previous one. Uh, so that's that's something that we'll we'll be able to study. Um, from a, a Science point, well, I guess both a science and planetary defense point of view, you know, we have never um, studied a binary asteroid system on purpose. Uh, you know, we've, uh, uh, Galileo visited one, but it discovered it, uh, and it was kind of post, post facto uh, a bit after the flyby that they realized that, that they had visited a binary system. Um, so something like 10 to 15% of asteroids or near-Earth asteroids are, are thought to be binary. Um, so understanding how those objects, um, how those systems differ from something like, 
Itakawa um, is important. We also think that the way these systems evolve, that uh, at least in some cases, if we wait long enough, Dimorphos might evolve out and just become its own asteroid. So uh, to that extent, um, understanding how asteroid moons are and aren't the same uh, as kind of uh, asteroids that formed singly um, is also going to be of, of a lot of use. Uh, if, if this turns out to be very different from what we expect, and we expect a decent fraction of, of NEOs might be like this, then, then that would be important to know. Thank you. Very interesting indeed. So there is a question here from Randy. The light curve assumes that the orbit of the small body uh, is in the solar plane, so that it has two important properties. The small body casts a shadow on the large body, and the small body is obscured from Earth view or in the shadow for part of the orbit. Do we know this to be true? And will it be true after the impact as well? Great question. Um, I believe uh, number one and number two always go together. Um, I think that is, I mean, except in maybe very, very special um, temporary parts of an orbit. They might not necessarily, and I have to think about that, but in general, the two go together. Um, we do know that this is true for this system. This is uh, a major reason why we picked this as the, the target. Um, there are, like I said, there's something like 10 to 15% of, um, actually, I'll even back up. Part of the reason that we're going to a, a binary asteroid in the first place, and I usually include this slide, I just I apparently forgot this time, um, is that to do this test on uh, for Itakawa, say, um, Itakawa is going around the sun at 30 kilometers a second. Uh, uh, we think that DART would change the orbit speed of Itakawa by less than a millimeter per second. Measuring that difference from 30 kilometers a second to 30 kilometers plus a fraction of a millimeter is really hard if you don't have a second spacecraft. And it's expensive to send a second spacecraft. So the reason we chose, the reason that the, the, the brilliant idea that Andy Cheng had, uh, my colleague at APL, was that Dimorphos or a, a, an asteroid satellite goes around at more like 20 to 30 centimeters a second. So if you change the orbit by a millimeter or a part of a millimeter per second, that you can measure from the ground, as long as, like you said, you can have this light curve where you have the bodies uh, eclipsing one another. Um, 10 to 15% of NEOs are binaries, but then when you start to cut down and go, how many of them are eclipsing like this? Um, how many of them have a moon that's small enough that you could actually move it a decent amount with, with a spacecraft uh, that's not too massive. How many of them are going to be coming by Earth in any time soon? Um, and, uh, and if you want to include things like, you know, we don't have radar as, uh, we, we're not required to measure this with radar, but we knew it would be handy if it passed close enough to Earth that uh, Goldstone and Arecibo, now unfortunately only Goldstone, will be able to measure it. And that collapsed it all the way down to this is this is it. 
you know, it's Didymos and it's Didymos with an impact in 2022 um, is, uh, is, is our choice. So yes, we know that Didymos has that property. Um, and yes, uh, unless the experiment goes very differently from what we expect, um, it should still be the case afterward. Uh, you know, we're right. We're, we're shooting the pyramids with a vending machine. We're not going to, we're not going to change its orbit, especially in inclination, all that, all that much. Hey, Andy, Paul Chodas here. Hey. Hey, great talk. Uh, I enjoyed you. it. Um, and maybe a kind of technical question, but when you hit uh, dimorphos, um, you're going to have some material that is ejected, but it comes back to dimorphos. So that doesn't really, you know, contribute to the beta. So I guess uh, the question is like, what is the escape velocity of dimorphos? First of all, you know, is that must be really small. Yeah, I don't know offhand, and I, I might be anticipating your second your second question, uh, which is some some amount of material will be launched and come back to dimorphos. Some amount will be launched and cannot escape the Didymos system. And so some of that will accrete back. Um, we have a whole working group that's, you know, working on the dynamics. Um, and so the, um, we will have an estimate of how that would change, uh, how, how much our beta measurement would change compared to if Dimorphos were free flying. Um, the, and then in general, it is true, the material that is launched and comes back to Dynamos, uh, to Dimorphos will not uh, contribute to beta. That, that would be true kind of regardless. I think the, uh, the escape velocity is, you know, centimeters per second, I think. Yeah, that sounds, sounds about right to me. Uh, actually, my second question was actually uh, because, you know, we're, we're worried about the orbit of, of uh, Dynamos. I mean, you could actually, because you're hitting dimorphos, you're actually going to be also deflecting Didymos a little bit. It must be really small as in fractions of a millimeter per second. But um, I'm just wondering if anyone's looked at whether that's going to be observable. I mean, because then we have to factor it into our orbit, you know, for uh, Didymos, frankly. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, the, uh, we have, so it's not, let me let me figure out how to say this correctly, right? So it's it's spacecraft world, not astronomy world. So spacecraft world is what's required, right? So we're required to measure the beta from in from via or we're we're, we're doing it via the the binary orbit. Yeah. But there are people who are looking to see if they can measure the heliocentric beta, um, and are trying to get as good astrometry as possible ahead of time. Um, and I think there are occultations that they're going to try to do an occultation, uh, for those of you that are not experts an occultation is now when the whole system moves in front of a star and you measure, uh, that starlight from, from earth and you see that star wink out and that tells you very precisely, but because of the size of the system, you know, when Jupiter occults a star, you see it from, you know, the entire earth, I expect, um, when, uh, an object that's 100 kilometers across occults a star, you see it in a path that's 100 kilometers wide. When something that's 750 meters across and something a kilometer away that's 150 meters across occults a star, um, you see it from a really, really tiny area and you need to know um, really well, not only where you are, but where the stars are. Um, 
and and et cetera. So we're gonna people are gonna try to make those measurements, um, but it's not clear to me. You know, those those are bonus. That would be great if they could do it. And if not for your for the for your specific uh, concern, um, um, I think uh, Hera will. You know, should presumably pin yeah. that down, although it would be a couple years later. Yeah, cutting edge stuff. It's uh, fun, fun to think about. It is. Yeah, and these and are I... factors that will definitely come into the mission design area here. So it would be good to know those parameters. We have a couple of more questions here from Phil Groves and then from uh, Arushi. So Phil asks, uh, how scalable will that results be for actual planetary defense applications? I'm sorry, I, I, I missed the, the key word there. How, how what? Scalable. How scalable will that result? Yeah, be? so um, I think in terms of, um, I guess my, my answer is also partially going to answer, there'd be an additional answer to, to, to your question uh, before. Um, Dart, uh, Demorphos is about 160 meters in size. Um, the way that the numbers work, um, objects that are below, I think it's 140 meters, and Paul can, can correct me if I'm wrong, I think objects below 140 meters are not considered potentially hazardous objects because they're too small. So, I mean, that's according to the definition. Yes. So the most numerous potentially hazardous asteroids are going to be about the size of Dimorphos. Um, and certainly, uh, whether or not we should be worried about 50 meter objects or 80 meter objects, certainly there are many more objects the size of Dimorphos um, than kilometer sized or, or anything else. Um, in terms of scalability uh, in other ways, um, you know, I started by saying right now we have zero data points and this will at least be one. The, if we had to do this now, we would be using, we would be extrapolating uh, using data that's measured, you know, in the laboratory in 1G, or sometimes if you drop, you know, if you can do the experiment while you're dropping something, but instead of 140, 160 meter object, you're doing it on a, a one meter block with a tiny pellet that you've, you've fired and you're using, you're, you're measuring that with the impact codes and then saying, okay, now let's pretend instead of a pellet and a rock that I can hold in my hand, we're doing it on a giant object with a spacecraft. So um, if nothing else, it will help us um, benchmark our codes uh, and give us a data point that, that's at least much closer to the reality we'd be trying to deal with than, than what we have right now. Thank you. And Arushi, uh, would you like to speak up your question? Sure, yeah. So first of all, I would like to say that that was a very great presentation and I learned a lot, lot of new things about the DART mission. And my okay. question is that recently, I've been using a software called Tycho Tracker to detect and track very faint asteroids. And this works by stacking multiple images together. So I was wondering if it would be possible to detect the effects of the impact of the kinetic impactor myself. Um, maybe. So right now, um, we have been um, 
So uh, we, of, of course, you know, uh, we have people using large, large telescopes to do, you know, to, to take the data we need to, to put into the measurements to get the, the answers. Uh, but uh, Didymos will be pretty bright at the time, you know, in the fall of 2022. It's going to be about as bright as um, Pluto, actually. So um, we we don't know, and we're certainly not promising. I know you you probably are much too young to remember Comet Kohoutek, but um, but uh, we we think it's possible that some of the debris that we kick up might end up being visible um, afterward. Out, you know, to, to, to telescopes. We don't know. Um, and certainly, um, even if you don't, um, even if you are not taking data to be used in the papers we write and in the, in the calculations we do, it seems certainly possible that, depending on the, the, the capabilities of your, of your telescope, uh, that you could measure, you know, measure Didymos at that time and see the light the light going up and down and, and uh, be able to do that. Um, there are uh, resources out there for people who want to learn how to take uh, photometry, as they call it. Uh, you might want to practice on some bright uh, asteroid now, uh, but uh, in, in principle, uh, you might be able to do it, even if it's not quite at the level of the, the giant telescopes in, in Hawaii. OK, thanks. Thank you. Uh, actually, I have one <clears throat> quick question is, it sounds like that hitting that binary is a question of timing, really, because you will not be able to do anything by the time you see the two objects separately. You'd have to time it such that at the very right instant when the object is in the right location, the spacecraft will hit it just based on those changes in those light curves that mm. are measured much be before that. And you'll be building this sequence into the flight such that you expect to meet that object kind of blindly when it pops up in front of you and kind of too late to do anything in terms of steering, in terms of targeting. It's just a question of the right timing to hit it. Is this true? Um, yeah, yes and no. So we've been, you know, we have been measuring its, its orbit. Uh, we've been we've been measuring it. You know, we, there's a lot of great data from 2003, the last time it was very bright, and then since 2015, it's been kind of showing up every two years ish. And we've been going out and and measuring and getting more data and more data and getting the orbit period better and better. Um, so uh, this year, uh, you know, the the engineers and the project uh, had a requirement. Uh, I guess the investigation team uh, had had the requirement to um, to measure the orbit well enough so that uh, if extrapolated to the time of impact, we would know the orbit phase to within, I think it's something like plus or minus 10 degrees of orbit phase, maybe it was 15, uh, three sigma. And um, so you know, we, we, that was, that was the, the goal of this last spring's uh, measurements. And we, we, we did that, we achieved that. Um, we were even able to measure, um, and now Paul was talking about being, being technical. We were even able to measure something called binary YORP, which is the, um, which is the amount by which the orbit period changes 
due to non-gravitational forces. So we think we're in good shape with that. Uh, we are going to measure it again um, after launch, you know, the next chance we get, which is probably going to be spring of 2022. Um, but we are more or less set on the arrival time. Uh, the arrival date, like I said, might, might change, but given the, the physical location of, of antennas on the earth and you know where Didymos is in the sky and the sun and all of that business, uh, we're, we're pretty much set on the, the time of day. Um, and then Didymos, Dimorphos will, you know, it's, it's one of those things we have to, we have to trust uh, trust Newton and uh, and uh, trust that it'll be where it's supposed to be. <laughs> Otherwise, maybe we get a Nobel Prize. I don't know. If we can prove that that, uh, that orbital mechanics didn't work. <laughs> well, definitely, that's going to be a big, one of the big topics of PDC 2023. Uh, the results of this mission are surely going to be covered extensively in that conference. And hopefully, we'll, we have a, we'll have a lot of good takeaways and videos and measurements and new new knowledge that doesn't even exist today. So I'm envying you being part of this really exciting team and an amazing talk. And thank you, Randy and Phil and Aroshi for good questions and good discussion. And I think with that, thank you, Andy. We'll move over Andy. to the next talk, which is Paul. He's going to talk about uh, those exercises and the tool and uh, Paul is obviously the director of CNEOS, which we visited a few times until now, and he's going to talk a lot more about what his center is doing. So, Paul, take it away. Okay, thank you. Let me let me share my screen. Can you hear me? Okay. Mm -hmm. Very clearly. And let me know if you can see my screen. We can. It looks great. Let's see slideshow. Which display are you seeing? We are seeing the uh, kind of, not the slideshow, the other part. So you want to switch. Oh, okay. How's that? That's better. That okay. works fine. All right. OK, so I'm going to talk about actually two things. I'm going to talk about CNEOS, because uh, uh, a lot of what we do is very relevant to planetary defense. Um, and so I'll talk about keeping track of near-Earth objects and all that sort of thing, and the sorts of things we do at CNEOS. And, um, and that'll be like maybe 15 minutes. And then we could have a break if you want, Nahum, for questions about that. And then, um, then we could come back and talk about hypothetical asteroid impact exercises. So I'll focus in on you know, the PVC exercises uh, on the second part of my talk. So that's- Yeah, I think that's a good suggestion. Let's take, uh, let's take a quick break between the two parts and sure. just see if they're relevant questions. Thank you. So I'll, I'll uh, turn it back to you uh, for questions halfway through. Because I have like an hour almost, I think, in uh, in time. So <laughs> we need a break. <laughs> sure. Okay. That's good. Okay. So um, so the pretty diagram that's that's on the back of this. Uh, so I'm I'm Paul Chodas. I'm the the director of the CNEOS, which is the Center for NEO Studies uh, at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and um, I've been working with uh, asteroid orbits for and comet orbits for something like. 40 years now um, in determining orbits for a long time, starting with Halley's Comet in the uh, in the 80, early 80s. So uh, I've been doing this a, a while. And uh, so 
Uh, but every year there's some new stuff to talk about. So that's what I'll be talking about today, including I'll talk about this week's news. Uh, so stay tuned for that. All right. Anyway, this diagram is, uh, is a kind of a pretty diagram I put together uh, a few years ago, actually, which shows the orbits of potentially hazardous asteroids. Um, and that is a category of asteroid whose uh, orbit comes close to the Earth's orbit. So basically, um, the, in three dimensions, the di distance between the asteroid orbit and the Earth's orbit, which is the bright white circle here, uh, has to be less than 0.05 AU, which is like 20 lunar distances. So that's why all of these orbits tend to congregate near the Earth's orbit. It's by definition that I'm, uh, we're, we're picking out the asteroids that um, whose orbits come close to the Earth's orbit. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, an impact is imminent uh, and, and 20 lunar distances is still pretty far. And, and for an impact, you need the, you know, the Earth and the asteroid to be at the intersection point at the same time. But, uh, but, but these are uh, asteroids that are worth watching. There's about 1,800 of them here. I color-coded them by size, so the brighter ones are a little uh, brighter and the smaller ones are dimmer. Um, but, okay, so some definitions for, um, for the broad audience here. Uh, what is a near-Earth object, NEO, and what is a PHA, potentially hazardous asteroid? Um, Near-Earth objects is a very generous definition. Those are asteroids and comets whose orbits bring them to within one and a third times the distance from the sun to the Earth. So what that means is really not that they come you know, close to the Earth necessarily, uh, it's that they come into the inner solar system. Uh, their perihelion distance is less than 1.3 astronomical units, where an astronomical unit is the Earth-Sun distance. So that's kind of the blue zone here. Anything that comes within that is called a near-Earth object, any small body. Um, now, but on the other hand, potentially hazardous objects are a subset of that. Those are near-Earth objects with orbits that bring them within this distance, uh, 4.7 million miles of the Earth's orbit. So as I said before, uh, the asteroid orbit and the Earth's orbit have to approach each other to within this threshold distance. And on top of that, they are, larger than 140 meters in size. Now that's kind of an arbitrary uh, size limit that was put on there. I mean, you know, 100 meter objects, a 90 meter object could certainly be hazardous, but, um, but we are not categorizing uh, as the P, uh, PHA in the definition. So that's just a, an old definition that we are continuing to use. Two things, the orbit brings it near the Earth's orbit, and the size is 140 meters or larger. And frankly, we don't know the size of a lot of these objects. So we're basing it really on uh, in the uh, absolute magnitude as a, using that as a proxy for size. And, I, and on this diagram is the orbit of Bennu. It is one of the PHAs. It's something like uh, 500 meters uh, across, and it does come within uh, the, this threshold distance of the Earth's orbit. So it is a PHA. And, and of course, as you know, it's a target of NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission, which has already touched Bennu and, and has some sample and is bringing those samples back. Um, so I have some slides that uh, we've, you've already heard about some of these objects, but um, I'll, I'll, I'll repeat some of this. The Chelyabinsk airburst, um, which was in uh, 2013, is an example of a fairly uh, significant recent impact. And as the bottom line shows, it's a 20 meter asteroid coming in at 18.6 kilometers per second, releasing about 500 kilotons of energy. So, uh, and the key thing, and the reason why the energy is so large is that 
kinetic energy go, uh, goes as um, mass times velocity squared. So that velocity of 18.6 kilometers per second, 42,000 miles per hour, is where all the energy is coming from. And the, uh, the object started burning up at, or disintegrating at 90 kilometers. Most of the disintegration occurred at 30 kilometers. And by 25 kilometers, there were just pieces left over. Um, 95, maybe 98% of the mass of the asteroid was completely uh, blown up into dust and small rocks. So we didn't get have a 20 meter asteroid hitting the surface at all. That was, a, by the way, a very busy day. We had uh, another asteroid passing by that day. And I was um, uh, doing a NASA in, a TV show that day. Uh, and so when this happened the night before, I had, uh, you know, it kind of uh, completely preempted our whole presentation of the other asteroid coming near the Earth, uh, which was unrelated to this one. And, and, we, uh, and the story turned to this very exciting event. We think this happens about once every, I'd say, 80 years to 100 years on average, statistically. Um, Tunguska, we've already mentioned. Um, that happened in 1908 and flattened uh, 2,000 square kilometers of, or of uh, forest in Siberia. Uh, the size of the object, we don't really know, and we don't know the, um, the uh, entry velocity, frankly. No meteorites were found, so it is presumed to have been an asteroid, um, but we don't know that for sure. It's it, on the order of uh, 40 meters across, released on the order of, we think, five megatons of energy. Um, that could be a larger number, but um, uh, we, we don't know. Uh, for certain exactly how much energy was large, but it was certainly larger than Chelyabinsk and certainly um, uh, yeah, larger than, uh, the size of the object was larger than 20 meters, so 40 meters is our estimate. And of course, you've already seen the, uh, from Nahum's talk, the uh, meteor crater image, um, that was 50,000 years ago. It was a metallic asteroid, probably on the order of perhaps 40 to 50 meters in size. The, the crater is one kilometer across, and um, those objects, 40 to 50 meter objects, hit Earth around once every 10,000 years or so on average. Um, so it's a rare event, but uh, it's the consequences of such an impact will be so large uh, that we certainly want to uh, uh, look for objects that might produce um, uh, crater like this on the, on the Earth. So that's the reason for the NEO program in the first place. Now, you've seen uh, this, this impact frequency or impact effects di uh, information before. It's all kind of captured in this nice little table um, where uh, on the left-hand column, we consider diameters of various uh, impacting asteroids all the way from five meters in size at the top, top row, all the way down to 140 meters in the middle, and then 10 kilometers at the bottom. And uh, then the next column talks about what we would call that kind of event. The, the, uh, the third column talks about the approximate energy that uh, an impact of something that size coming in at a typical asteroid velocity would produce. And on the right is the most important column is how often do these things happen? So five meter objects, basically are bolides, which impact the earth about once a year. And those produce things like the fireballs that you saw on the fireball map that, that's on our website. Um, most, if not all of those um, objects are not detected in space. It's five meters is pretty small. Uh, we have detected a couple um, asteroids about that size um, before they hit. So there are something like four known asteroids uh, were seen in space before they impacted. And they were all of this kind of five meter 
size or smaller. Um, 10 meters, that would be uh, you know, a bigger super bolide and, and, and Chalyabinsk was even larger. So you know, that was certainly in the super bolide class. Uh, and it, it approaches the 100 year time between events, um, uh, the third line there. So if we, as we move up into the orange rows, um, we're starting to talk about you know, serious devastation on regional or continental scales. And these are kind of the area we focus on in our exercises, which I'll talk about in the second part of my talk. Uh, but those events, th those kind of impacts are very infrequent. Uh, once every 20,000 years for 140 meters, all the way up to maybe once every 200,000 years for a 600 meter event. That's like Bennu um, is a 600 meter size object. If it should hit, you know, that, that impacts uh, on average happen, you know, once every 200,000 years or so statistically. And I think that number is even a little bit generous. It's probably once every half million years or so. Then we go all the way up to kilometer sized objects, which are approaching a million years between impacts. So clearly, though, there's a hazard here. And, um, and even if the time between impacts is long, that doesn't mean that it can't happen, you know, in a year or two from now, from some undiscovered object, which is the whole idea here that we want to search and find these objects, catalog them, and then predict whether or not they can impact. So that's the reason for NASA's NEO search program. And this is the current uh, um, suite of telescopes that NASA is funding to search for near-Earth objects. Uh, at the top, you have the NEOWISE spacecraft, which is uh, getting rather old now. I think it, was, uh, it started operations around 2010, um, which is an infrared uh, spacecraft in low Earth orbit, scanning the skies in the infrared. And, and the infrared is an ideal wavelength to search for asteroids uh, because they're bright in the infrared um, and they show up much more easily against the star background than, um, than they would in optical wavelengths. But you can't uh, observe in the infrared from the ground because of the atmosphere, it, it absorbs infrared. So that's why you need to go into space if you want to search for asteroids in the infrared. But that's a fairly small telescope, uh, uh, about 40 centimeter aperture. The, uh, the bottom row are the, are the big guns, especially the two in the middle. Uh, the Catalina Sky Survey and PANSTARS are the main workhorses for finding near-Earth objects these days. And those uh, telescopes are in the order of two meters in aperture. Um, the Catalina Sky Survey is near Tucson, run out of the University of Arizona. And PANSTARS is uh, in, uh, in Maui and is run out of the University of Hawaii. Um, those two discover the vast majority of near-Earth objects that we're finding nowadays. The Atlas One is also in, uh, on the left is in Hawaii. It's a smaller telescope, um, but it has a wider field of view and it can actually scan most of the entire dark sky every night. So these telescopes are essentially working continuously when the skies are dark, searching for asteroids. The one on the right, by the way, is a much larger telescope that is, um, uh, that we, is in cooperation with the Defense Department, and it is you know, under testing in, in Australia right now. Um, and it would be very capable, but we would have to share uh, the time usage of that particular telescope. So it's not in operation at the moment. Congress, as the bottom line indicates, has directed NASA to find and catalog 90% of the near-Earth objects greater than 140 meters in size. So that is, those are our marching orders, and that's the reason for this uh, suite of, of telescopes. In, in the future, there will be more telescopes. You heard about NEO Surveyor. 
Uh, that's going to be a very capable space-based telescope that will do a better job of finding asteroids than any of the, our current systems. Also, there's the Rubin telescope, which used to be called LSST. Uh, that's an eight-meter telescope that will certainly detect a lot of uh, near-Earth objects once it's in operation in a few years. So um, for those who are wondering, um, this is what an asteroid um, discovery kind of how it happens. Asteroids basically look like stars. They're, you know, asteroid, aster means star. Um, so it's something that looks like a star, but it moves. And shown here is a set of four images of a, a part of the sky. Uh, you can ignore the noise in the background, but it's uh, it, uh, in the green circle, you see an asteroid that is moving uh, across the sky over the course of about an hour. And from these four images, um, we can actually determine the orbit. And how we do that is by, as you heard from um, Artash and Arushi, you uh, measure the coordinates of the asteroid. Celestial coordinates are right ascension and declination. You measure the coordinates uh, relative to the coordinates of the known stars. Star catalogs will tell you what the coordinates are of the fixed stars. And what we need to know is uh, basically the time of each image and what are the coordinates are right ascension and declination. Of, uh, of the asteroid at that time. And we, if we get four of those, that's enough for us to compute a very basic orbit, a basic, basic asteroid trajectory rather. Uh, and that's the starting point. That's how asteroids are discovered. And that's how um, we compute an orbit. Now, of course, there's a little bit of magic going on here because um, you don't know how far away that asteroid is. There's no information on the distance. All we know is it's you know, angular coordinates, uh, uh, the basically latitude longitude on the sky. And so we kind of infer its uh, distance by uh, fitting those coordinates to uh, equations of motion. So there's a large estimation theory um, uh, uh, going on here in which we try to fit different distances and we see which, at which distances would, would the, uh, would best fit the measured coordinates of, of this asteroid. So that's basically how um, our, our orbit determination is done. Um, there are two key groups, and I should mention uh, the Minor Planet Center as the, uh, as the, in the top box. We are the lower box here at JPL, the Center for NEO Studies. The way it works is that the uh, near-Earth object position measurements from observatories um, are sent to the Minor Planet Center. So basically the, the times uh, of each image and the coordinates of, of an asteroid in the images. Now, many of the uh, detected asteroids are known objects, they're sent in as well. But if, there, if the, uh, a preliminary scan indicates that this is not a known object, those are of a special interest and they go onto a special uh, webpage at the Minor Planet Center and other telescopes will then take uh, follow those objects and get more data on them. And we want an increasing amount of data uh, positions and observations to compute the best possible orbit. So the Minor Planet Center, although their first step is to identify what the moving object is, um, and if it's not a known asteroid, then they will give it a designation. So you see asteroids like, you know, uh, 2008 TC3, that's the that's designation for an, uh, an asteroid. And they do an initial orbit calculation as well uh, from, from that data. They then uh, feed that data to us and our job is then to produce the high precision um, uh, near Earth object orbit. So that's a big estimation problem. We do the, you know, the tough math. Um, 
uh, to compute accurate orbits. And uh, once we have an accurate orbit, and by the way, the orbits are updated as we, every time we get more data, we'll recompute and get an even more accurate orbit. Um, we also compute close approaches, uh, and you'll, you've seen the close approach table, and Nahum talked about that. We'll, we'll also do short-term and long-term um, impact probability calculations uh, to see whether or not that asteroid could impact the Earth, uh, either in the short term, that is within a few weeks, if it's a brand new discovery, or in the long term over the next hundred years. Um, and we can, we can uh, do those long-term uh, projections. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Um, a few of the other things, um, you know, we post all of this on our website. So one of the, one of the, our products is the website itself. We have an online ephemeris service uh, in our larger group that's called Horizons. And that uses a lot of the same uh, techniques um, for making predictions. So once you have an orbit, you can then predict in the future where that asteroid will be uh, on the sky as observed from, you know, the telescope, uh, you know, the Fox telescope, for example, that Artash and Arusha used. Um, so uh, they would do an ephemeris of Apophis as observed from that telescope and horizons would, that would tell you exactly where it should be on the sky and where to point your telescope to, to see it. Um, we do orbit visualization. You saw my, um, my blue <coughs> spire graphs and all of that. Impact scenario development. I'll talk a bit about that and the NEA the NEO deflection app as well. Um, so CNEOS uh, wrote all the software that is handling the asteroid dynamics in the, in the NEO deflection app. So the, you had a nice ex exercise where you tried to deflect the asteroid. Well, what is going on there is that we have pre-canned a lot of the asteroid dynamics into the app. Um, uh, I wrote um, uh, essentially all of that asteroid software. And then what's incorporated then is the, uh, the uh, trajectory uh, interceptor path and, uh, and, and meeting up with the asteroid. And then that there's a delta V on the asteroid as, uh, as uh, Andy was just talking about, you get a delta V and then, um, then software that CNEOS has developed will map that to the V plane and we'll see how much it moves uh, in the target plane, whether the green dot moves off the earth. All of that is kind of uh, harnessing all of this software that we have CNEOS. Um, yeah, so the time, so we also predict for real asteroid impacts, the time, location, and geometry of, of a predicted impact. Um, so let's see, this might be a good time. Oh, not quite. I have a few more slides. Let me talk about our website. Uh, Nahum um, pointed out our homepage. This is a recent snapshot of our homepage, cneos.jpl.nasa.gov. Um, I've, in yellow, I've highlighted what our main mission is, which is NASA Center for Computing Asteroid and Comet Orbits and assessing their odds of Earth impact. Um, that's, you know, our, those are, that's our driving force. Uh, it's a lot of math. Um, uh, so I put in, you know, on our header on the lower left, uh, on the top there, you see some equations that I, uh, that I drew up way back from way back when, those are B-plane equations. And that just kind of represents kind of the calculus that goes into all of our software. It's uh, just representative of the fact that math is behind all of our uh, ability to make predictions. Uh, and I've uh, circled the, the, uh, at least four of the main uh, buttons on our navigation bar, close approaches, impact risk, planetary defense, discovery statistics, you should uh, explore those. There's lots of good information there. And in the middle, we have you know, top news stories, the latest one being this one about Apophis and uh, the fact that we've eliminated it 
from our risk list. Uh, it can't hit the earth, we know, for the next 100 years. Um, close approaches. Um, this is a very popular page. Nahum pointed this out. Uh, this is a snapshot from a month ago when we had in the news uh, something like, you know, the, the news story saying there were, oh, five asteroids coming by this week. Um, what they're actually doing is going to our table here where we do a, run all the calculations, compute the close approach date, sometimes down to the nearest minute, uh, and how far it's coming, the close approach distance, the nominal uh, distance there. Um, and they're kind of picking that up and, and also getting the diameter from the right column and then kind of making new stories about this. You'll see that frequently uh, on, uh, you know, on your uh, Apple News or whatever, whatever you're using for your news source. Um, and so, but in this particular week, we had eight of them and they're almost all of them are 2021 something. So these are new discoveries. And uh, so you might wonder, well, why are so many new asteroids coming by the earth? Well, um, in fact, asteroids have come by the earth at, with this frequency all along. What's different is that we're able to discover them uh, and our ability to discover these asteroids is improving. Um, and so it's not unusual that we're gonna have close approaches of new discoveries because we, we can't really discover these until they get close enough to get bright enough to be detected in the telescope. So, um, so that's not a mystery at all. Um, you saw a version of this, uh, and this is from our website uh, about a month ago, where I'm indicating how many known near-Earth asteroids are there. And on the right-hand side, there's uh, indicating that we've already passed 26,000. Um, and we're increasing that at about 2,500 per year these days. So the, the observing uh, capabilities are of that, cap uh, of that level. So it's just going up exponentially, which is good. That's what, that's what the purpose of the uh, Near-Earth Object uh, Observations Program is. The orange bar, though, is uh, more important. That is our uh, metric um, of 140 meter and larger asteroids. And the, uh, the, uh, the total was, when I looked at this, was um, around 96, 9,700 now. And that's increasing at about 500 per year. Now, PHAs are a subset of that. Those are the ones now that the, or of 140 meters, those are the ones whose orbits have to come close to the Earth. And there's 2180 uh, currently on the PHAs, and we're finding them at about 100 per year. And finally, that, that number that are larger than one kilometer keeps going up and down between 888 and 889. Uh, so we have found about 90% or 95%, in fact, of the asteroids larger than one kilometer. Um, on, the, on the orange one, we think that our 9,700 is something like 40% of the total population of 140 meter and larger asteroids. Um, but uh, it's going to take a long time for us to get to 90%, which is the goal that the Congress has assigned NASA. Uh, and that's the reason why we need new uh, asteroid search capabilities. That's the NEO, uh, NEO Surveyor mission and, uh, and the uh, Rubin Telescope. Um, they will, that will enable us to get to 90% on the orange graph um, within five to 10 years um, is, is the expectation. Um, I wanted to mention uh, this as an interesting website. Um, uh, Solar System Dynamics is the group in which CNEOS is embedded at JPL. Solar System Dynamics covers everything in the solar system, even that includes planets, planet satellites, uh, asteroids. So if you go to ssd.jpl.nasa.gov, you'll, you'll see this homepage. Um, and uh, we keep track of all the small bodies. And there are over now a million, 100,000 small bodies as of today. Um, 
and, and we compute orbits for all of them. Uh, and so you can uh, look at our uh, website. You can go to small, <clears throat> small body browser, for example, type in the name of any of the 1,100,000 small bodies, and you will get a data page uh, and information about the orbit of that particular small body. Uh, so I just wanted to mention that, that uh, well, you know, and, 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 this, this, uh, and I, this is basically where Cineos originated was from JPL's um, uh, priorities back in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s of, of developing high precision orbits for mission targets. And uh, that evolved into developing high precision orbits for asteroids, which were mission targets and comets, such as Halley's Comet, which is when I started all of this. And, uh, and, and, and we started the Horizon system. I was in the beginnings of that as well. Um, that's where uh, we keep, you know, get ephemerities for all of these objects. And then CNEOS and the NEO program came about a little bit later when we focused on the nearest objects in particular, and then did the impact analyses for that. So SSD is, is, uh, is the context of, of where we're embedded at JPL. Um, and this is today's news, or this week's news, is a, uh, you may have heard about this, is that, that we have a new Oort Cloud comet slash asteroid. Uh, we're calling it a comet, 2014 UN271. Um, it is, when we say it's Oort Cloud, that means it's coming in from essentially um, tens of thousands of AU away. So uh, at its farthest point from the sun, it is essentially, uh, you know, a, a, a large fraction of the way to the next star, um, as is where many of the comets come from, by the way. So the Oort cloud is, is a source of long period comets, and this appears to be one of them. Now, this diagram, which is a snapshot taken uh, straight off of our SSD webpage, by the way, uh, you, can, you can generate this yourself. Um, shows where it is today. It's below the solar system, below the plane of the planets, um, and at considerable distance. Um, I, I forget some 12 AU from from the sun, and it is slowly approaching perihelion. Uh, when it gets through the plane of the uh, planets, is around 10.95 AU, and that happens in the year 2031. So things move slowly in the outer solar system, but this is an example of uh, a recent discovery. Um, in the sense that um, the data is it's 2014, but the, but this in in the designation, which is when the data was taken, but this is a recent object that uh, whose orbit we are you know including in our catalog and we're tracking this one as well. Uh, we're computing the orbit for this one as well. Um, I think this is a good place to stop because the rest of my slides talk about the uh, asteroid exercises. So um, so Nahum, if there are questions about just generally what we do and, uh, and how we do it uh, at CNEOS. Uh, this is a good time for uh, a mini break. Thank you, Paul. Uh, does anyone have a question for Paul at this point about uh, CNEOS activity? I, I have to engage, Nahum, because Paul is so good and so perfect that uh, nobody can question him. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Paul, um, can you give us a little bit of history on how um, the uh, USAF has been involved in planetary defense? A, a quick little summary, maybe? I, I didn't quite catch that. U US, I mean, Aero, uh, Aerospace Corporation or what? 
Oh, uh, I'm, I'm talking about uh, the U.S. Air Force and how some of their early works have influenced planetary defense and your work too, perhaps. Well, um, in particular, our, um, our, our uh, leader at, uh, in the Planetary Defense Coordination Office um, uh, is uh, Lonely Johnson, and he is from, uh, he, he worked uh, you know, for the uh, Air Force computing orbits of, uh, you know, in the satellite catalogs. And he was particularly interested in uh, small bodies, near-Earth objects, and planetary defense. I think he coined the term planetary defense, in fact. Um, that was, though, um, in the, I think, in the 1990s. I think he was partly inspired by the, um, by the well-known impact of Comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 on Jupiter. You may remember that from 1994. Uh, that was a dramatic demonstration that small bodies and comets can hit planets. Uh, and, and I was involved in, uh, in tracking, doing the tracking uh, for the, all those fragments of Shoemaker-Levy 9 and um, making the predictions of when and where they would impact. So that was, you know, the first, um, that was, the, you know, the first practice run at, uh, at computing impact points and impact times and all of that and making predictions for observatories around the world uh, for, for, the, uh, for the impact in uh, July of 1994. Uh, and so, um, Congress got interested in uh, the got uh, you know alerted to the fact that NEOs could hit the Earth as well, um, and um, and so also did the Air Force. So I think um, there was increased interest um, spurred by that event, also by the movies you had that came a few years later. Uh, I think it was Deep Impact and Armageddon, which dr dramatized the whole idea of asteroids or comets hitting the earth. And that, that seemed to make it very real as well. So, um, so that, that's kind of where the whole um, uh, field of planetary defense kind of um, uh, gained momentum. There was certainly interest before that. Um, Gene Shoemaker in particular, who uh, you know, is a co-discoverer of Shoemaker-Levy 9, um, was interested in the impact craters on the moon and the impact rate uh, uh, by which asteroids and comets were hitting the moon. Um, and, uh, and by the way, the moon is covered with craters, but most, most of those crater impacts occurred in the early solar system, and they simply haven't eroded away. Of course, there's no erosion to speak of on the moon. So, um, but he uh, was, even in the 1970s uh, and in 1980s, actively involved in searching for near-Earth objects and, uh, you know, concerned about about this issue and AIAA as well, I, as I recall, in the 1990s, had some white papers on how we should be paying more attention to near-Earth objects. So that's kind of there was a general swelling of interest um, in the in the 1990s. Uh, I should also mention the the discovery of the Chicxulub crater, and and then the you know which was pretty dramatic evidence that uh, the demise of the dinosaurs was most likely uh, caused by uh, an impact of a large asteroid and, and, the, and which produced the iridium layer, which is pretty well um, you know, in evident in rocks around the world. Um, uh, so all of these little things led into the, you know, an increasing interest. I hope that answered your question, Madhu. Yes, excellent, excellent, thank you. Thank you. And we have a question here from Randy. 
how out of plane is 14 UN 271 and what is period if you know? It's in the image, yeah. Yeah, well, it's out of the plane. Um, so, uh, and, and we kind of indicate that with the, with the uh, intensity of the line. So the, the dim line is below the plane of the ecliptic and when it turns bright on the upper part, that's when it comes up through the plane of the ecliptic. So it's hard to tell from this image and I turned off the, the drop lines. You need to go to the SSD website and you need to type in the name of this asteroid, um, uh, comet, excuse me, and, uh, and then uh, go to the orbit viewer button and you'll get your own, uh, and you can play around with this and it's interactive and you can, you can move in and out and rotate and whatever. Uh, and, you'll, and you'll see what's meant by this, uh, you know, the, third, the third dimension. Um, the orbital period is, uh, you know, um, a million years as far as we know. Uh, in fact, um, we, we, we don't know the orbit accurate enough, accurately enough to say uh, what the orbital period is. It's essentially um, a parabola. A parabola. Um, it's not an interstellar object. You know, we've, we've tracked those as well, and those are clearly interstellar uh, coming in at a hyperbolic orbit. This one is not hyperbolic um, with respect to the solar system very center, which is the uh, where you mass all of the planets and the sun at one point. And, you, and so we don't think this came from another star system. We think it was just another member of the Oort cloud, which is coming in uh, for a passage by the sun. And how common are those these type of objects? Well, um, I would call this a long period comet. And um, uh, we, we're still working on getting a good model for how, how you count these. Um, there are I, much I, less... I, I guess these are two different questions, right? I mean, how commonly do we actually see those objects? And it's different from knowing how many are there out there that could appear at one point. These are two different aspects of the same question. Right, right. Um, uh, and so um, what's remarkable about this one is the perihelion distance is well beyond Saturn. It looks like it's uh, between Saturn and Uranus. So it's not getting that close to the sun. Therefore, it's not um, uh, outgassing a lot. It's not heating up. Uh, and so it's not as going to be as bright and have a tail and all of that as some of the bigger objects out there, such as uh, Hale-Bopp was, was you know, a classic example in 1996 of a Oort cloud comet that um, had a massive tail and uh, coma and all of that. And it was something like um, 40 kilometers in size. It's not clear to me that this object is a big asteroid, a big object. Uh, um, um, we, we can't, we don't know enough for sure yet about the size of, of this object. Uh, it could be big, um, but typically they don't get to be much bigger than, you know, tens of kilometers in size. So we don't know really. Um, how many are there? Uh, there are, um, there are a lot fewer than there are uh, of the uh, of the smaller uh, near-Earth objects that threaten the Earth. But but you're right. Uh, uh, one of these could come out of the blue, uh, and with very little warning, um, maybe just a year or two. And if it just was uh, on the wrong orbit and happened to intersect the Earth's orbit, um, uh, it would uh, the warning time would be, you know, as I say, it could be short. It could be a matter of uh, four or five years, perhaps maximum. And it would come in at high velocity also. So that. That's, there certainly is a threat from long-period comets. Thank you. Um, and I have a quick question uh, regarding to those series of um, uh, shots that you take 
uh, on clear nights to try to catch those dots of lights that are moving relative to the fixed stars. Uh, I guess that's something that would also be of interest to Arushi and uh, Atash. Uh, what's the time span between those shots? Is it minutes, seconds, days, in order to be able to construct an initial orbit out of this? Yeah. Um... Uh, the, the usual routine is, you, is the usual, 30 minute, 30 second exposures, and they're taken over a period of 40, 50 minutes to an hour. Okay, so that means the, 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 the pattern, the telescope is taking wide field images, and they're kind of stepping around the sky, and they do it in a pattern in such a way that they get four images of every patch of sky uh, in about an hour. Okay. So that's, that's the general technique. And one more quick question is, uh, I guess planetary defense is planetary, right? It's global type of uh, threat. Uh, is there collaboration in terms of detecting and orbit calculations internationally between NASA, the US, ESA, other organizations to do, to kind of share data and prepare for global? Well, uh, let me just go back to this slide here. Um, the the uh, Minor Planet Center is part of the International Astronomical Union. So it's international and telescopes from around the world submit data to the Minor Planet Center, which is a clearinghouse for all observations of all small bodies in the solar system. So that is the central hub for the observations. Um, and they come from all telescopes. And so that's why I was asking Artash and Arushi whether they had um, made observations and computed the coordinates whether they had actually, you know, submitted them to the Minor Planet Center, which is, you know, uh, a, a they don't have to do that, but it, it is something that um, is the final step in an observer's uh, uh, procedure. And uh, and these telescopes that are um, scanning this, you know, the entire sky every night um, submit uh, tens of thousands of observations of moving objects to the Minor Planet Center every night. So the Minor Planet Center gets something like, in a year, they will get something like 250,000 observations of near-Earth objects. Okay, so that's kind of uh, the source of the data for all of these 26,000 near-Earth objects. Um, uh, now, now, not all objects are you know, visible at all times. Um, when they're far from the Earth, they're not visible. So uh, it's, uh, it, but, but it, my point is, it's an international, um, effort and it's coordinated internationally by the International Astronomical Union and the Minor Planet Center is the hub uh, for all of this data and the data is public so um, uh, most of the data uh, you can get from the Minor Planet Center and of course our, our orbits which we compute based on the, those observations our data is public as well and we provide it on our website. Mm -hmm. um, I should probably continue I don't want to run out of time and leave enough time for the, yeah. uh, for yeah. the exercise. So let me yes. proceed to uh, talk about impact exercises, which was yes. really what you had asked me to talk about. Yes. Main part. Please. Please um, so this slide kind of summarizes um, what the exercises are for. They're basically simulations of a hypothetical asteroid on a collision course with the Earth. Um, and uh, it's it, the ask you say, well, where does the asteroid come from? Um, in most, in many cases, I just make this up. Um, but I do it do so very carefully to make sure it's realistic in many ways. First of all, um, the discovery is realistic. So it's, it, it's a, it kind of at just getting bright enough 
on the date of discovery. And usually I want the date of discovery to be, you know, a week or two weeks or three weeks before the meetings, the planetary defense conference, for example. Um, and then we simulate uh, the observations. That's the astrometry. It's the, the right ascension declination. I'll simulate that and then compute what the uncertainties would be if this were a real object. I do the real orbit determination, all the orbit dynamics, all of the numerical integrations, they're all, um, they're all realistic with the uncertainties. Um, it's designed so that it impacts at a particular um, interesting location. So, um, but um, um, after kind of picking the orbit, then I forget everything about it and then say, well, let's say it was discovered then, what would we know and when would we know it? Uh, and so we see how the prediction of the impact location would be very uncertain initially. Uh, on the physical parameters, there's lots of uncertainties too. Um, you know, these are just dots on the sky. It's a moving point of light. You really don't know how big it is. All you know is how bright it is. And so there's large uncertainties on physical parameters. And because you don't know how big it is or how reflective it is, you really can't predict um, accurately uh, what the potential impact effects could be. Because basically you don't know the mass to within an order or two orders of magnitude um, um, because of all the uncertainties. So then we do mission designs. We have options for reconnaissance, deflection, or disruption. And since this is a real orbit and I post uh, the real orbit elements, um, the, you know, the team can look at this and design a mission that would go to visit this hypothetical object. And we can then cons uh, you know, discuss what we would do. Uh, and then if it happens to hit the earth, what is the emergency response? Um, so basically we simulate what we would know when uh, what the impact effects might be and what the decision-making processes would have to be and how the asteroid might be deflected or disrupted. I've done about eight of these uh, exercises um, uh, altogether and many of them are on this uh, website, on our website at this URL. Um, so now let's focus in on the 2019 exercise, which is not the latest one, it's the previous one. Um, and you all had uh, some, you know, experience in deflecting this particular asteroid that was PDC-19 in our, uh, in our little um, workshop. Um, this one had an eight-year warning time, uh, and that kind of is, uh, uh, that's kind of picked um, intentionally uh, to be something that is probably long enough to do uh, some mitigation, so maybe deflect. Um, so I, I, uh, th that's kind of left, we, we, our group discusses what the warning time should be, eight years was, uh, you know, agreed on this one, so that's a starting point. Uh, and then, um, then I design an orbit that, that has an interesting orbit, which you'll see in a minute, uh, and then uh, design an orbit so that after discovery on day one of the conference, the impact probability is 1%. And if you actually run the astrometry and the observations through you know, the publicly available um, orbit determination, you'll get 1% uh, with, with this orbit. And then it will rise as you get more data and you know the orbit better and better on day two of the conference, uh, it's 10%. And that, in this case, I think was a few months after discovery. Um, the risk corridor is of interest. You'll see that in the, in the next slide. Um, that's the, basically the intersection of the asteroid orbit with the earth. And in this case, the US was at risk. The asteroid size in this case was somewhere in the hundreds of meter range, but we really you know, would not, not know how big it was. Um, and because of that, the size of the impact effects was not really being known. I mean, if a factor of three in size um, 
would be a factor of three cubed in volume and mass goes as the volume. So, um, you know, that's more than an order of magnitude uncertainty in the, uh, in the mass and the energy is proportional to mass. So, so uh, the energy of the impact could be in the hundreds of megatons, at a small size or even thousands or maybe larger, uh, could devastate a wide region, an asteroid of this particular size. So, um, so this is the setup. And I know it sounds threatening and all of that, but it's it's a hundred meter object. After all, we don't even we haven't even discovered half of them. So it's con entirely conceivable that this could occur. And by the way, the uh, you know the orbit I pick is one in which um, if you go back in time, you would not have discovered it in the last twenty years. So it, you know you, there's, there's a lot of orbits that are available uh, just because of the site of the uh, phasing that the uh, asteroid would not have been found. Um, so it's entirely plausible. Um, eight years should be enough time to mount a deflection campaign, um, but um, we would need to begin the developing the missions before the impact was 100% certain. So in this case, uh, eight years is kind of tight, and you can't wait, you know, three years, um, or even two years, maybe let's say, um, to be certain uh, that that the impact will happen. Because then it's too late to do much about it. You've got to begin designing uh, missions, uh, or at least developing them in time. And you'll see a slide on that in a minute. Reconnaissance mission in this case was uh, selected and was really essential to narrow down the uncertainties. Uh, we did consider um, both kinetic impactors and nuclear deflections for this, this exercise. This is the uh, orbit. I won't go into the orbit much. Um, uh, period of 2.6 years around the sun. It was This was inclined 18 degrees or so. Uh, the asteroid then would make, after discovery, which is shown in the lower left with the green dot, um, the asteroid makes like three orbits around the sun before the Earth and asteroid would potentially get really close and, and you would have a possible impact. So that's, that's you know, in eight years, an asteroid makes a few revs around the sun. Of course, the Earth makes eight revs around the sun. This was the risk corridor. So that's the intersection of the asteroid orbit uh, as uh, basically as the Earth sweeps across the asteroid orbit, this is the line it would leave. Now, um, the, uh, we don't know where the asteroid is on its orbit initially. So any one of these red dots could have been the real position of the asteroid. In fact, it also went off the edges of the Earth too. Um, so we didn't know, uh, you know which of these red dots is the real asteroid. We, uh, and we can't know that until we get more observations and more tracking, and in fact, more reconnaissance and reconnaissance mission to nail down which of the red dots is the real trajectory? Uh, so it covered across, it went across the US and also went across the Atlantic and went across Africa. Um, Lorian Wheeler uh, is part of the Ames team that does an analysis of the potential damage. And for 2019 PDC, um, they put together this very nice diagram that shows kind of the cities that this particular track went across. Uh, you'll see uh, you know, San Francisco, Denver, Chicago, New York City, and then across uh, even Hawaii, Maui, uh, went directly across Maui, uh, which is ironic because that was uh, the PANSTARS was the telescope that hypothetically discovered this object. Um, so anyway, uh, and the, the color coding, uh, in the, as you can see from the legend in the lower right, is, uh, is, are the impact effects. And most of these are from the assumption that it's 300 meters in size, you know, the high end. On the size, and so you would have serious, uh, you know, damage in the yellow area and light yellow area, all the way to where red would be basically unsurvivable. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone on this path 
is uh, at risk. We don't know which of the uh, points on this path the asteroid is headed for. And that's, those are the people, or, uh, the, uh, the um, uh, people and infrastructure and all of that, that would be most at risk, would be wherever uh, the asteroid was actually headed, which we didn't know uh, initially. Um, uh, this is the mission design summary. Uh, Brent Barbie uh, put together this nice diagram. This just shows the um, kind of where the impact probability would be. Uh, and each line is kind of a different mission. It was potentially considered. Um, and, and because of all of the phasing of the asteroid and the Earth, you, uh, there are only particular times when you can fit a mission. And you've learned that from the NEO deflection app. Um, so the red triangles are when you would launch the mission, and the blue is the is the you know LTD. It's the time of flight, and the uh, the green um, diamonds are when the mission would arrive. And you can see that we had a couple of recon missions. Uh, we had a rendezvous recon mission planned uh, that could be launched. One of them had an NED, which is a nuclear explosive device on it, so that could be used for deflection possibly. We had three different KI deflection missions. Um, one of them which moved the, uh, the impact point westwards and one which moved the, would move the impact point eastwards. So uh, they were a consideration and we had a, a rendezvous nuclear deflection as well. Um, so, and, and then I've shown the Im impact probability. So you, begin, you need to begin to build these missions before you're certain that the impact will even occur. Uh, we only selected a few of these missions and in particular, the top one was really, really valuable because it's a reconnaissance mission that is rapid, uh, very short flight time, and, that, and it could get to the asteroid before you needed to launch any deflection missions. And so you would know then uh, how many deflection missions you needed, because then you'd know the mass of the asteroid and size and all of that. So that was a key, uh, a key element. And then we had, I think, one of the kinetic impactor, the, the, uh, the second kinetic impactor mission was the deflection East 2. We, we chose that one. Um, well, you've already known the uh, NEO deflection app and you've already tried PDC-19. So um, I don't need to say much more about this particular uh, screenshot, um, but, uh, but the uh, actual orbit uh, is, uh, I put the actual orbit into the uh, deflection app and, we, and all of the calculations were re very realistic uh, for this scenario. Um, and, and you saw how difficult it was uh, or easy, I don't know, to, to deflect this with kinetic impact emission. Um, so the, the, uh, let me just wrap up the 2019 storyline, which was a, uh, a, um, a, a in-person conference. So we had uh, um, a richer experience, let's say, and uh, in terms of the amount of time we could devote to the exercise. Uh, and so it had a, you know, a uh, presentation each of the five days. So the storyline went that on day three, the reconnaissance mission arrived and it revealed that the asteroid um, was, the, we knew then its orbit and it was headed for impact near Denver. So it, it narrowed down the impact point and a reconnaissance mission can do that from the optical navigation. And then it also imaged the asteroid and it found it to be a contact binary, which is kind of like Itokawa. It's kind of two pieces that are kind of glued together. Uh, it's 240 meters or so in one dimension. And uh, in any case, um, we then could be a little more specific on how much energy the, uh, the asteroid would release on impact. Now, we didn't know its density, so there was still uncertainty on the mass, but at least we got 
that shape and size narrowed down. So that was a big improvement. Um, we had six kinetic impactor missions that were ready for launch. In this case, not all of them um, you know, worked. I think we had three of them. Uh, on day four, we had three of them that were uh, successfully deflected the asteroid. But since it's a contact binary, a large fragment broke away. And it only got a small delta V. So while we're hitting you know, the center of mass of this asteroid, we didn't really account uh, well enough in this case uh, for a big fragment breaking off. And it remained on a collision course with the Earth. And it received some delta V, but not enough to move it off the Earth. And again, we didn't know its impact location. In this case, we hypothesized that the, the rendezvous missions were not able to measure the delta V, and so we had to then continue to observe the small fragment from the Earth. And the day five was when the 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 uh, fragment finally approached within radar range. It had never been in radar range until it got near the Earth, and this was like ten days before impact. And it was a sixty-meter fragment, only a sixty-meter fragment, uh, and it was unfortunately worst case headed for impact over New York City. Uh, so kind of inspired by Chesley Bonestell's uh, um, painting there. Um, uh, what would happen if? So, not not to be. Uh, 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 yeah, I'm not saying it's very is likely at all that it, the, an impact spot would move from one city to another, but it was uh, worth dis discussing a worst case scenario. And the impact velocity is 19 kilometers per second, so that the energy was on the order of uh, five, ten, maybe 20 megatons in this case. Um, so that was the 2019 exercise. And by oh, this was this was an overlay of the possible impact effects. Uh, if, if it would hit, you know, in Central Park. Um, okay, that's the uh, a very elaborate and, uh, and interesting complex exercise for 2019, which included enough time for deflection. The uh, P the 2021 exercise, which happened just a few months ago, um, was a little shorter. It only had four injects of information, and it was only six months before impact. So everything including the timeline was compressed. Um, the scenario date, as usual, it advanced you know from one one time to the next and and probabilities were you know changed throughout reflecting as usual, the state of knowledge at each step. Uh, we had lots of discussions after each inject, but basically the storyline was preset as it frankly was for the 2019 case as well. Here's the URL for the 2021. Uh, exercise. And by the way, the day zero content was published months ahead of the conference. So basically, uh, we, we give the, uh, the basic orbit and the impact probability on, uh, it was something like 5%. Uh, and um, uh, we didn't know where it would hit, by, mind you, but, um, but the basic uh, orbit was online on our website uh, months before the conference. So um, I'll give you uh, like four steps. The, the one and the title indicates this step one, day one um, effectively uh, was the day of, first day of the conference. And then this is just uh, what we would say on that day when the asteroid was discovered, uh, the fact that it's tracked nightly, which is typically what you do once you find an asteroid, you wanna track it as long as you can. And if this, uh, and it soon became clear that this asteroid would impact. And so there would be, uh, aggressive tracking of the asteroid, let's put it that way. The impact was like six months in the future. Uh, day one, the impact probability was 5%. If you plug in these observations, you're gonna get 5% on the impact probability. Um, but the, uh, that's only six month 
um, after only observing it for a few days. So the impact region basically covered, as you'll see in the next slide, um, two thirds of the, of the earth. So we really didn't know where it would hit. And on top of that, little would be known about the physical properties uh, as usual, except the intrinsic brightness. Um, and uh, again, since we don't know reflectivity, um, if you at the, on the bottom line here, if you if you use typical range of reflectivities, then you'd say the nominal size of the asteroid was 80 to 200 meters across. But frankly, if um, you consider all the uncertainties, and the full potential size range could go as anywhere from 35 meters on the small end to 700 meters on the large end. And so basically, you don't know how big the asteroid is. And the next slide here kind of boils this down to why we don't know the size. I mean, measurements um, of an asteroid's optical brightness, that's called photometry, uh, which I think uh, Andy talked a little bit about. Um, we can use that to uh, estimate the intrinsic brightness. We call it the absolute magnitude, which is kind of how bright it would be at a standard distance from the Earth and Sun. Um, but uh, that's, that's a proxy for size. Um, but it's not the real size because you don't know the surface brightness. Uh, and surface brightness can uh, vary widely. Um, in this little table I have here, um, for, for this object, uh, um, you know, if, you, if we plug in the photometry, uh, you, would, you would get a certain value for H, uh, with uncertainty, by the way. But then if you have an extremely bright surface, that would, um, we think, be about 60 meter object. But uh, if it's average surface brightness, it'd be 140 meters. But if it's extremely dark, it would be 400 meters and all in size. And on the sky, in the telescope, on the image, it all looks the same. You can't tell uh, just from a point of light and how bright it is, um, what the real size of the asteroid is. It depends on the reflectivity. Um, and then incorporating that uncertainty in the absolute magnitude, led to the full size range of 35 to 700 meters. So that's, um, that is a huge issue. Um, and that's why you typically would need a reconnaissance mission. Actually, the, the lower table here, I say, well, there's three ways you could get an accurate size. You can observe with space-based infrared. That will give you a, a, a pretty good idea of its reflectivity. Um, or you could observe a planetary radar if the asteroid is close enough. That would give you, you know, direct measurement of the asteroid shape and size. Or even, you know, best is to get a center reconnaissance mission, and that's what we did for the PDC-19. But there was not enough time to do it for the 21, uh, 2021 PDC. I'm just showing the orbit here. Um, it's a little bit smaller orbit. Uh, Discovery <clears throat> is on the lower left, and the, the and, and the asteroid only makes like a half a revolution from the discovery, uh, it's just le less than half of an orbit to the potential impact. Um, that's the six months uh, right there. And the Earth, of course, travels halfway around its orbit and that's in those six months as well. And by the way, this asteroid orbit is inclined 16 degrees to the Earth's orbit as well. Um, the, uh, so where could it impact? On day one, it was like over two thirds of the globe. And, and show, shaded here in red and purple, is kind of where the region of the globe that uh, the asteroid could hit on and the unshaded region is it's not possible to hit and the region the shaded region actually covers more than one hemisphere because earth's gravity would cause any uh, trajectories which were near the limb to, to bend inwards and in impact so it's more than half earth's gravity means it's more than half uh, of the 
of the globe. So that was day one. Um, so what would the impact risk would be? Um, here is uh, uh, Lorian, Lorian Wheeler's um, risk summary chart. And I won't go through all of this except to say um, that using all of the inputs in the upper left um, and uh, her uh, analysis of we have Monte Carlo, so we have impact damage map on the upper right. Um, what she's color coded here is the mean affected population by each of these potential impact points. So if the asteroid impacts in the Pacific, you know, you get a dark blue point because very few people are affected and this asteroid would not be large enough to cause a tsunami uh, by, in their analysis. On the other hand, if it impacted, you know, uh, I don't know, in India uh, somewhere, um, that's a very densely populated area and you would have a lot of people potentially affected um, by an impact at that location. So, that, so the, you know, the affected population depends on where it's going to hit and we don't know where it's going to hit. Um, the lower right is a histogram basically showing that there's 97% chance that nobody will be affected. Uh, and that includes all of the trajectories which miss the earth, by the way. Um, but there is you know, uh, a few tenths of a percent chance that more than a million people would be affected. We just don't know uh, based on the uncertainty in the impact point and the impact uh, and uncertainty in the, uh, in the uh, energy released by the impact. Oh, and that's a zoom in. Um, uh, from Lorian's diagram, I won't I won't repeat my what I just said about that. Um, the second um, a point here was uh, we advanced the time to uh, actually just by one week. Um, but uh, in in this storyline, we found pre-discovery observations in archival images, which were taken seven years earlier. Now the asteroid it kind of came near the Earth in 2014, but it was too faint to be discovered. An asteroid has to be around 21.5 magnitude uh, to be discovered and detected for that discovery to be you know, detected. Um, but since you know we've found it this year and we know its orbit kind of pretty well, we can project that back in time to, the, to 2014 and then we can stack up the images and compensate for the motion of the asteroid. And if you stack up all the pixels, you can actually potentially detect the asteroid. And that's, that's, what, uh, uh, that's a common technique. It's been used many times uh, in reality. And so we put it into this scenario uh, and, uh, and, and it made a big difference because now we know the orbit much better. We we've now have a, a, a pinpoint seven years earlier as well as this year and we can compute a much better orbit that fits all of that data. And we then knew immediately that the impact probability was 100%. Um, so those were key. It's very important to archive the images. Um, and then we knew the general region. I'll show you that in a minute. Um, but we didn't get anything more on the impact size or uh, the asteroid size or the impact effects. That's, that's still highly uncertain. And again, uh, we, uh, on day two, we considered, we talked about mitigation and reconnaissance options, but um, they would have to be launched essentially immediately. Like, by May 9th or something. Um, and there's just, I mean, that's ridiculously short. There's not sufficient time to get uh, a launched vehicle to the pad with a pre-prepared spacecraft or something. You can't do that in, uh, in a week. Uh, in fact, it would be pretty difficult um, to do in six months unless you have a spacecraft on the shelf. And, uh, and typically we, we often consider uh, two years as a development time for a spacecraft. So, um, 
but in, in this case, by design, this, this scenario um, was kind of removing from the table any uh, mitigation of reconnaissance missions just because of the short timeline. So disaster response planning would be the, would be the uh, response uh, to this scenario. The impact region on day two uh, with those recovery observations then is shown here where the intensity of the red is probabilities 40% were in that intense central core and it's like 99% somewhere within the uh, anywhere of the red regions. Um, and so that's where, it, where the object uh, it could hit. And that's based on all of our orbit calculations using all of the observations. Now, remember, this is only, um, you know, just uh, basically uh, a week or 10 days after the asteroid was first discovered. So we already know the region that's at risk. Uh, and the PVC-21 is in the NEO deflection app. So you can try to deflect it, but you'll find that um, there's just not enough time, really. Uh, I mean, if you, if you put the deflection, launch and deflection dates way over to the right uh, with six months, there's not really any time to deflect the asteroid. So that, that's really not uh, a consideration. Okay, uh, hurrying through this, um, I'll just do the remaining two uh, injects and then I'll, I'll stop talking. Um, uh, on day three, uh, we advanced the time to June 30th, uh, which is asteroid day. Um, that was just kind of uh, picked partly because it's asteroid day. Uh, now there's four months till impact. Um, and uh, we've been observing the asteroid continually since uh, and it was discovered in April. Uh, and so we've, the predicted impact zone has been shrinking as you get better and better data on the orbit. Uh, and it's mostly within Germany, Czech Republic and Austria at this point. Um, and very important, it was marginally detected by NEOWISE um, in, in the infrared. And that detection, since it's infrared, would give you a constraint on the diameter, which the team said was 160 plus or minus 80 meters in this case. Um, and that's an important upper bound because that reduces the worst case size and the worst case impact energies. And so it will reduce the size of the potential damage region. The, um, but first I'll talk about the predicted impact region. So this is where it's gonna hit. And as you can see, it covers basically um, mostly, mostly just in three countries. Um, so it's narrowing down to central Europe. The, um, but the impact risk region, which is the region that would be affected is larger than just you know, the impact point. Uh, and this is uh, Lorian's analysis of that. Uh, in the upper right, uh, I'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, yeah, the population risk is uh, in the lower right is what I should focus on here first. Um, I mean, the most likely case that you would have if it hit in Central Europe, you would have hundreds of thousands of people affected by, by depending on exactly where it hit, but on uh, the histogram indicates that it could be, you know, uh, 100,000 people, 50% is the, uh, the highest bar here that would be hundreds of thousands of people affected um, uh, potentially at, with this state of knowledge um, four months before impact. Um, the, uh, this is a zoom in then on, the, on what that damage region would look like uh, thanks to Lorian Wheeler's analysis. And you can see it covers you know, numerous cities in Central Europe so that uh, the emergency response um, uh, people in, in these countries would then have to um, face, be faced with the problem. We have four months before impact, and this is the current situation, you know, what, what should be done? So there was a healthy discussion about what would be done in this scenario. Um, uh, 
I won't talk much more about this particular one. Again, the, the, the unsurvivable region uh, is only unsurvivable if the asteroid hits in a, a particular spot. So uh, that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, if you're living in Croatia, you will definitely be unsurvivable. It simply means that it is potentially unsurvivable if that's where the asteroid is headed. We still don't know its precise impact point. And then that was the final inject, uh, was six days for impact. And that day was picked because it would finally be within range of Goldstone radar. So as soon as you get radar on the object, you will not only get uh, incredibly accurate orbit information and trajectory information, but you will also get the size, which then we, we could see in the radar images was 105 meters plus or minus 10%. So that now is the key uh, parameter that you can get from radar is finally uh, an estimate of the size of the object. Um, uh, and then the impact spot and all of that um, uh, also uh, improved dramatically with the radar. Um, and I've written here uh, the impact velocity. That's that's as that has not changed throughout uh, this whole exercise. <clears throat> but the second last point is um, because we know the size, the impact energies are known, and now it's a lot less than you know hundreds of megatons. Uh, it's down to a maximum of 150 megatons and average somewhere around 40 megatons. So, so suddenly you would uh, be able to constrain not only the impact spot, but how large the, uh, the damage region would be. And the, and the worst case damage region would be something like 300 uh, kilometers across. In worst case, 150 kilometers across. Uh, in the uh, average case, uh, based on the size here. Uh, and so this, this shows where the impact um, was predicted to happen as kind of the border of three countries. Um, this shows the Lorian's final risk swath um, in the kind of worst case, uh, showing that uh, if it was as lar at the large end of its size, that you could have serious damage out as far as Prague, uh, even though this was hitting basically a, a very um, dense, uh, non-dense area of population. Um, there was a potential that this, you would have some serious damage as far away as Prague if it's as large um, as, as the uh, worst case size was. That's, so this is a 300 kilometer <coughs> size um, area for the serious uh, case. Uh, let's see, a few takeaways. <coughs> um, my last slide. Um, for, from this exercise, Short warning is extremely challenging for in-space mitigation, deflection, even reconnaissance. Uh, there's just not enough time for six months. Six months is really a short warning. In fact, the warning could be uh, in one month, frankly. Um, so, uh, you, uh, uh, and it's not a surprise to us that this would that we'd be extremely challenged. Basically, uh, when you have a warning that's on the order of uh, even a, a couple of years or less, there's just really very little you can do in terms of missions. Um, important point number two, if there had been a sensitive asteroid survey, that is to say um, one like the Neo Surveyor mission, if it had been in place in 2014, it would have detected this object uh, because it's more sensitive and you would have seen it when it passed by the earth in 2014. And that would have given you a seven year warning and you, that would have opened up a host of different possible outcomes for this scenario. So you really want to have uh, an as sensitive asteroid survey, such as an EO surveyor, uh, that can detect objects at a larger distance, um, and that will give you more warning time, uh, in particular for space missions. 
the recovery uh, idea, even if you didn't have a, you know, didn't discover in 2014, the fact that you had archival images and you could pull out a detection from those, even if it was years later, that was pretty important and it helped narrow down the impact location in this case. Um, the estimated size range, uh, the large end is the dominant factor in your response. Um, so anything that can put an upper bound on the size of the asteroid, now whether that be space-based infrared, planetary radar, recon, whatever you can do to put a 99% chance that it's smaller than this size, that's essential in, uh, in disaster response. That, that's uh, a critical thing to do. So uh, in particular, a reconnaissance mission here would have really pinpointed the size of the asteroid um, and narrowed down that upper bound. Uh, and that would have helped a lot in this scenario. Um, final couple points, uh, the exercise provided valuable awareness, lines of communication within disaster response groups. We had uh, different countries involved. We had the UN um, you know, listening in. Uh, so it was interesting to, to, to open up uh, awareness in, uh, uh, within new groups uh, because of basically because a different area of the earth was at risk in this exercise. And it did uh, raise some key issues in communicating uncertain risks to the media and public, which I think will be a problem in any case, uh, regardless of the warning time. I will stop there. I hope I haven't run over, Nahum. Uh, well, it was worth it, I think, uh, in every respect, uh, except that the fact that this object is uh, hypothetical, everything was realistic about, you know, the scenario and the process that would be taken and the information that would be acquired over, uh, you know, those several months or years. Uh, I think it is just a fascinating uh, scenario, very, very educational and uh, as you said, we had about eight or nine of them over the last few years, uh, workshops and conferences, a lot of takeaways from these, and they cover a whole range of warning times, object sizes, locations, and uh, they cover a whole range. What I suggest that we do, we do run a little bit uh, over that we Sorry. leave Sorry those questions that. to the end, and okay. at the end there's going to be an open Q&A so in the, you know, respecting the agenda and those that are waiting in line to talk, I yeah. suggest we move straight to Randy Bell for talking about the bolides. So Randy is aerospace uh, person. I think he's going to talk about uh, a lot of uh, the work that is being done and has been done when he was, uh, before he was joining aerospace. So Randy, take it away. Randy, you are on mute. You might want to unmute yourself. <clears throat> Am I unmuted? Can you hear me? Now we can hear you. Yeah. Okay. What can you see on the screen? We see optical and infrasound detection of volites. Good. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that I'm in proper uh, presentation mode on this slide. Let's see if I can figure out how to, uh, well, um, for the sake of time, let me just, uh, jump right in. Um, and let me see, can you see me or in, so I, oh, apparently I'm not showing my face, am I? No, you we don't see, see my you. screen. 
Pedantier. I'm not sure. Okay, now you can see me. Okay, so I'm sharing my screen, and can you also see my face? Uh, yes, yes. yes, yes. Oh. <clears throat> Excellent. Yeah, Great. go ahead. Okay, so um, very quickly, uh, yes, uh, I began a lot of interest in um, bolides and um, uh, planetary defense. Back when I was working with the U.S. Department of Energy, I was involved in uh, a lot of uh, nuclear nonproliferation and uh, nuclear explosion monitoring. Uh, and then I had a opportunity to work internationally at the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty Organization, where I was also involved in global monitoring for nuclear explosions, mostly underground nuclear tests uh, like those conducted by North Korea. But the CTBTO, as it's called, CTBTO, um, has a worldwide network for monitoring air blasts. Uh, they use infrasound technology. Um, I no longer do that. Um, I'm now uh, working at the Aerospace Corporation on space nuclear power. And all of these interests uh, come together, as I'll explain throughout this talk. I won't go through my abstract. I will simply tell you what I'm going to speak about today. I want to talk briefly about optical detection of bolides, um, both from space and, let's see if uh, this point, I don't know if I'm using a pointer now, or can you um, can you see my hand on the screen? Yeah, yeah, we can see where you're pointing. Okay, so optical detection of bolides occurs from both space-based sensors, as I think Andrew mentioned earlier, as well as from ground-based optical systems. People set up cameras all over the globe that look upwards uh, towards the sky and can see streaks of light. Um, and all of this information can get coordinated by groups like the Minor Planet Center or the International Astronomical uh, Union. So we can catalog all of uh, or many of the um, dust particles or rocks of various sizes that are striking the earth every year. I will briefly mention infrasound bolide detection. Um, both the type we did at the CTBTO, the International Monitoring System that's watching the entire planet for nuclear tests, as well as other methods. And then try to motivate why this is useful for planetary defense. And at the very end, I'm going to link this to my current work where I'm working on nuclear propulsion. So detecting bolides by looking for uh, flashes of light from satellites. We've already seen this picture in an earlier presentation from Andrew. Um, and obviously, we note the URL down here. This is this is Paul's uh, website. This, this is where uh, um, seen us. Um, this is a data set that goes back many decades. Um, uh, the sources are U.S. government sensors. We won't get into exactly what sensors those are. 
um, or the details of those, there, there is a certain um, unfortunate lack of transparency into the precise nature of this data. But we can see that over the past many decades, there have been, oh, just under 900 events that have been recorded and plotted here, and more events uh, added every year. And for each of these events, we get um, the time, the location, sometimes the altitude and velocity, even a vector component, as well as the energy released, uh, an, an estimate of the energy released, both in joules and in kilotons. This kilotons is important um, because it gives you a feel for the size. That big red dot obviously is uh, the Chelyabinsk meteor, and that was about the equivalent, the approximate equivalent of 440 kilotons. That's a very large, that's larger than most nuclear blasts. Um, if you recall, uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki were on the order of 10 to 14 kilotons. So this was 440 kilotons approximately. Um, these are big detonations, big releases of energy occurring in our atmosphere, and there have been a lot of them over the last 30 years. But when you start digging into this data, the first thing you want to know is um, how good is the data? So just running a few, um, few analyses, yes, you're, you're averaging about, oh, 30 detections per year being added to this database. Pretty even by month, you're, um, if, if you summed up them all over, over the several decades, they're fairly evenly spread across months of the year and hours of the day and longitude around the planet. They're not so evenly spread by latitude, but if you think about it, surface area is not even by latitude either. So obviously in the mid-latitudes, one degree of arc occupies a lot more surface area than at the poles. So this is actually somewhat expected. You would expect this type of distribution. What all of this tells you is that this data set is pretty darn good. It's pretty darn uniform. It's pretty, pretty even around the planet and around the year uh, for many years in a row. So um, this, this gives you some comfort that the, um, even though you don't have a lot of transparency into where this data is coming from, it's pretty darn consistent and steady. But it's not the only data set out there. Um, more recently, starting in uh, just a couple of years ago, uh, NASA and NOAA put a um, geosynchronous lightning mapper instrument on the GOES weather satellites. So the last two GOES weather satellites, GOES 16 and 17, have this extra instrument that monitors lightning flashes. Well, if you're looking for lightning flashes, you're gonna see other things that cause flashes of light as well. And one thing that causes flashes of light in the sky are bolides hitting the atmosphere. 
<clears throat> now, this is not global. It's only the U.S. weather satellites. So um, we have one stationed over the Pacific and one stationed kind of over the Atlantic and a region of overlap here in the center. So what we have is we have a large collection of detections by um, uh, one of the GOES satellites, another large detection by the other, and a good overlap region. And although the satellite was first, the first of these was um, uh, GOES-16 was launched in uh, 2017, it took a while to go through commissioning and, and get the, um, uh, the, it wasn't designed for bolide detection, but people uh, worked on the algorithms and were able to uh, add this uh, capability to the data processing stream after a year or so. So late in 2019, the uh, routine analysis of the lightning data for bolides had come online, and now we have a large population of uh, bolide detects from these weather satellites. And again, let's look at the distribution of this data just to see what, it's, what it tells us. First of all, as I said, um, it's only been the last couple years. It's not exactly very even by month. And we look back and we realize that in November, we had a huge speak, huge peak. Well, we think that's probably the Leonids. And I, I talked with the, the operators who are doing this data processing, and they say this peak was largely around the date of the Leonids meteor shower. Um, so this is probably explainable. It's not really consistent by hour of the day. Um, so we need to dig into that a little bit. First of all, we recognize this is not global. Um, I should probably go back and check to see whether it's biased by local hour, local nighttime, local daytime. Because the data reported on the um, uh, JPL's Fireball website is global, it may be that any local daytime irregularities are smoothed out across the entire globe. And I'm um, so it may be worth some analysis to check that out, just to see whether we're seeing, um, uh, we, we would expect that we'd have just as many bolides hitting the earth at any hour of Greenwich Mean Time, uh, and, and there shouldn't be some sort of daily hump um, like this. So maybe it's a, a detection sensitivity of the instrument or some other anomaly, but we, this, this deserves a little further looking at. Obviously, down here in this uh, lower graph here, it's not distributed well by longitude because there's only two satellites over the Western Hemisphere. And there's an overlap region, so we're getting more detects in that overlap region than we are on the two wings. Um, and obviously, these are geosynchronous satellites, so they're not seeing the poles very well. So there's a hump near the equator and a lack of data around the poles. But what there is, is there's a lot more data. Oops, sorry, let me go back here. There are, um, there's over 2,000 events in just essentially a year or two. 
Compare that to the just under 900 events in several decades, you can see that GLM is seeing a lot more bolides um, and it's providing us this light curve information. For every bolide, you can see the, um, the rise in brightness, just like that slide that uh, Paul showed you of the Chelyabinsk meteorite uh, flying through the atmosphere. It's not one bright burst, it's a burn-up. And that burn-up has brightness peaks and then maybe a, a later explosion peak. So this light curve helps you understand the pattern of energy release of a bolide as it's moving along a track, a latitude and longitude track, so we can begin to calculate the vector and the maybe some, some physics about the breakup of the object that's coming in. So what I wanted to say here about GLM and the data that is presented on the JPL Fireballs website is, one provides us a long time history, the other provides us greater sensitivity and more insight, but over a shorter time history. And maybe by comparing the two, we can get a good understanding about uh, the longer time, the longer uh, time history. But these, these aren't the only systems that are seeing bolides. I mentioned all sky cameras. There are many cameras just looking up from the ground around the world that see streaks of light uh, across the sky. Um, you can uh, look up networks of these at many different, uh, uh, many different websites, the American Meteorological Society, the International Meteor Organization. There's a Sentinel All-Sky Camera, actually was set up by some friends of mine. Um, NASA has uh, uh, a link to um, NASA-run all-sky cameras, many more. So there's a variety of networks around the world. Here's a, the network in England is, uh, you know, shows typical density of some of these uh, all-sky cameras. A typical setup, um, you know, it's just a camera, a high-resolution camera looking at the sky. Um, what it sees is a streak of light. That streak of light is time tagged. From that, you can compute um, a vector or you can compute a direction. Maybe um, a vector information. And with that information, again, as, as Paul has already mentioned, you, that uh, can get passed to the International Media Organization um, to compute uh, a entry vector uh, from which an orbit can be calculated or estimated. And this is what, um, this is an important step for adding to our knowledge of sort of the, the populations of uh, um, meteor showers or objects. Perhaps with the light curve information, we can estimate something about the um, the composition of the object. What, uh, how did it break up? Was it a hard, rocky object? Was it a um, uh, just a little ball of aggregates? Some of these cameras come with spectrometers 
And from that, you might be able to make some estimate of the material composition of the, uh, uh, the object that entered. Uh, I, I want to quickly move on and, and briefly mention infrasound. So the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty Organization has an international monitoring network that's the purpose of this network is to give confidence to all of the uh, countries of the world that no one is violating the comp uh, any of the nuclear test ban treaties. One method of detecting a nuclear blast in the air is to listen for its air blast. And so they have established a network of infrasound sensors, air pressure wave sensors around the planet. And these are their defined locations um, specified in the treaty. And each one of these has a certain range around it that it can hear uh, small blasts, small blasts created by um, mining explosions. Um, these, uh, these sensors have detected uh, um, air blasts associated with uh, war with um, even airplanes passing overhead or uh, airplanes that have exploded in the sky, uh, obviously meteorites. Um, the Chelyabinsk meteor, uh, actually the sound wave passed around the planet and was detected by nearly all of these stations and the sound actually uh, went around the planet three whole times. So stations here in uh, like the Azor station heard it once, and then the sound traveled completely around the world, passed the Azor station a second time, traveled completely around the world, and the Azor station heard the third pass of the um, Chelyabinsk meteor, uh, the shock wave as it rang around the planet. Um, Obviously, that was a very big uh, air blast. Um, however, lots of other uh, meteorites, uh, sorry, bolides are being heard by a smaller number of these stations. This is just a, a typical uh, sound pattern for a bolide. This, this one happened to be uh, one on December, 7, uh, December 15th, 2017. And um, while I was the director of the CTBTO data center, I used to uh, tweet about these things. We didn't have any official mechanism to get bolide information out. That wasn't what we were supposed to look for. But this was a you know typical example of um, a bolide here in the um, in the Indian Ocean that was heard by four of our stations, and we had rough vectors from each of our stations and. Um, there was no observation of this, but we would run off to that uh, um, JPL Fireball's website and try to find a corresponding optical event to match this. Um, and we used bolides as surrogates for um, nuclear blasts because these bolide events are on the order of energy release of a nuclear blast. And I know, uh, you know, people estimate that, oh, only a, a couple of these large bolides hit per decade, but we were seeing, you know, a, 
multi-kiloton bolide uh, several times per year. And uh, 10 to 15 kiloton bolides uh, probably once a year. That's a scary thought that we could have um, a blast up in the atmosphere about the same size as the Hiroshima nuclear explosion about once a year. Now, it doesn't take an international monitoring system and uh, an international treaty organization to um, listen for bolides and fancy equipment. You can actually do this with your iPhone or your, your, your smartphone. Um, this is a, uh, <clears throat> a project being run out of the University of Hawaii where they've created a, um, an infrasound app. Uh, here you can see this link, Redvox, where uh, you can download this uh, um, infrasound app to your smartphone and your smartphone can become part of a network of other smartphones um, and you can measure uh, um, the, the, the application does uh, spectral analysis of the sub-audible, the infrasound signal that the, in, that the phone is picking up. It uses the GPS location of the phone, and you can even go into a precision mode that allows you to uh, link several phones together to try to build an array. And this, uh, several experiments have been run, mostly looking for things other than bolides. They're looking for um, uh, large explosions or rocket launches, um, or uh, the, the thought was to um, perhaps have everyone in the world or a large fraction of people in the world do this and use it as a nuclear explosion monitoring system but it occasionally detects bolides. And so here's a, a news report of a bolide over the um, big island in Hawaii. And there happened to be several phones that were running on this network, running this app, and they were able to uh, isolate the shock or the air pressure wave associated with that bolide entry and do a little analysis to triangulate the location and compare it to uh, the visual observation reports. So even uh, all of us can actually participate in this form of detection. <clears throat> um, also, weather satellites. This was a very popular, uh, a, a reasonably well-analyzed event. Um, if you go back to uh, uh, Paul's website there at JPL, the CNOS website, you can look at this particular event. It was about 50 kilotons, estimated to be about 50 kilotons. Um, it was on December 18th, 2018. And um, go back and check some weather satellites from Worldview. Um, and there's this interesting, uh, I don't know, spot on the cloud tops, along with this shadow um, that's projected onto the cloud tops. And this image was taken seven minutes after the time identi identified by that uh, JPL Fireballs website. So here is a 
what might be the sort of the, the um, some sort of contrail and a shadow of that contrail on the cloud tops captured by a weather satellite. Um, when we uh, when we recognized this, we immediately ran out and tried to find if there had been any uh, overflights by commercial aircraft and whether there were pilot reports. We didn't have too much luck on that front, but just another way one might try to go about detecting bolides. So why do we want to do this? Well, first of all, none of the systems I've mentioned cover the entire planet in a comprehensive way. The, the JPL's Fireball website, sure, it covers the entire globe, but um, only down to a certain sensitivity. The Global Lightning Mapper has detected far more events, but only over the Western Hemisphere mid-latitudes. The CTBTO infrasound system kind of covers the entire planet and might see it using its audio uh, capability, might see things that uh, the optical systems haven't seen. So we'd like to fill in the observational gaps. We'd like to extrapolate from the detections that might be made by a high sensitivity, high sensitivity local system to a global um, statistic. So we want to fill and extrapolate. That's one thing we want to do. Um, there's also some hope that maybe by looking at uh, uh, multiple phenomenologies will have a better understanding of the events themselves. And why do we want to do that? Well, you've seen this chart earlier in the presentation, this uh, <clears throat> um, what can we do if we know about something? If, our, if we have warning time, can we um, push it kinetically? Can we pull it with a tractor? Do we have to use a nuclear blast to, uh, to give it enough energy to move it? Or do we just, frankly, uh, live with it? Do we, uh, do we perform a civil defense action? If we knew more about the object, um, we might be able to make better decisions about how to affect um, the object. And obviously, human history is really um, only in the uh, only with the objects that are down here in the green area. So we'd like to better understand the whole population of objects out there. So um, we'd like to compare the many sources. What are their attributes? Do what what parameters do they provide us? Um, coverage. Uh, as I as I've mentioned, is kind of one of our weak points. GLM, the the Global Lightning Mapper, great sensitivity, but only covers the Western Hemisphere. JPL Fireballs covers the whole world, but maybe doesn't have the sensitivity. <clears throat> all sky cameras are local, but if we add them all together, we should be able to see more. So far, only all sky cameras have spectrometers. Um, but so far, there's no good cross-referencing of all of these sources. 
Um, every time someone wants to do a study, and this is one study by um, uh, Paul uh, Peter Brown up at the uh, University of Western Ontario, he was trying to measure the efficiency of the CTBTO International Monitoring System Network. And so he tried to go out and correlate what does the CTBT infrasound system see versus what does uh, the JPL Fireballs website report. Um, he had to basically go through both databases by hand and manually correlate things. Um, I've done this myself. I've had to go through and manually correlate. Once we start adding the GLM Fireballs website, in, sorry, the Global Lightning Mapper uh, website, which is um, uh, generated by AIM, NASA Ames Laboratory. We've got too many events to go out there and manually do this every time we want to study. It'd be nice to have some platform that cross-correlated these things uh, and, and helped us uh, <clears throat> find out whether events are being detected by one versus the other or multiple systems. And that would give us better insight into total numbers. And then we could go on to maybe do this multi-physics, multi-phenomena analysis, where we take the light curves that show the, um, the intensity of the breakup of a bolide with the sound curves that um, uh, may be also a surrogate for yield. Combine that with modeling. This is uh, uh, Mark Boslow formerly at Sandia, formerly at Los Alamos, and a, a well-known uh, entity here in the, uh, the bolide community. He's done a lot of uh, computer modeling of breakup of um, asteroid or meteorites as they, uh, they enter the atmosphere. If you combine all of this physics together, the hope is one gets a better understanding of the object and its effect on um, uh, the Earth down below. So perhaps with optical and infrasound and spectrometer data, we'll have a better understanding of the object itself. And that, again, uh, tells us more about the, the nature of the population where, uh, that this object came from. Um, the, as I was mentioning earlier, the sum of human experience is only with the smallest of objects. Uh, and frankly, I think there's a lot more objects hitting the Earth than is commonly recognized by the general population. So the entire multi-decade history reported there on the JPL Fireballs website is only 800 events over 33 uh, decades, one of which was down here at this level. All the rest have been down in this uh, very low size. Um, human knowledge goes out to this event, Tunguska, and we're, but these are the ones we have to be worried about here. So, um, now, I want to do a little bit of an aside here. 
the both Paul and Nahum talked about uh, deflection exercises, and you've seen this chart before, uh, coming from the international arms control community, there's a lot of challenges with using a uh, nuclear explosive device, I, I won't call it a weapon, but using a nuclear explosive device to push a, uh, um, a potentially earth impacting object off onto a different trajectory. Um, we have a lot of treaties in place and there's every uh, time the Planetary Defense Conference meets, they have a whole section, a whole session on how to deal with uh, the le international legality of using a nuclear explosive, uh, explosion. But if we could get more mass on the target for the same launch mass, maybe we could push a little harder. And that's my own personal passion nowadays with nuclear propulsion systems and nuclear power, not nuclear explosions, to put a bigger push on that asteroid so perhaps we could use kinetic push powered by a nuclear reactor instead of a nuclear explosion. But a lot of this stuff only works if we have some knowledge of what we're pushing, if we understand the rock that we're gonna push. Is it a pile of aggregate or is it a solid rock? Will it hold together as we push it? Um, I don't have all the answers. I just wanted to introduce folks to the fact that we have a long history of observing impacts um, or insults that our planet has uh, experienced. In our recent human history, we have built tools that allow us to observe these things for almost uh, all of the events that have been recorded by the JPL website and the GLM website and the CTBTO infrasound system, there was almost no foreknowledge. Um, in most of these cases, the first indication we had that this object was coming at us was the, um, the flash in the sky. In fact, as Paul mentioned in his last presentation, um, when the Chelyabinsk meteor, uh, sorry, the Chelyabinsk fireball occurred, he had actually been planning a conversation, a public discussion of another object that was going to pass the Earth on the other side. We didn't know that uh, Chelyabinsk object was coming at us. Um, and now some of these objects are hundreds of kilotons of releasing hundreds of kilotons of energy. If one of those objects was to say, uh, hit over a region of tense conflict, say two nuclear armed uh, adversaries on hair trigger alert, it would be useful to be able to tell them that, no, that wasn't a nuclear explosion, that was a bolide. Um, anyways. I always said that as uh, the head of the CTBTO or earlier, I would rather prevent World War III than tally the score. It would be nice if we could use these 
capabilities to tell people that that bright flash and that dozen kilotons of explosion was not a new, was not a human event. It was a natural event. So we've had a useful history of detection. It'd be nice if we could cross-reference across the several systems. Um, we have an expectation that if we can uh, do this um, cross-referencing, we might be able to do multi-platform, multi-phenomena analysis to improve our knowledge of understanding and provide more insight into the, the objects themselves and the populations. Thank you very much. Thank you, Randy. Um, super interesting presentation and information. Uh, it's cool to uh, recognize that this topic could be part of a citizen scientist activity that can help in gathering this information that could be interpreted for safety. <clears throat> and also several questions were uh, raised in terms of uh, how do we distinguish between an explosion that is uh, of natural cause versus something else? And sounds like this could be one of those methods. Uh, there were several questions that were asked in the chat here, and it probably will take some time to even read them. So, Randy, if that is okay, I suggest to come back to this later and move on to the next talk, uh, which is by John F. from the East Coast as well. Uh, we don't want to, um, you know, go over time too much. And maybe you can push the remaining questions to just a little bit later. Uh, you have time to read through those questions here and maybe have some answers for this. But that was a super interesting talk, Randy. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And I can spend a little time uh, responding to some of the answer, uh, some of the questions in the chat. Excellent. And yeah, you and can I'll, just type I'll in answers forever. OK, thank you so much, Randy. So I think with that, we will move to our next talk, which is by Joe Naff uh, on the Cyrus Rex. He is uh, uh, on the mission team, and he can probably fill us with the latest information on that mission that is on its way back to Earth with actual samples from an asteroid. So Joe, take it away. All right, the standard question is, can you see my screen? We can see your screen and we can hear you very well. Okay, that sounds great. And uh, gentlemen, meet the enemy, we, I we guess. Can, we can see you, Joe, but not your screen. Oh, uh, yeah, we cannot see your screen. Yeah, that's right. You need to share your screen. I did that, but let me try it again and, uh, and see what happened. Okay, drop that down. <clears throat> Okay, let me try sharing it again. Okay, let's try this. Share and go back to the beginning. Yep, now we can see your screen. All right, and uh -huh. put it into the... Perfect, it's even moving. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you can see it then. Yeah, yeah, very well. And here you well. All right, great. All right, as I was saying, meet the enemy. 
Um, Bennu is one of the most hazardous objects with a fairly reasonable chance of hitting the Earth. Fairly reasonable being, you know, one in 1700 or something like that uh, over the next in the next century. So I'm not too worried about it. Maybe my children should be. But um, in any case, uh, I'm going to tell you about the OSIRIS-REx sample return mission. And I'm going to start out by basically telling you why we do it, or at least one of the motivations for it. If you really want to understand the chemistry and sometimes the physics of various astronomical events, especially the origin of the solar system, the formation of the planets, the kind of organic materials that were present at the start of the, uh, at the beginning of the Earth, as an example, uh, the origin of life, well, there are a couple of ways of doing it. Remote observations are one. You can do simulations and you can do lab analysis. Some of these samples actually come to Earth. So that's a nice thing. Uh, if you pick these samples up, you can do some pretty fancy chemistry on them to understand what they contain. What were the starting materials, as an example? What were the organic starting materials uh, for the... Um, origin of life processes on the surface of the planet. Now, if you get into the details of collecting the samples, um, you can find meteorites that have lain in fields for maybe decades, possibly centuries. Uh, they are obviously contaminated, potentially. And when you do the organic analysis, it is sometimes difficult to tell what is pristine and what is a contamination. You can go to find fresh falls. This is Amahatasita, and little fragments uh, were collected in the desert weeks and months after the fall. Uh, they are better, but they are still contaminated in this case. You can go to the Antarctic or some other places where the samples were isolated for centuries. Uh, they're easy to find in the sense that if you're looking in the middle of a glacier and you find a rock there, it is pretty clear that it fell from the sky and not necessarily was picked up from some point upstream. The best, of course, is to go to the source, and that's what OSIRIS-REx does. Uh, we hope to get samples that have the least contamination uh, and basically are the best documented uh, of all these sample types in order to understand the chemistry of the early solar system. The other reason for bringing samples back rather than loading instrumentation on the spacecraft and trying to understand what's there is, for one, there are lots of varieties of information that you can get once you bring the sample back to the Earth. Um, second, there are instruments that fill entire laboratories or indeed entire buildings. Uh, those obviously cannot be loaded onto a spacecraft. And finally, future scientists are going to invent new instruments, make measurements we don't even think of at the moment. And indeed, if uh, this is not fantasy, because the nanosims, as an example, is now being applied to lunar samples, and the nanosims did not exist at the time that Apollo was bringing back lunar samples. So the, uh, the samples that we bring back will keep on giving in the future as new theories arise, new measurements are made by new instrumentation and new scientists. So let's get back to the OSIRIS-REx mission itself. 
OSIRIS-REx is an acronym, as are most things with NASA. And the acronym basically talks about what we want to do. Origins is understanding, return, and analyze a sample of pristine carbonaceous asteroid regolith. If we do that, we can also interpret the spectrum of an individual asteroid and hopefully apply that spectral interpretation to a wide range of asteroids to get more understanding of the entire population. While you're doing that, if you understand the population, you can identify resources that are in space, and that may come in handy in the future when we intend to mine asteroids, mainly for water, I would guess, but uh, there are many other things, of course, that you can mine an asteroid for. Uh, this, the S here is for security. We want to measure the Arkofsky effect so that we can understand how these asteroids move around in their orbit their non-Newtonian effects. And a regolith explorer, we want to document the regolith that's at the site where we collect the spacecraft down to sub-centimeter um, scales. So that's the OSIRIS-REx acronym. As, we've as has been discussed previously, there are lots and lots of asteroids out there in space. We passed more than a million at the beginning of the year. Paul's got us up to uh, 1,100,000 asteroids. Uh, at the time of the OSIRIS-REx formulation, we had about 500,000 asteroids to choose from, 7,000 7, near-Earth asteroids. Some with nominal orbits, we were looking to narrow the size down to something greater than 200 meters. Of these, there were only five that were carbon-rich, and we selected Bennu partially because we had Arecibo data that allowed us to construct a map of the surface of the asteroid, and it looked pretty smooth. Didn't see all those boulders that were there. Um, and it's about 500 meters in diameter, roughly speaking. Uh, the spacecraft has a payload deck, which has infrared cameras, visible cameras, uh, laser rangers, um, this is the sample return capsule. This obviously is the high gain antenna. This is where the sampler is. This is the sampler here, the TAGSAM. It folds up and was stored in this box for launch. So that's the spacecraft. Here are the instrumentations in detail. It's got a visible infrared spectrometer. That's the OSIRIS-REx visible infrared spectrometer. Uh, goes from 0.4 to 4.3 microns. The thermal emission spectrometer from ASU is from 5 to 50 microns. OCAMS is a suite of individual cameras that have different purposes. Uh, Polycam is both a telescope and a microscope, actually, to look at the surface and initially detect the, uh, the target. SAMCAM images the place where we do the tag, and you'll, show, you'll see a lot of SAMCAM images. And the primary workhorse in terms of collecting images was MapCam uh, that was used to uh, make the image that, was, uh, that I started with and to basically guide the spacecraft down to the surface. Uh, Ola is a laser altimeter. Rexus was a student experiment that mapped the X-ray elemental abundances on the surface. And of course, many um, spacecraft use the antenna to do radio science so that you can basically get the 
mass, gravity field, and some information on the internal structure and uh, surface acceleration. And we needed that to plot the uh, course of the spacecraft down to the surface. The sample collection system is on the end of a three meter arm. It basically looks like a car air filter if you want to look at it that way, except the car air filter basically works back backwards. Instead of TAGSAM, which stands for the touch and go sample acquisition mechanism, at one point we called this the MUCAV, which was vacuum spelled backwards. And the reason for that is that the uh, system works by squirting gas at high pressure into the regolith. And then as the gas flows back out, it collects it along this screen. Uh, here is a diagram of the TAGSAM system. The gas is in high pressure bottles up here. We have three of them so that we could have made three attempts to collect sample. We didn't need to do that. We only needed one. The gas comes out initially at about 3,000 PSI. It fluidizes the regolith. The regolith and gas basically flow out the air filter and get collect. The, the gas goes out and the solids get collected in a, uh, an annular trough here. It's a long way from a concept to launch. Uh, that's basically what this is meant to illustrate. Work on the TAGSAM development actually began in 1981, and our launch was in 2016. Uh, aside from just the long time scale to develop the TAGSAM, there were a number of proposal attempts so that we could get funding to put the system together. Uh, I got involved with the project back in 2000, well, before 2006, in order to uh, start with a discovery proposal. Um, that was not successful. It made it to step two, but basically we could not convince the panel that we could do the mission for the cost of a discovery mission. And in 2020 hindsight, they were right. There, there was no way to do a sample return mission on a discovery budget to that kind of uh, asteroid. Anyway, um, we launched in 2016 after lots and lots of reviews. Uh, here was the team just before the launch. Uh, there were there are numerous organizations involved, which I'm not going to go through, but that's true of most space missions. They're very large teams, each of which provides particular expertise uh, and a particular, uh, in some cases, particular instruments. So. In terms of the, uh, the timeline, uh, the idea is that the, uh, we thoroughly map the asteroid, basically from the uh, time that we approached. We had several different orbital mapping campaigns that narrowed down our potential uh, site our sample collection site, and then we had uh, several more detailed reconnaissance studies in order to understand the properties of those potential sites in detail before we even started the rehearsals to look at going down to the surface and collecting a sample. So this was a very detailed campaign, very time-consuming campaign. And as I said, with Discovery, we would not have had the budget to actually do this kind of uh, thorough reconnaissance of the asteroid. 
Now, in terms of uh, Bennu, it's sort of intermediate between the Japanese target, Ryugu, which is about a kilometer in uh, diameter, to, and it's about the same length, if you want to look at it that way, as Itakawa, uh, but it's obviously round rather than a uh, binary, a contact binary. So this is the target of our mission. It is a Type B asteroid. Um, during this mission, we had a couple of Guinness World Records. Basically, we orbited closer to a body than anybody ever had previously, and we, ordered, we orbited the smallest body ever orbited. Um, that probably will change in the future. I'm sure that uh, new missions will basically get a little closer and do some other things, but for now, we've got the Guinness World Record for those, for, for what it's worth. For the science side of things, there were lots of interesting observations. Um, for one, the surface was completely covered with boulders. Uh, Hayabusa 2 had that experience when they first got to Ryugu. Um, I remember talking to some of the, the people there and they were really worried that that would happen. Uh, sorry, they were really worried about how they were perform their mission that when they saw all of those boulders, and in our case, uh, I was kind of hoping that a type B would look different than a type C, and it didn't. Uh, so we had similar problems. When we first looked at going to Bennu, we had a um, sample uh, ellipse, a sampling ellipse that was about 30 meters or so in diameter. There's no place on Bennu that has a 30 meter clear space clear space of large boulders, that is, uh, to do sampling. So we didn't know that, but on the way, we had started to develop a terrain mapping system that would allow us to do terrain-guided navigation uh, to bring us to a particular spot in a much tighter um, circle. On the, on the boulders that we had found, there were many thermal cracks. There were a variety of... Um, Morphologies of the boulders, bright ones, dark ones, um, smooth, uh, lots of thermal cracking in this case. Uh, ridges, if you look, there are you know bright boulders on top of large ones. You have smooth boulders and obviously very hummocky and rocky uh, aggregates of boulders in many different scales, almost whatever scale you want to look at. Um, in terms of the um, composition, uh, there was a 2.7 micron water band detected in the spectra pretty much wherever you looked. In fact, it was always there. It just varied slightly in the intensity of the water band. Uh, there were hydrated minerals, phyllosilicates, carbons, or, uh, carbonate, organics, and magnetite. Uh, the Bennu spectrum is a close match to CINCM, uh, chondrite meteorites, pretty much like Orgay. Uh, plus, it's got rocks on the surface that actually have spectra that would um, basically say that it's an HED, if you only saw those particular rocks. So the potential is that we have exogenous material on the surface that comes from the asteroid Vesta. And if you look closely at the rocks, here's a blow up of the spot right here you can see that some of these boulders basically have carbonate veins that are 
potentially indicative of the fact that you had flowing liquid water that actually um, did hydrous alteration and metamorphism on the surface of the, uh, of the asteroid. When we went to Bennu, what we expected was that the boulders would have high thermal inertia and the uh, dusty regolith would have low thermal inertia. In fact, what we found was exactly the opposite. The boulders were big fluff balls, basically, uh, or at least they had very low thermal inertia. As the boulders broke down, it seems that the thermal inertia increased. And so that would tell you that the density of the regolith is a little higher. And so you get a little more thermal inertia because you contact more of the area of the asteroid. So this was a complete reversal of what we were expecting. We also measured the Yorp effects. And based on that, we had uh, an estimate that the rotation changes by roughly one second per century. So it indicates that it's a loose rubble pile. And the Yarkovsky effect measured basically from the start uh, when um, Bennu was first discovered through the end of the mission showed that uh, it altered Bennu's position by roughly 185 kilometers over the 12 year period uh, that we were active. We also saw something from close up that had never really been seen before, namely particle ejections from the surface of the asteroid. Uh, these are still um, kind of controversial, not controversial that they happen, but controversial as to what actually causes them. Uh, you're, you're watching the asteroid and all of a sudden there is a particle burst that comes out. These were tracked. Uh, some of them were in orbit for days, uh, others fell back onto the surface. So the ones that fell back on the surface were a pretty obvious answer to the question about why there might be exogenous light material or whatever on the surface of dark boulders on the surface. So these things obviously fell back to, uh, to Bennu and uh, and bounced around so it's sort of a continuous resurfacing process the two primary sites that we selected uh, for the sampling attempt were small craters basically the nightingale site which was the primary site was uh, and uh, yeah close to the north pole the osprey site the backup was closer to the equator um, you can see that in both cases, you have some large boulders sitting close nearby. This is a five meter scale bar. And remember I had said before that we were looking at a 30 meter radius uh, sampling circle. So that wouldn't work. We had gotten the radius much closer, uh, much, sorry, much smaller, uh, thanks to the terrain guided navigation. Um, in this case, for the primary site, that was Mount Doom. We were worried about sampling and then coming up and snagging our uh, solar arrays. And for 12 o'clock rock, we were looking at the danger of even hitting that if we were off by about five or six meters in, in the sampling. There were advantages and disadvantages to each of the site. The North Pole basically was the lowest albedo and the lowest relative surface temperature. So we could get potentially uh, volatiles in this sample if there were there. 
had a large color variation, which talked about the possibility of a diverse suite of materials. It was also a fairly young surface so that it did not undergo a long uh, history of surface degradation due to uh, space weathering. Bennu's equator also had some pluses and minuses. You had diversity of rock types, uh, possibly northern and southern materials would be collected there. It did have the strongest signature for carbon-rich material, the four sites, and it had a reasonable color variation. But we went with uh, the Nightingale site and went to TAG, which is the touch and go sample analysis, uh, touch and go sample acquisition. And so the um, way you do that is we were in polar orbit, you leave polar orbit, you first go to the, um, longitude, the latitude that you wanna collect, you match, you check that, you come down, and now you're going to match the surface rotation of the sample here, uh, sorry, of the sampling site here. You come down to the surface, you touch it and you're gone. We were on the surface for less than about uh, eight seconds, roughly speaking, uh, out of all that. This is the Nightingale site. And so we were looking to tag here. That is in the center of the safe area. These are all dangerous for one reason or another. We ended up actually tagging here. So we were 73 centimeters off. Um, our navigation team was pretty good. This is following that tag SAM arm down to the surface. This is the sample camera, which is this. This is the image from the nav cam, which basically was guiding this whole process based on landmarks that were identified in the system. You can see here Right about now, I think, is when the uh, TAG-SAM arm shadow should be coming into the picture. And we're just about to touch the surface here. I'll go back to this and another thing later in the uh, camera. We're touching. We blew the uh, 3,000 PSI nitrogen bottle. We're collecting sample. And now we're pulling back out. That was the duration of the uh, entire mission, basically. The entire mission, uh, prime science was dedicated on that six or eight seconds working perfectly. And it did. Um, so then we had material scattered basically both from the gas bottle that um, fluidized the regolith sample and from the thruster plume, which also scattered the material that was blown out by uh, the SAMCAM action. If you want to look at it as a uh, in a simple diagram, we contacted at T equals zero. Um, the head sank about five centimeters in between the time that the first contact was noted and the time that the gas bottle blew. So the surface was pretty porous and uh, easy to penetrate. When the gas bottle blew, it blew for about six seconds. It goes down exponentially. Um, by the time that the gas bottle was empty, we had gone almost half a meter into the surface. 
the thrusters fired and we continued to sink into the surface for the first couple seconds and then basically uh, reversed course on the 16 uh, and, uh, and exited the surface of, of Bennett. So that's basically the sequence. We, uh, like I said, we spent about five or six seconds collecting sample as this, this gas fired and we sank into the surface. The interesting thing about that is that this is the sample camera uh, image, which I'll show you in a bit, just before we contacted the surface. These are the uh, spacecraft inertial uh, maneuvering unit um, time traces. And you can see that when we touched the surface, there was very little resistance. Uh, the, SAM, the tag SAM was mounted on an arm, and the arm had a 65, um, pass, uh, ugh, 65 Newton spring, constant force spring, that was meant to keep it against the surface uh, in case things moved around a little bit. And that basically did not compress at all. The total force spike in this initial period before the gas fired was less than 20 Newtons total of 20 Newtons uh, before that gas fired. Then when the gas fired, that's basically the equivalent of a thruster pulse, that 3000 PSI um, gas flowing into the surface was enough to show a significant acceleration on the spacecraft in that case. So the surface has very little cohesion, is extremely porous and under dense in this case. This is the before and after image of the tag site. The before was pretty obvious. The after image we didn't get until April 7th when we went back and did a final reconnaissance before we left. This was a decision the team made that basically was not supposed to happen. Once we collected the sample, we were going to get out of Dodge and never come back uh, basically, we worried about risking the sample. But the collection was so interesting and unique that we went back in order to see what the changes at the site are. You can see that we blew a fairly reasonable hole in the uh, sample site as the gas drilled into the surface with the tag SAM. You can see that the disturbance that was made by the combination of the, the uh, tag gas and the thruster plumes made a significant impact on the surface, blew things out, made you know, lines of rocks that were here, around here, some motions up here. All that's gonna be analyzed basically over the next several years in terms of the dynamics of the surface and what it tells you about the surface of the asteroid. When we collected the sample, what we had intended to do was extend the arm and rotate the spacecraft. We had done that previously with this tag, uh, the tag SAM sticking out. And so we had measured the thermal inertia of the spacecraft with an empty tag SAM. We were then going to measure the thermal inertia of the spacecraft with a sample filled tag SAM in order to compare the two uh, and basically try to determine what the mass of the sample that we had collected was. It turned out that we didn't do the sample mass measurement. We canceled that because when we looked at it with the camera, we had sample leaking out of the system. 
Um, the other thing that I want to show you in this image is all of these individual spots are effectively stainless steel Velcro. And those pushed into the surface should also, and they did, uh, collect small particles. Uh, in, so we had two different sampling mechanisms. One was when we shoved this into the surface and collected material with the Velcro. The other is when we pushed this into the surface and blew the sample bottles so that the fluidized sample effectively was trapped in the annulus inside here, right through here. So we did not do the sample mass measurement in this case. Instead, we went directly to sample stow. We put the sample into the sample return canister. And once we did that, we actually then blew this arm uh, off with uh, the guillotine. And so once this was cut, it was pulled out of the way and we stowed the sample and we are then prepared to bring it home. The summary, if you want to look at it, is uh, basically on the left. Basically, we have lots and lots and lots of images of asteroid Bennu in many different forms and factors. This ranging from basically the first image of Bennu that was taken by Polycam in 2018 as we did the approach. This is the final uh, approach on TAGSAM. The image here is the image just before contact. The image next to that is the image just after contact. And you can see that not only was the TAGSAM sinking into the regolith, but it was also affecting regolith about a diameter or more of the tag SAM away. A lot of this was interconnected and moving. So the we will get more and more interesting um, studies of the surface dynamics out of these images as time goes on. The last pass over Nightingale, as I said, was April 7th in 2021. We left for the Earth on May 10th of 2021. We will arrive back at Dugway Proving Ground on September 24th, 2023. Um, pretty much at that point, the uh, sample return capsule gets ejected, spacecraft gets diverted from Earth. We may go to another target depending on the, uh, on the results of a senior review. Um, the SRC gets recovered and transported to Johnson Space Center for opening. The idea is that we have six months after we bring the sample back to JSC to produce a catalog of all the samples that we've returned. We can't analyze more than 25% of the total sample, um, but we have two years to do those analyses. That's built into the program. 75% of the sample will be stored and curated uh, for some number of years, as I said, for that uh, little kid who's just being born and about to uh, invent new instruments that will be used to analyze this sample. We will do an awful lot of analysis, though, within that first two years to set the stage for those new measurements. 
So um, that pretty much is the end of the update that I had for you guys on OSIRIS-REx. And I'm perfectly happy to take questions. Thank you, Joe. Um, very interesting. If I remember correctly, uh, there was some citizen scientist project involved when you approached Penu and discovered that uh, uh, the landing site is not so easily to identify. And I think if you remember, you engaged the public with trying to help finding where to land. Did this produce any helpful information? Um, not for the landing sites. On the other hand, there were a lot of citizen science that was basically trying to understand the boulder population, counting boulders in various regions, looking at the distribution of boulders over the surface, seeing whether there were any patterns. Uh, there's the possibility that there were um, effectively systematic or interconnected landslides or the potential for tremors so that boulders were lying along various uh, lines that would intersect. So there, it was an awful lot of, um, I hate to say grunt work, but that really was what it was. There was a lot of identifying boulders, counting them, looking at size distributions, and then trying to understand the patterns of those distributions. Great. Uh, is there a very quick question for Joe? Uh, he's on the East Coast, so we try not to push it too late for him. I'm fine at the moment. <laughs> okay. Hey, Joe, it's Paul here. Yes, sir. Hey, nice talk. Um, Thank you. Um, you said something about the boulders being pretty porous. And I'm wondering how crushable the boulders were, and and if it if it turns out they it was not so hazardous if you should hit one because they would literally disintegrate. I'm just wondering if that was uh, discussed. Yes, it was discussed, and the um, and there were two answers to that, which both basically said don't do it. Uh, <laughs> the first was um, yes, it it could work very nicely. Um, on the other hand, you might crush them on the way down, but what the hell happens on the way back up? Um, you know, do you actually get kind of stuck in, in the boulder? Even, even if it is a, uh, a marshmallow, do you actually try to bring the marshmallow back up with you? Um, so, so that was a, a kind of no. And the other answer was, well, suppose you hit the one that isn't a marshmallow. <laughs> and so... Um, you know as well as I do that NASA is about as conservative an organization, or at least the project management part of the organization, uh, as you can find. Uh, it was obvious that what we were going to do then was to stick to plan and go where we knew we could collect sample. Uh, and basically what we were looking for, the TAGSAM had an acceptance uh, range in particles. We couldn't collect anything that was larger than about two to three centimeters on a side because it wouldn't fit in the sample collection annulus. It wouldn't fit through into that. Right. So right. Uh, we could see, thanks to Polycam, that there were many sampleable particles that were uh, sized less than two centimeters at both the um, Nightingale and the um, Osprey site. And so those were the places that we knew we could collect sample. We knew we could get it. 
And the only danger there was basically not hitting the target directly and hitting one of the large rocks or boulders that were around it. But the answer is yes, some of us really wanted to do that. And in fact, there was some discussion about possibly going back and poking it with the, uh, with the robot arm that no longer had the tag SAM on it. Um, but that was a no-no until we deliver the sample. Very creative. <laughs> Mado, did you have anything to sure. question? Um, Joe, is there, is there any indication about um, uh, the um, hollowness of such a uh, rubble pile? Uh, uh, is there, could you tell something from uh, the sampling, whether the interior is hollow or? No, it's not hollow. Um, there were a lot of studies of the gravitational um, field. And so you're looking at the moments of the gravitational acceleration that you get going around there. It was not hollow. Um, but it certainly was under dense. There were obvious, um, I guess the best way to put it is that the voids may have ranged from basically micro-sized voids in boulders and things to uh, larger voids on the meters and tens and uh, tens of meter scale uh, between boulders uh, all over the surface and into the interior. So this literally is a rubble pile. It, it did not shake itself down into something that you would think is compact. Uh, there is lot, there's a lot of open space in there. Uh, one, not a lot in the sense that you, know, you, you could uh, live down in a cave, but there is a lot of, relatively speaking, open space. Uh, yes. So. The, uh, the whole idea of the composition, how it evolved that way, how it got to that point, um, what it's made of, uh, especially the mystery of the big thermal inertia difference between what we expected for boulders versus what we actually found for the boulders on OSIRIS-REx. Um, some of the team, and it's a minority view, um, and that includes me, uh, think that OSIRIS-REx target, the OSIRIS-REx target Bennu as a B-type asteroid is basically a dead comet. It's a comet that lost most of its volatiles. Uh, there are still some interior, There's, there would still be some water on the interior that could potentially have powered the particle emission that we saw. And it could also, if you think about putting in microgravity, a big mixture of snow, together with uh, particles and then allowing that to evaporate, the materials that would, as the uh, water vapor evaporates, the, the silicate grains basically stick together at a point, leaving lots of hollow spaces and bad connections, if you want to think of it that way, uh, throughout that body. And so what you're making is a very, very good insulator, uh, effectively much better than shuttle tiles in, in that respect. And so if you break that up, because OSIRIS-REx, the target of OSIRIS-REx Bennu, is a rubble pile and is a secondary asteroid type, if you want to look at it that way, those big fluffy boulders basically um, aggregating together would give you the stuff that we see. And, um, and the, the 3,000 PSI um, gas now seems to have been excessive. Did the 
did you uh, uh, launch some of the stuff into orbit around Ben? Yes, we did. Uh, some of the material would have gone into orbit. Uh, the 3000 PSI wasn't really excessive because we didn't know what we were going to find, That's of right. course. <laughs> um, and remember, the 3000 PSI is only at the initial, you know, microsecond that the yeah. gas is released. These are little lecture bottles. And so the 3000 PSI quickly bleeds down into a much lower pressure. Yes, you mentioned that. Mm hmm. And Joel, do you think do you think that thank you, Madhu, do you think that uh, there are some insights coming out of this mission that might inform the mining industry that is being formed uh, to? Uh, if they're mining B-type asteroids, and if B-type asteroids are very similar, they're two big ifs, of course. Um, then certainly you could. Uh, <laughs> There's no equipment really in terms of you know big excavators needed. All you really have to do is uh, the equivalent of the way they do dredging. Uh, you you know put your pipe down with high pressure gas, and you have a return hose, and the material basically comes flowing right back up to you. Um, it's a combination, of course, of microgravity. Uh, 500 meters, you know, really small, 10 to minus 5 g or something, and the uh, and the gas pressure that allows you to manipulate the material as if it were a fluid in that case. And so, yeah, mining on these would be very, very easy. Yeah, it sounds like you don't need any heavy engineering equipment there. You just come with a scoop and put it into a bucket and make uh, fuel or whatever it is that you want to make out of this. <laughs> yeah, well, you certainly need at least something that will give you a high pressure. So that you, you need a working fluid. And if you're going to do that, you probably also need a way to recover that fluid at the end. Otherwise, you have to bring really big tanks of gas. Yeah. But Joe, please stay away from Bennu. Uh, that's a dangerous asteroid. Don't, don't do any engineering on Bennu. Um, I mean, we're already having you know, trouble making sure it doesn't hit the Earth 200 years from now. Uh, so Bennu and Apophis, you don't want to don't touch them, please. <laughs> no, I completely, well, I agree with you now, but you realize that we have 200 years to go mine it and make it into nothing. <laughs> well, then you have a deadline. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you, Joe. Uh, I think there might be a question or two in the chat. Take a look and uh, feel free to either answer in the chat or verbally in a short while. And in the benefit of time, we'll move on to our next talk by uh, Monica Maynard. She's our STEM coordinator here at the Aerospace Corporation uh, and in charge of running some of those workshops that we mentioned earlier. And she actually also engages with real research. So uh, Monica, please talk about water. Thank you. All right, let me see. Yeah, our precious resource, water. And if can All right, put your are you able there. to see my presentation now? Yeah, yeah, okay. very good. Um, so this, uh, this project actually came out of curiosity. I had been in touch with Nahum, obviously, um, and his work and followed his work. Uh, but I also began graduate school last fall and in one of my, my water quality class, uh, we were looking at different aspects of uh, 
potential contamination sources of, of water in, in watersheds and in aquifers. And so I started looking uh, this subject up and, and I couldn't find anything that had to do with asteroids hitting Earth and, um, and actually affecting the water um, resources. There are a few things, so I was able to find a couple of things. So, um, so I'm that's what I'm going to talk about today. And then using a web-based program to kind of simulate a few, a few impacts. So it's uh, it's potential long-lasting effects um, on on groundwater specifically, and uh, kind of focusing on coastal aquifers uh, from an asteroid impact. So um, Nahum was one of my mentors in this project, as well as uh, Dr. Barry Hips from Castro LA, who's my graduate advisor as well. So just a quick introduction, as I said, this came out of curiosity, like what would happen if, the, if an asteroid hit LA, let's say, a highly populated area, and um, and what would happen to our water resources? So again, these are our potentials. Um, they have happened in the past, and uh, there is one uh, one case that has been studied. This happened about 35 million years ago, uh, where an asteroid or comet impacted uh, the east coast of the United States, and it left a crater that is still influencing uh, sedimentation patterns in that area. So if we were to hit, let's say, LA, uh, Southern California, um, by an asteroid in a highly populated area, not only would we have immediate impacts to, to the people that live here, uh, but we would also have like redistribution of sediments and um, potential stagnation of water. And I'll talk about more of, of other impacts um, that we can experience. But both our water resources on the surface and on the ground can be affected and uh, disrupted on a massive scale. So we already live in a place where we have limited water. Uh, we import most of our water uh, from three different uh, sources. We're also bounded by faults. Um, and so, you know, we have to think about the infrastructure uh, and what would happen um, you know, there's already infrastructure that kind of helps us uh, mitigate uh, seismicity, but there, our infrastructure is not uh, set up to withstand an impact. Um, so again, we're living in a desert. Uh, we experience drought and uh, a space impact would likely exacerbate water supply problems. And um, it would take a long time uh, for us to be able to repair it. if if it's possible to repair it after. Uh, so, so these are some of my methods. Um, uh, Nahum and I chatted about this. We, uh, he mentioned this web-based computer program that is out there. Um, and let me just say, this was only to compare uh, what could happen. Uh, obviously this app is, um, is limited. As you can see down here, uh, these are the parameters where you input the parameters uh, you can, arranged so that um, an asteroid impacts water. So like in an ocean or a lake, it also has a setting for sedimentary rock and also for crystalline rock. So, um, but um, as you know, sedimentary rock has different lithification strengths. So, um, and most of uh, Southern California is built on, um, 
on loose sediment. So it is compacted, but it's still loose sediment. It's not necessarily uh, lithified rock. And the crystalline rock is mainly on the mountain. So um, there are some limitations to this, but it uh, using this program uh, gave me an overview of, of what could happen and what kind of uh, things uh, we can watch out for if some an asteroid were to hit in this area. So um, I I came up with uh, three different sizes. Uh, the first size that uh, was based on the minimum diameter, which is 30 meters, that is required to generate a crater on the surface of the Earth based on the material um, that I was working with. In this case, I used uh, sedimentary rock. Uh, the water table, on average, in, in the LA Basin is about 10 meters, so a 30 meter impact would definitely uh, reach the water table, so it would disrupt um, water resources here. Uh, the subsequent objects uh, were simply uh, multiplied by a factor of 10. Um, so we had three objects, one uh, with a, that would leave a diameter uh, crater, uh, a crater of diameter of 30 meters, one of 300 meters, and then a large one of 3,000 meters. And I just did that to compare um, to see what, what type um, of effects these would have. Um, notice here in the middle, so um, what I used was a simple crater model, so we didn't take into account ejecta, we didn't take into account airburst or seismicity, this is uh, specifically uh, the crater and the disruption to the water table. And so the results from, uh, from the three hypothetical inputs is yielded on this uh, table here, um, where for object A, which is uh, an object size of uh, 30 meters with a density of uh, 8,000 kilograms per meter cubed uh, at an impact velocity of uh, 12 kilometers per second, impacting at 45 degree at a 45 degree angle uh, on sedimentary rock would leave a crater of um, a final di a crater diameter of 0.25 and a depth of 176 meters. So 176 meters uh, exceeds the 10 meter depth of the water table. And it uh, the app also gives uh, uh, impact frequency. So it is, uh, so here are the values. And notice that for object B, the 300 meter object size, diameter um, object, and for the 3000 uh, diameter object, uh, the final craters are much larger. And again, we're not taking into account seismicity or um, or ejecta from or airburst from this um, from these impacts. Okay. Uh, so then, uh, what I what I did. Uh, so the app gave me an impact frequency. But we just wanted to compare it to see how accurate it was. So uh, we took um, an impact rate estimate um, uh, from a different paper, and we basically just compared it. So um, they're relatively around the same. Uh, this is from an older paper. Um, and so the impact rate for an object with a diameter of 30 meters is one in a thousand. Based on the app, it was 523. So it's still within the range. 
Uh, for a 300 meter object, it's one in 10,000. And for a 3000 meter object is one in a million. So it, it kind of falls uh, within the range. So, so the, um, the impact frequencies uh, were computed using the program and then matched to this, to this graph here. So again, doesn't happen very often, but this is a, a high, uh, a low risk, high uh, consequence event. Okay, so these are the results that I came up with. This is, uh, you can see downtown LA. Um, this is the, uh, the final crater on the outside here. Um, here's Dodger Stadium for reference, LAX up here, the ocean uh, in the background. And again, this is just the crater. Um, and so that's the area that would be affected and where there would be a crater. Uh, the figure number five is, uh, is a 300 meter object and that's the crater size that it would leave, again, in reference to um, uh, to other landmarks like LAX, the ocean, and Dodger Stadium. And then a larger, a 3,000 meter object would leave a larger um, final crater. So, um, so you can see the difference there. So a lot of people would be affected um, by an event here in Southern California. So now I'm going to talk about the actual effects on the groundwater. So obviously one of them is that the sediments would redistribute throughout, uh, creating different pathways for water to move uh, underground or on the surface as well. Because uh, sites that are already contaminated, uh, that you know maybe we're already, um, have already mitigated, uh, may begin to migrate again. So contaminants like, uh, like BTEX, for example, or DNAPLES, um, might begin to migrate again uh, within the aquifer underground. We can see it and um, it could potentially affect our, our water, um, uh, our groundwater, which we, we use about 11% of it from uh, here in Southern California from the ground. Uh, and then uh, places where there wasn't contamination, there could be contamination that arises from that, like leakage of tanks from uh, gas stations, uh, factories are, are also sources of contamination. And so all of those could be a possibility. Uh, not to mention with the seismicity from an impact, uh, we would have liquefaction, land subsidence, and that's another, uh, uh, another problem that that our communities here in the LA Basin um, would experience as local flooding, uh, like the redistribution of, of, the, of the grains can allow the water to come up um, and flood uh, certain areas. So some are more prone to uh, liquefaction than others. And uh, structure damage also can occur. So um, if you have seen any videos of liquefaction in Japan where the ground uh, uh, the buildings um, kind of sink on one end. Um, also in Europe, um, like the Tower of Pisa, that was uh, due to liquefaction. And another effect on groundwater resources, uh, specifically to coastal aquifers, can be the intrusion of salt water. We are already experiencing this phenomenon um, 
in the coastal areas like Redondo Beach, uh, El Segundo, um, Huntington Beach, like all those areas already have saltwater intrusion. And that happens when we remove uh, water, ground, fresh groundwater from the ground, and um, the saltwater then uh, intrudes inland uh, further in. So, um, so this is especially a, a, a special problem um, that can be made worse um, by uh, by an asteroid impact. And just and just uh, just to, some quick conclusions. Um, as you know, asteroid impacts occur less frequently than earthquakes. Uh, but the the problem is that we don't have that infrastructure and um, we don't have that outreach to communities to uh, to know about these uh, types of phenomena that can occur. And in a place where we're highly populated and very densely populated, um, we would have to deal with not having water after an event. So we would be fighting each other for water. Um, this is just, you know, immediately after an impact. Um, this is not to mention um, the the problems we would have with, uh, you know, falling buildings and um, and things like that, or material that. Uh, was ejected, and the air blast, which um, was not accounted for in, in this study. And as Californians and in the LA Basin were increasingly using more and more water and public utilities uh, rely uh, are relying more on groundwater, we're trying to not uh, buy so much water from um, the Colorado River or the Owens Valley River. Um, but because we have so many people, we still have to do that. So relying just on our groundwater aquifers um, would not um, would not be that wise. We would still have the the issues with with groundwater availability. And obviously, uh, like I said, this uh, this research was done for uh, as an independent uh, course, an independent research course. And I would like to further investigate some of the specific effects um, on the groundwater resources and, and to what extent um, those uh, the groundwater would we would expect to um, to have limited access to. And um, and my main focus is how do we prepare for emergency response? How do we prepare the emergency response teams? as well as the public to, um, to mitigate uh, the aftermath of, of effects of, a, of an asteroid impact. And I believe that concludes my presentation. I have my sources there, uh, so you can access the, uh, um, the app and run your own, uh, your own research for the area that you live in and see how that would be, how that would be affecting your area and your water resources. Thank you. I'll take any questions if you have any. Thank you, Monica. Very interesting. I think this is one of the topics that haven't seen being discussed too often at the conferences. So it's very original area here. There is a question here from Phil. In this scenario, is there consideration of how broad the destruction would be past the crater? So no population for mile, miles from crater? So do you mean like if it hit 
like in the desert somewhere or? I believe uh, further, uh, the further distance from the size of the crater, what would be the effect miles away from the edge of the I, crater? I, I guess the other way I'd put the question is, since there's so much destruction that would happen on the surface, where people live, where where would be the water users <laughs> of that aquifer? <laughs> well, yeah, that was, uh, so yeah, the immediate aftermath would be people would, you know, we would be scrambling, right? So we would we would lose our groundwater infrastructure. So we wouldn't have access to the groundwater that we currently have access to. Um, and so, and then we would be running around like chickens without a head. So that's for sure. Uh, people would not running, be running where? Where, I'm sorry? where would be? Where would we be running? It's just oh no, the, we would uh, be like going around. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, the, the effects of the impact uh, reach tens, if not hundreds of miles away right. from the actual point of impact. Right. So, so there's I did no running around anywhere near the crater. That is true. So we probably would be obliterated. Um, I did not account for, uh, for the airburst, which would actually um, affect us uh, before even the impact just to our lives like we would probably all be dead uh before it even hit um but i'm hopeful and i'm thinking ahead <laughs> if that were recovery happen, you're if, thinking of recovery you're yeah, thinking yeah. of wanting to retake the area for habitation yes. after we hopefully got out of the way <laughs> yeah hopefully <laughs> and, and it didn't lose any life yeah and coming back i mean you know it may take years depending on the size of the of the uh of, of the asteroid maybe months it could be months it could be decades or it could be hundreds of years um and the chesapeake bay example um they were showing that you know it's been millions of years and the ground is still um there's still redistribution of um, of sediment. So uh, okay. to me, that was really interesting. So I'm thinking shorter term, but this could be, you know, we we're going to be long gone uh, before we even see some like actual recovery to to the ground. Okay. Thank you. And I think one of the things that we talked about, Monica and I, when we were looking at this, is. What if it hits, let's say, the aqueduct that uh, conveys a fair amount of water into Los Angeles? What would we do without the aqueduct? So a small hit, actually, nothing really big, could take it out for a fair amount of time and could cause major water problem for LA or other places that rely on transfer of water from remote locations into urban areas. So. There's a lot of angles to look at those kind of effects on water supplies to cities. It's not just the physical disruption, but even just the basic need of water could be disrupted uh, without much destruction at all. And, and uh, also, Monica, you know, when you have such an impact, particularly B and C, um, you would have um, um, what we call uh, sympathetic responses from earthquakes and faults. And uh, that too may impact. Don't you think, Nahuma, that would cause serious damage uh, and, uh, you know, some kinds of uh, for all, I was, th I was thinking that, that for all you know, you might get a beautiful lake 
in the middle of downtown after a few years. A new national park. A new <laughs> national park. Right. But Paul won't let it happen, so don't worry. It's okay. Great. <laughs> yeah. I like well, Thank you. I actually have a question, um, uh, Monica. Good talk. Um, but uh, your uh, the, the small case, thirty meters. Um, it surprised me that you got a crater. I forget what size it was, three hundred or two hundred meters or something. That was one one hundred seventy six meters. Yeah. So um, so Chelyabinsk was a twenty meter asteroid, and it didn't leave any crater except an eight meter hole in the ice, uh, as you well know. And um, and thirty meters isn't a lot larger than Chelyabinsk, uh, but I noticed that you had a much higher density. On, on your case, eight, eight um, kilograms. Per yeah, yeah. So that, so that's, and, and so, and that's more like um, you're getting closer to meteor crater. So yeah, that would, uh, so I agree that that would leave a crater, but then you, uh, then you talked about the frequency being every 500 years, just based on the size, but the number of asteroids of that size that have that density is very few. Uh, and so, so the number of of cases of that mass hitting the Earth um, is going to be a lot rarer than once every five hundred years or whatever. So I think so. There's a little inconsistency there. Right. Yeah, and that's uh, that was a, a a figure that was given by the app when you know when you run it. So yeah. you know that's why we did the comparison. The comparison we got based on the older paper was one in like a thousand years. So but it's yeah, but you're right. And most of them don't have that density. Right. Yeah. So that that's exact. And I don't know whether the app takes the density into account when it computes the frequency. So I, I'm not that familiar. This is the Purdue the old Purdue app. <clears throat> um, yes. Yep. Yep. And here uh, I can. Anyway, it was great work, very interesting. And and Chesapeake Bay is the classic example. So that was. Yes. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. When yeah. when Paul when Paul mentioned Purdue, um, uh, there was a wonderful person there by the name of Jay Melosh, and you you have used his work. I'm happy to see that. And Jay was a spectacular, um, a spectacular lecturer, and uh, we miss him. Yeah, we do. Yeah, thank you, Monica. Looks like there is a few suggestions here for refinement of this research. So you already have something to do for 2023. Yes, thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you very much. We'll move forward to Madhu. Madhu, the stage is yours. All right, let's see if I can share my screen here. Okay. One minute. 
Okay, do we see us? Do we see my screen? We don't see your screen, but we don't see any presentation. We see your files. Yeah, we see oh, your files. What, what about now? Saying, I think you might want, do you have two screens or one? One, let me go. You might need to change screen because we only see your file, list of files here. Your file tree. Yeah. And you still don't see? Oh, you might need to come off screen share and then select the right screen. That's you fine. might want to unshare and then reshare the right screen. Yeah. Okay, let me see. Is it better? Okay, yeah. Now we start the PowerPoint here. You just need to put it into presentation mode. Yeah, good to go. Okay, uh, you know, I, I, I'm thoroughly enjoying uh, uh, this, uh, um, this event. And, um, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's a very interesting, uh, um, a very interesting uh, subject and a topic. Uh, my name is Madhu Thangavelu, and uh, I teach a course in which some of you have lectured and some of you uh, have reviewed. And uh, it's in the uh, Department of Astronautical Engineering. I also happen to be a visual freak, which means I, I like to tell my students, if you don't bring me a drawing, uh, you better watch out, your grades are going to suffer. So we want to try and be visual in the class. And I think Phil probably here appreciates that more uh, than many of us because uh, uh, he, he's into making movies and so on. Um, so uh, the course is a three-unit course. Uh, we spend um, one uh, three-hour meeting per week. So most of the work gets done after, after studio hours. Um, the Astronautical Engineering Department uh, is, um, is very new, but we have been attracting a lot of uh, very, very smart students. And uh, we are... Uh, um, gradually offering, in fact, uh, all courses are very different uh, from uh, the regular aerospace engineering course because we are an astronautical engineering class. Our famous uh, alumnus is well known to all of you. Uh, that was his uh, thesis that he produced uh, in our uh, in our program, and. Uh, I won't even talk about it because all of you know who that is. And uh, my favorite uh, picture of uh, uh, Neil Armstrong is in his uh, Gemini suit rather than the Apollo suit. Now, I want you all to look at what we've been doing in the last, actually we have 20 years here now, but 30 years we've been working on this. And uh, I tell my students, bring me some ideas. I don't care if it's on parchment, uh, you know, stamped on rock or anything, but it's got to be an idea. And don't worry if it is wrong, because most of the ideas are usually wrong when you look back into the history of things. So just don't worry about being wrong, but you need to have an idea in the class. Otherwise, we'll send them to our football team or something like that. Just kidding. But anyway, Google here and take a look at our class. So sometime around... 2013, 
we did a project called Eden Shield. And it had to do all about um, planetary difference. Soon after, I became the willing victim for several conferences. And uh, that's how uh, uh, my entry into uh, publications in planetary difference started. Our course is very simple, very interesting. And Nahum will tell you that. Um, we uh, are one of the very rare classes, graduate classes at USU where our reviewers outnumber uh, the uh, students by a factor of three. <laughs> so every time we have a final presentation, you get a gathering like this. And sometimes we have a celebrity. Buzz Aldrin is a friend of our studio. He usually charges a lot of money, but he loves to come to class to see what crazy things we've been thinking about. This is our moon book. Buzz wrote the uh, foreword for it. And uh, the third edition is in the works. Get a book. It's on Amazon. It's got five stars. So it's something to think about. Now, usually I tell my students, and I know all of us here do the same thing. When you have a crazy idea, the first thing you do is go and do some literature search. And then you'll notice that your idea usually has been talked about 100 years ago. <laughs> but in our case, um, when you look at uh, some of these things, uh, what it does to you really, at least to me, is that when you look at a literature survey, you get new ideas. You get, you, you sharpen your mind and it gives you new impetus on how to shape your idea. I picked a few, a little segment out here, right here. Can you see my arrow? right here uh, to show you what we did, um, what the power of policy does. You know, when I was in school, I used to think, when I was in engineering school, I used to think, oh, these policy people, I mean, they are so difficult. They don't mean anything, they don't do anything and they get in the way. But you know, as I grow older and lose my hair, now I think policy matters. Policy is what drives all the other things that we do in very large and complex programs. Here you'll see that there was a senator by the name of um, George Brown. <laughs> and uh, uh, of course, there were many other uh, events leading to it, but we call it the um, Near Earth Object Survey Act. It came out in 2005. And that led to all the other things, including uh, Bill Ehlers uh, activities and uh, um, all the way to Air Force. I mean, as um, Bill told you earlier, a lot of work was happening way before here. I see Jay Miloš here. Uh, and then uh, the act came out. Bill Ehlers talked about it and got large crowds. Lasers have been brought up very early too. And Yeomans is here, Garrison, and the US Air Force has been playing a role long before, way down here. So now, uh, most of the literature covered in, uh, uh, in our topic deals with the earth getting hit. 
So when I was looking at the review and I said, hey, listen, what about the moon? What would happen if you get, if the moon, if our dear moon gets hit by an impactor? As you know, uh, I think it was discussed a little bit in, in the early uh, discussions here. Um, uh, the moon uh, formed out of a large impact. And uh, <laughs> even today, uh, we feel some of the things that are happening have to do with the formation of the solar system. And that's why some of the uh, topics discussed today dealt with picking up asteroidal materials and so on, so that we know the origins of our solar system. So uh, what happens, at least in the story, is that the moon was formed and there was a period early on called the late heavy bombardment when uh, we, planet Earth, the moon, all of us, including the entire solar system, got really bombarded by very large objects. Even today, it's happening. And in a, in a much smaller scale, because most of the big impact, most of the big impactors are gone, or um, they're not around um, to cause this trouble. But this is from um, a recent survey of things hitting our moon. And it shows you how many impacts happened in the last less than, uh, um, I mean, since, uh, I think it's a lot more now, but this is between uh, 20, uh, 2005 and 13. So as um, uh, Paul and others said, if our planet, if Earth did not have an atmosphere, of course, we wouldn't be there. This is what we would look like. And uh, uh, this is a recent picture uh, from an amateur photographer uh, in Bangalore, India, who seems to take pictures almost every other day. And now that because of, uh, you know, COVID and so on, many of us have gravitated towards this kind of uh, media uh, to keep us entertained. And uh, I'm very new to Facebook. And already I have about 4,000 uh, amateur astronomers <laughs> on my site. So uh, it's a very interesting thing to be doing. Of course, um, both Paul and others mentioned the orange cloud. And we know, <laughs> and I borrowed the same uh, slide as Paul did about the, the recent happenings. It's not so recent because I think it was detected back in 2014, uh, but we have an incredibly uh, energetic object headed towards our solar system. Uh, and it's a comet. Now, um, <laughs> there, there is some, some discussion about this, uh, particularly out of Harvard and so on. Now we think, um, the number of comets that, uh, that we see in our solar system is probably underrated and undernumbered. And uh, uh, we think uh, uh, there are many more comets, we call them long period comets, short period comets, sun grazing comets. And then there's a term called death dive where the comet right goes into the sun. It's happening all the time. So in general, new data shows that we have um, many more comets. And in, in, again, another debatable arena is called the Younger Dry Gas uh, event, which says that there were a series of cometary fragments that impacted the earth not too long ago in historical and geologic time, 13,000 years ago. 
I'm sure that Paul will take um, Paul will take offense to it, but uh, this is a discussion that's ongoing. So, a cometary impact, or even an asteroid impact on our dear Moon, equals to a very bad day for Mother Earth. And the reason is simple, because a lot of debris will go into orbit, and guess what? It's going to take out all our satellites. It's going to take out uh, anything in cislunar space, including human vehicles and so on. And it'll be a mess for a long time. Now, my favorite area is high energy lasers. And it's not my favorite area, as I showed you in the first, um, the first uh, slide there. Um, uh, folks have been uh, talking about this for a while. And um, the idea is very simple. You would build very high energy lasers. I think Nahum will know this because uh, uh, Israel uh, has been asking uh, American expertise to help them build uh, high power lasers, airborne lasers. And all this is happening right now. It is a really new and interesting technology. You gang these lasers together and you can do magic. You can do wonders. And um, we have published several papers on it. I think the first time I, I went to uh, um, Italy for the PD conference, uh, I talked about ganging up lasers uh, to, uh, to, to attack this problem. I call it um, line of sight, speed of light engagement. Very, very clean. Uh, in the last um, um, AIAA uh, mini conference, I talked about what is the area, what is the level or the, what is the distances at which we should start thinking about really engaging, provided we know uh, this bolide is on a terminal trajectory. And I thought one AU looking towards the sun and away from the sun would be an interesting thing to think about because it will give us some time but maybe it's not even enough compared to, uh, you know, listening to what Paul said, we need two or three years to just get things going, to get ready to, to tackle such a problem. But that's something, but you know, I'm, I'm, after having given it a lot of thought, I think the rockets may not do the trick, particularly for this kind of short duration, short period engagement, when you know, you got a couple of months or a year, and uh, um, when, you, when you know you need two years to get a payload together uh, to put on a pad. So, so I think the idea of using lasers or something that you can do without direct um, involvement of rockets would be something to really consider. So what are the recommendations? I think we should expand our current focus about where it is in the domain and that we need to think about worrying. Usually when you hear about, about things coming at us in the news, they say five times further out from the moon and so on and so forth. So uh, for, a, for a short period engagement, for a very quick terminal trajectory engagement, I think, I think we should include the moon as a potential target and uh, as I mentioned, the debris can be devastating for, for um, civilization. 
And uh, please include moon in planetary uh, uh, defense exercises and threat evaluations. So uh, <laughs> some more uh, provocation here. So who do you think will save us? Us, as in US? Yes, indeed. I think the United States of America uh, has the potential um, to save us. And already a lot of spade work is going on at the United Nations. Um, we know, uh, uh, including these wonderful lectures that have been happening, uh, including the IAA and, um, and the Planetary Defense Conference. We got Paul helping us. We got um, Lindley Johnson helping us at NASA. We got a whole group out of the European Space Agency. And all of them are ganging together to have what's called the International Ast Asteroid Warning Network. I wish they would call it International Asteroid and Comet Warning Network. And now I found out that amateur astronomers can play a role. And I call it more eyes on our skies approach, MIOS. I think, Paul, we got to think about this. Getting youngsters, I know I was so impressed with, with uh, 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 Atarsh and his sister. It's spectacular. We can get a lot of people looking up, even now, because we have comets named after people, not because we don't have automated systems, but in spite of automated systems, people still find out things. So um, I'm thinking that detection and observation would be a civilian activity. But from what we know in the background, even though the Air Force has not gotten a, a particular agenda together, and neither does a civilian, when you address common defense, this is a, a case of common defense which means um, it is the imperative, it is the urgent requirement that a civilization take care of itself. So it's a common defense issue. Who would be the actor mitigating it? It would be the defense establishment. But alas, there is no consensus, not in the civilian population, <laughs> not in the defense population. I just read a paper from uh, uh, Peter um, Garretson, I think we just exchanged it uh, with Nahum, and uh, he says the same thing. There's a lot of talk, but very difficult to bring people together. And I know because in 2015, we did a project at the International Space University, and I had Nahum there as a lecturer. And, you know, I got a lot of fire when I said uh, uh, the DOD should take care of this. All of a sudden, I had about 40 students under me. All of a sudden, I realized some of these international students are from their own defense departments. And they go like, oh no, we can't have the US doing this. What happens if they do something and, and it causes our target, um, it causes devastation elsewhere? These are the problems we have. So we've been thinking about other ideas too. And this one, I think Nahum has started to work on it in aerospace because there was somebody last year who talked about uh, direct mitigation using missiles. And maybe we can tackle this in short notice 
just about the atmosphere. And um, one other crazy idea is to put a battery in low Earth orbit. Big policy problem. As bad or worse than nuclear weapons. But uh, the big question becomes, who will operate such a system? So some questions for you to think about <laughs> as we go over the rest of them. What are the new ways to observe and detect threat? You know, the mains or others are doing some spectacular work, placing assets on Earth and in orbit. We can do rapid characterization. I heard, uh, I think, Nahum speak about it. You know, we need to know what is coming at us before we know how to engage it. Is it a monolith? Is it a rubble pile? We need to know the density. We need to know the rotation of it. And uh, we need to improve our impact confidence. As you know, you saw the exercises. We don't quite know exactly where it's going to hit till maybe a few days or a few weeks before. And we can do this if we have more uh, accurate um, uh, trajectory optimizations over time. And quick, to do that quickly, perhaps we can engage more artificial intelligence. So we know when we need to worry. So um, like I mentioned, I think, um, you know, I know somebody said, when do we need to uh, tell our president? And uh, so I think it's a very good idea to have steps of telling him, hey, Mr. President, are you awake? We have a little problem. Then a week later, it's, Mr. President, forget elections, we have a serious problem. Then a few days be before impact, you say, Mr. President, are you praying or are you going to help us? And that kind of uh, level, because right now, as our earlier administrator told us, the only thing we have in common is prayer when, when a big impactor heads our way. So the question becomes uh, who um, gets to be in charge? And now as, uh, <laughs> as Monica said, um, what do you do after an aftermath? And that's where uh, the federal Emergency Management Agency has come into play. And um, it's a very good thing to do. My favorite cartoon, I think it's all of your favorite cartoons, except I have my own caption for it. It says, I want, I want, I want, ain't good enough, Ogark. What's so great about knowing when we'll all get fried? Is Jedi gaining any traction? Just ask him. Um, it's um, asteroid day on the 30th of June, and um, I hope uh, we all have a good, uh, good event then. References, everybody wants to know, Madhu, I want your references. No, I'm not giving it to you, because first it'll be published. Uh, the AIAA, Nahum, has got um, my paper this time. So hopefully <laughs> we'll shape it by then to talk about the joint the extraterrestrial Earth-Moon defense infrastructure. Thank you all. Thank you, Amador. Uh, super interesting and wide-ranging as usual. Um, yeah, I definitely uh, agree with you. Uh, the thinking mode will be different before and during emergency. The priorities will definitely be changed when a real situation might uh, be created. And 
because of the very, very, very uh, rare uh, nature of this event, yeah. we are hoping that it won't happen in the very near future and try to develop. Well, the first order is obviously to try to find all of them, right? And so even though it might take a few decades, the highest priority is find them. After we found the vast majority of those objects and can make an assessment of the risk, then we could probably move in parallel to the, to the next phase, which is characterization. And know what they're made out of, what sort of risk they might pose if they do impact, what's the chance they'll come back to us in the future. And Paul can talk for a whole day about keyholes <laughs> That's right. That's Paul's favorite <laughs> word. <laughs> yeah, you know what? What bothers me as some of the time is that, you know, we we play around with statistics a lot, and of course even use geologic records to say when these things have happened. But reality is very different from all the uh, all the um, statistical calculations. I mean, just look at just look at COVID. We know that these things happen uh, during a certain period, you know, in terms of um, specificity, and we can't even handle that. And, and every time we have a calamity, it's back, back to square one, you know, it's back to, okay, let's try this again. <laughs> you know, it's a very interesting, um, very interesting way uh, we think as a species too, I think. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, see what uh, the vaccine has done to COVID, right? I mean, the fact that we are kind of coming back to some sort of normal is because the vaccines were starting to be developed, what, 10 years ago or so? How about an asteroid vaccine, right? That we should develop <laughs> before <laughs> the object has showed up at our front door, right? We should develop a, an asteroid vaccine. I think, I think we, we are... make a pin called Astro <laughs> Astroid Vaccination. That's a good one. <laughs> hey, Matt, um, do I have a question? Yes, go yes, ahead, Paul. Um, well, first of all, uh, amateur astronomers can hardly compete with the NASA surveys that, you know, that are already underway. Um, yeah. They are very, very capable in terms of going to 21st, 22nd magnitude. Right. Uh, searching large regions, essentially the entire sky is searched every night already, um, down to you know very faint magnitudes, uh, and we're detecting asteroids at 22nd magnitude. So, um, so the role for amateurs is more for uh, searching areas that are harder for professional surveys to search. That is in the dawn and dusk skies, and that's where you find comets sometimes. So that's one. Uh, there is there is a small region, um, oh, yeah. an opening for. Uh, and finding and comets, <clears throat> excuse me, also show up with short notice. So you, you have to look for those. But there are many fewer comets than asteroids by a large factor. Uh, we don't know exactly what that factor is. In answer to your question, like who is in charge? It's NASA. I mean, NASA has been <clears throat> um, chartered with finding these objects and yeah. and uh, and considering things through exercises, uh, you know, on what on what should be done. So. So I think that that would be my first answer, at least right now. Uh, so would be you, you. You are engaging the civilian sector to take action. Yes, exactly, correct. And because 
<clears throat> to uh, deflect an asteroid is an interplanetary mission. Who does interplanetary missions? NASA, not Air Force or Space Force, who are more interested in um, you know missions very close to the Earth. So, and then deflection very close to the Earth is extremely difficult uh, unless you're going to a nuclear device, I suppose. But you know, for a kinetic impactor or any, anything like that, it's very difficult to disrupt something when it's close to the Earth. So you have to do that long way in advance, as in years. Uh, and that, that's when you have the most uh, effect in, um, in your deflection. So um, yes, yes, I know I am familiar with, with that reporting uh, philosophy, uh, Paul, but, uh, but we, still see, uh, we still see beautiful singular names attached to both asteroids and to comets. And, uh, uh, you know, I also think that uh, um, uh, comets, because of statistics, have been uh, relegated to a second position. Um, and um, directed energy systems, particularly lasers, uh, at extremely close range can be effective. Soldiers now carry them in the backpack and uh, warfare is changing. Um, the energy densities of batteries are going very high and uh, lasers are still not fashionable in the PD, uh, PD community, but I have a feeling it's coming. <laughs> okay. yeah, I think one Thanks. of the issues with lasers is uh, how do you generate the power that, that is, is necessary correct. to operate them. Yeah, so that is still a problem to be solved. Sometimes it will be solved probably at some point, but well, uh, it, you know, essentially, right now, what um, you know, um, you know, Phipps and uh, Lubin and others are talking about is ganging lasers uh, using phased array technology, and uh, mm -hmm. um, so the idea behind that is not to worry about uh, continuous wave lasers that can melt your optics and you know just destroy your system but to think about QQ switching and keeping your system cool, having a lot of them. And I know it also plays havoc with the nuclear data wrong. Think about it. If every city in the world has a laser system, dual use system, which looks at, uh, it looks to support any aggressor, including your rival. Oh gosh, what will you do with all the nuclear arsenal? You can't shoot each other because it'll just pop them, fry them off uh, <laughs> in the horizon. So there are some implications in uh, in the DOD sector and the Tarans. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I think before we move on to oh, Phil, to describe, thank you very much, Madhu. That is fantastic. Very uh, welcome. I'm enjoying this. So please continue. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, we'll have at the end of this, we'll, uh, after a very brief wrap up, we'll have a chance to chat and ask questions and sure. just want to give a chance to everybody to talk and just want to respond to uh, several comments here about why don't those wealthy business people, you know, pitch in and help out with planetary defense, which appear to be a little bit underfunded. And my sense is that uh, business people typically look for return on their investment. And what would be the return on the business investment right. Right, for business people? And you know, I, That's what they will be looking. So that's why it kind of falls within the government 
organization which yeah. look at the national priorities rather than just the revenue stream. And business people just in, interested in, in getting a return on their investment. It's very difficult to do. It planetary defense when the asteroid uh, might impact in five minutes, but it could impact in a thousand years. And That's right. Can you build on that? And very difficult to predict. Absolutely. I think with well, that... We, and Nahum, it's, it's a beautiful thing that you do by bringing young people in, and uh, it's wonderful. That's the future. This is how we keep our right. planet safe against Bennu, right? If somebody has to pick up the next uh, <laughs> phase <right>. of... <laughs> All right, Phil, the stage hey. is yours. Thank you. Uh, Madhu, I think you have to unshare your screen. Oh. Okay, let's see. There you go. Is that better? Okay, there we go. Okay. All right, hang on, let me just uh, do my thing. Okay. Oops, there we go. Good, you can oh, see it. Hang on a second. Yikes, I'm going the wrong way. I'm trying to minimize my screen. All right, well, I'll just do this like here. Okay, so um, this is, um, you know, it's funny, a lot of the different things that I'm going to talk about have been touched on throughout the, the course of the day, naturally so. Um, my focus has always been with the, my movie, Asteroid Hunters, has been to let the people in, you know, in the sort of the general audience know that this is really an issue and that we can, uh, we can actually do something about it. Um, when you would talk to the, the average person on the street, uh, you would ask them, hey, if an asteroid was headed this way, what would you do? And, you know, their answer would be something along the lines of kiss their ass goodbye. But um, when you would tell them that, uh, what, do you, what do you think we can actually do to keep an asteroid from happening? Their only references have always been Armageddon or Deep Impact. You know, these movies where you're, you send oil rig workers to go stop an asteroid, which, of course, is silly and not necessary. Um, so, you know, my movie, as well as other shows out there, are a way of getting to the people. And the people are the ones who might influence the policymakers. And the policymakers are the ones that release the purse strings that get missions like um, NEO's uh, survey off the ground. We, we've been talking about a space telescope since I could spell asteroid. And it's... Um, and it's a little frustrating when um, Nahum, a moment ago, you were talking about, you know, the expense of dealing with this, you know, uh, you know, it's because money matters. Well, it certainly does. When you take a look at, um, you know, a, 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 a single family home, a lot of people who care about their homes, they might have a fire extinguisher someplace in the house. And the relative cost of that fire extinguisher versus the, the expense of the home or the likelihood that their home suffer a fire is really, really remote. Um, when you compare the global economy or even just the United States economy and the amount of money that you might spend on some mitigation technology, sending a space telescope to the various Lagrange points or even further to, to look at the asteroids that are hardest to find for us, that expense relative to our multi-trillion dollar economy is is uh, is nothing. Even when you're talking a few hundred million dollars or even a couple of billion, it's money well spent, 
and compared to that fire extinguisher in the home, it's nothing, it's peanuts. So letting people know that we have an issue has really always been my focus. And I'm gonna use my own film since it is finally done as an illustration. I finished this movie last August. So um, it wasn't really done and ready to talk about until this particular asteroid day event. So um, weapon of mass destruction, that's what this is all about, is telling the people that um, there's an issue that they should understand better. So um, this is an article that was done around uh, last fall sometime. And I'm just gonna use this as a background to describe briefly what the movie is about for those who uh, don't know about it or haven't seen it, which is most of you, I'm sure. Um, it's about asteroids, you know, where they come from, the risk they pose for our planet and what we can actually do about it. So it deals with this concept that Nahumi mentioned a moment ago about finding asteroids before they find us. You know, this is the very first step in the whole process. And without that step, everything else is pretty much moot. Um, and then when we find them, we need to understand them better. We need to know how big they are, sure, how dense they are potentially, and especially where they're going, what their future is going to be as far as their orbital path around the sun. And if it's on a collision course with Earth, we're gonna to wanna to do something about it. And then if we do have to do something about it for the late discoveries, our only option is to get out of the way. So we have to understand you know, how much energy is released from an impact and the effect of an impact depending on the size of the asteroid and the speed that it enters our atmosphere and hits the ground. Um, and then if we're lucky enough to find an asteroid years and years before this potential collision with Earth, what sort of things we can do to deflect it, potentially destroy it, but more likely deflect it so that it ends up missing our planet. And that's what Asteroid Hunters is all about. So because of the pandemic, potentially another disaster that was preventable, um, um, my movie did manage to play a handful of theaters, and one of them was the Kennedy Space Center. And again, as I said, the mission of this movie was to educate the, the population to let them know that there's trouble up above in the skies and we can do something about it. And when I talked to the uh, COO of the Kennedy Space Center and asked them, what are people thinking about the, uh, the film? They actually do surveys, so they quantify the people's reaction to asteroid hunters. And he said that the number one response in all of their surveys is, I had no idea. And he expanded on that, meaning they had no idea that there was a potential risk that asteroids really posed. They thought it was really just Hollywood fiction, that it wasn't a real issue. And they walk out of the movie with a far better understanding of the issue and which makes them a more educated electorate, which again, begins to affect the policymakers, which is what, which is where the rubber meets the road. Um, so, you know, there's, there's kind of three uh, prongs that I want to focus on in terms of getting the word out. Geography uh, is certainly number one because this is a global issue and you want everybody in the world to know about it. While the US, Madhu, I agree with you, is, is in the lead. Fortunately, we have a lot of partners like ESA and other space agencies and other countries around the world who are dedicating attention at least, if not some resources, towards the problem. 
because yeah, an asteroid is indiscriminate on where it hits on the planet. It doesn't care about national political boundaries. So it's we need the whole world to be invested in it. And uh, because everybody, you know, all problems are scalable. The more people you have working on a problem, the more likely you are to find a solution. The next thing is media. Now, the movie itself, of course, is media, but I'm talking about media beyond the, the IMAX movie theaters. And, um, and then beyond media, which I'll elaborate a little bit more on shortly, uh, which is, you know, basically classrooms and, you know, taking the discussion out, you know, and have it happening between people and in events such as this. So the, the global effect is, you know, the, the movie has been held under by the pandemic, but even so it's managed to get a foothold in a number of places around the world. It's been playing in France, it's been playing in Japan, and it's been playing in a number of locations in North America, and it hasn't even gotten started yet. So the word is beginning to spread, and that's really the point of it all for me, and as for all of us here on this uh, conference. Um, two weeks ago, the movie played in the Shanghai International Film Festival, and I'm, I'm proud to note that every single show of Asteroid Hunters on the schedule was sold out. And, the, um, and as I've been told by uh, the, uh, uh, my uh, former IMAX colleagues in Shanghai, they say that the uh, Chinese audience is very reserved. Um, but at the end of these showings, they applauded the film, which means the movie's message is resonating with them. And they're, they're definitely getting the point of the film and the intention of it. So other media. So it's, this is probably something that gets maybe um, underestimated in terms of, of its value. The Instagram posting from a Daisy Ridley uh, fan um, um, subscriber, I guess, for uh, Instagram. Um, would have never thought to take any kind of interest in asteroids whatsoever. But because Daisy Ridley is the narrator of Asteroid Hunters, it crosses a radar. And it therefore crosses the radar of all the other Daisy Ridley fans that follow this person on Instagram. So the movie, the, the movie sort of branches off in directions that you cannot expect by virtue of social media. This other posting, which is someone that happens to know me, um, completely on his own, and I haven't talked to this guy in years, to be honest with you. He happens to be in Salt Lake City, which is one of the other few places where the movie has been playing, sees it, posts it on, on Facebook, and again, it ends up getting in front of a bunch of people that, that would have never thought about the issue. So, so social media and, um, is a really important uh, sort of uh, lever for conversation and getting people to think about something that they would have never been inclined to think about ever in their entire lives. Now, this is my favorite part. All of the IMAX locations that are part of a museum or a planetarium setting, their bread and butter are the school groups, those big orange buses that come to the location and line up and hundreds of kids go spilling out into showings of the film. And so, you said in whom a moment ago, they're the future. They are the ones that are gonna be um, really looking after uh, our planet and our species um, after we're long gone. So it's the chances of something bad happening in our lifetime is 